Here we go. My darling Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. Your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia. You could make all my dreamin' come true My heart is just droolin', Patricia, no foolin' I'm falling in love with you Oh, Patricia, my darling, Patricia I can see all my dreams in your eyes your smile is as gay as a bright summer day. You're much fairer than Aaron's blue skies. Oh, Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling. Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love with you. Patricia, my lovely Patricia, you could make all my dreaming come true. My heart is just drooling, Patricia, no fooling. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. I'm falling in love. And hello, everybody. It is Saturday night, May the 12th, year 2018, and here she is, the, the sick putty cat, kitty cat of Yesterday USA. <laughs> I'm the sick kitty. <laughs> <laughs> hello, everybody. It is Saturday night, and we are back. Whether you're ready or not, we're here. Hi, Walden. Hello, Patricia. Yes, Patricia was sick this week, but she, she's good enough to do the show. Oh, yes, I am. Oh, How yeah. long is this now? Two weeks? Yeah, because the week before last, I said, oh, I don't feel good. Yeah, so but you did, was, we, yeah, you did last week, though, because we had our arm, uh-huh. but uh, you didn't yeah. feel good. Well, t- you missed like a, three weeks ago, I think it was, so. so really? We, yeah. Oh, I did gooder than I thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this week I was rewarded with pneumonia, so I think by the end of this week, I should have been okay. We'll see. Well, Patricia better get ready for Tuesday, because we're going to be talking to the director of the Charles Schultz Museum. Karen Johnson's her name, and she's gonna be, we're going to record it Tuesday, and we'll put it back this Saturday. So after we do our live portion with Patricia, you'll hear a bonus, bonus Patricia. 
you know. Because she loves. Bonus me. Yes. Because yeah. she loves Snoopy. I love Snoopy. And Charlie Everybody Brown. Everybody loves Snoopy. Yeah. So that yeah. that will be and a trick. And then I. And then we, I t- we talk about them often enough that, oh boy, I'm really looking forward to this yeah. one. I'm sorry I interrupted you again. And then I put two calls in today. Actually, a call and an email. Um, I put a call into the Norman Rockwell Museum. I thought it'd be fun to have somebody for Norman Rockwell. And so the museum is in Massachusetts. And so we'll hopefully get somebody from that. And if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, the the guy who is best known to portray Sherlock Holmes on the stage, he was the first one, and he his picture became the prototype, what Sherlock Holmes was supposed to look like, William Gillette. And he, in the later part of his life, built a castle in Connecticut. And it's called the Gillette Castle. And it's got, it got secret pathways, it's got trains, it's got everything you can think of that a little boy would have loved to have. So so we're going to see if we can get somebody to talk about about that. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're, we're, we, we are thinking outside the box. So what can I say? All right. So we're going to get the Poet Laureate of Yesterday USA on and then... And after that, I have a treat for Patricia, and then we'll take calls. So hold on, everybody. Active call, variant, unread messages, Barbara Smaplick, send, invite, enter, leaving menus, contact, unloading, jump, cans, oak, enter, Skype, trick. All right. So you think she'll pick it up? I think she'll pick it up. She's the essay laureate now. <laughs> Hopefully I got the right thing, though, my computer program. Well, I called her earlier tonight. And she Hello. Hello. How are you? you are. I'm okay. Wait a minute. How okay are you? How okay okay? Oh, <laughs> well, aside from uh, just being a little bit drowsy. From not sleeping last night, I'm okay. So may I ask? Okay. May I ask? <laughs> <laughs> may I may I ask a big question of you? Yes. Do you ever get stage fright in performing for your sister? <laughs> uh, I think I have mic fright sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes, really. Aww. Uh, no, I do every once in a while, like when I when I have to read something on radio. <laughs> uh-huh. And who volunteered for it? No, I was told. <laughs> yeah, you were. <laughs> well, yes, see? Yes, you were assigned. You're right. So I'm looking this at is my yes, sister, Barbara. This is my sister, Barbara, who is in Alabama, and she did the night before Christmas for us, and then the night before, the night Valentine's, before Day. Valentine's Day. Year. You forgot. <laughs> you forgot New Year's. And New Saint Year's. Patrick's Day. And New Year's. Easter. And Easter. Oh yeah, you did New Year's too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, I did, didn't I? Yeah. Uh huh. And Easter, and now uh-huh. you're doing. Mother. Mother you're Day. Doing yeah. There you Mother's go. Mother's Day. <laughs> there you go, and you're all ready, right? Oh, I guess so. Okay. At the count of three, go. Well, One. Uh, okay. 
three. And I'm going to put you on speaker. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your speaker does um, quite well. So many of them, when we switch over to speaker or when the caller switches over, it's not as clear. But yours is really pretty good. Oh, I'm I'm glad. Good. Okay, are we ready? We're ready. Okie dokie. Twas the night before Mother's Day with a free verse about tales from the hood. Motherhood, that is. I had just cleaned the spaghetti and sauce from the kitchen wall because that's what the kids wanted for dinner. They would toss an occasional meatball to the dog if the dog missed. It was on the wall. I was looking forward to a bit of rest with my feet propped, but I looked around the house for further damage first. My 10-year-old was about to take his 5-year-old sister for a walk using the dog's collar and leash. The dog had a blood pressure cuff around his neck from a toy doctor's kit given at Christmas time. My son used to tell his sister that the gypsies gypsies dropped you off on our doorstep because, according to him, they found her in a cabbage patch. I remember well a distressed call I received from my son while at work, telling me he was at a friend's house. He was in junior high at the time and arrived home from school with his friend. He realized that he had forgotten his keys at home that morning. He was locked out of the house when he got a bright idea. He decided to try to squeeze through the dog's door where my yellow lab was waiting for him on the other side. My son proceeded to push his way through the door and got stuck. The dog started to lick his face while he was halfway through and then grabbed his glasses off his face and took off running through the house with them in her mouth. (laughs) My son could not budge, and his friend had to grab his feet and pull him back through the door. He was finally free thanks to his friend. At that point, the dog pranced through the door, through the dog door, with the mutilated spectacles in her mouth, very happy with herself and ready to play that game again. My son confessed that it was a lot less painful going in than it was coming back out. I finally sat down and reflected on the fact that motherhood is a growing experience, not just for me, but for a child as well. You don't need a license to have a baby, but you do have to have a license for a dog, to drive a car, to fish, to hunt, to wed, and to build a house, and so much more, but not to have a baby. The stages of motherhood, as seen through a child's eyes, are as such. When the kids were very small, they called me mommy and kissed me goodnight at bedtime and goodbye when they went to school in the morning. When they fell and skinned their knee, it was, Mommy! When they were sick, it was, Mommy! When something went bump in the night, it was, Mommy! I could always tell when they felt they were too mature to call me Mommy. Then it was Mom. I cannot tell you the chills that went through me when I heard the words, Don't tell mom. 
or better yet, it's okay, Mom won't mind. Then there was that crucial time when a full-blown mother was introduced while at the mall with my daughter. She spotted a few of her friends coming over the horizon from the gap. I had to do a quick entrance into Sears to save face, hers. After all, it wasn't cool to shop with your mother. Then came the teens, and I was ma. I cannot tell you how many ah ma's I heard. When they asked to do something or go somewhere, and when they knew it was the answer would be a firm no, but asked anyway, I would respond simply by saying, sure, honey, they gave up. This boils down to a few things that make motherhood worthwhile, and only a very few. I wish to forget, but with so many more, I would do all over again. M is for mommy, mom, mother, and ma. O is for only mom could give hugs and kisses and make me feel truly loved and many make many things all better. T is for teaching kids right from wrong and standing strong when needed. H is for the honor and privilege I have of being my children's mother. E is for every moment in time I have had with my children. R is for remembering all the loving things my kids did for me and still do, and so very much more that spells mother. That's it. Happy very Mother's good. Day. You like that one? Well, I did. Yeah. That, was, that came from the heart. That was very good, Barbara. Very, very good. And a lot of the scenarios I mentioned above are very true. That's what I said. I, I, I can see it that it was really like an autobiography. <laughs> it was the real thing. You know, it, uh, it, you know of, of the derivatives of mother, there's only one of them I cannot, t- my mom refused me to call her by. You, guys, you want to guess the reason why? Uh-huh. Of, I don't of, know. Of mother, mother, ma... Mom, the the only one I'm uh-huh. I've been told not not to use. Okay, I would say ma. Patricia, Penny. and it's the one is ma. I can't call her ma yeah. because it reminds her of the movie character Ma Kittle, Kittles. You know, mom. <laughs> oh, ma. Okay. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. And by the way you turned out, I do believe that your mother is quite refined. Uh-huh. I'm beating yeah, her in Scrabble. I, I am beating her in Scrabble, so that, that's, that's what counts, you know, Barbara? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I have to tell you the scenario with my son getting stuck in the dog's door. Uh, tell her true story, yes. Exactly. And he was afraid I'd get mad at him because his glasses were mutilated. (laughs) And uh, he was shocked to find out that I was just laughing over the phone (laughs) with the things he was telling me. But, you know, if if he had thought a little bit further, if he had just called me from his friend's house like he did and uh, told me he couldn't get in the house and that 
perhaps he had something else to tell me when I got home. I think I could have taken it a little better, but still, I chuckled when he told me over the phone. Oh gosh. <laughs> but yeah, he was. He was. He thought I'd be more upset about the glasses, but he needed another eye exam anyway. So <laughs> his timing was good on that one. Well, you did a good. You did a good job again, and I thank you very much. Oh, you are quite welcome, and I hope many, many people call in to say Happy Mother's Day to everybody, all the mothers listening. Absolutely. And I would like to say Happy Mother's Day to to all the ladies that are mothers that are listening, and a special Happy Mother's Day to Walden's mother. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. You're welcome. All well, right. Happy Mother's um, Day I, to you. Happy Mother's Day, okay. and then we'll figure out what's the next big one you got to work on. I got four or five dates, so I'll run them by oh, Patricia, and we'll pick it out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a good night, okay? All right, you too, Barbara. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, I have a treat for I have a treat for Patricia before we take any ooh, call. Ooh. But go ahead, Patricia. You want to say what? you want to say something? No. I want my treat. I All want right. my treat. Here's your treat. Let me walk over and play it. So stand by, everybody. Okay. This is Yesterday USA, and it is yesterdayusa.com if you want to find some great information about the station. And we don't mention, I don't think we have mentioned this in the last year, that this is a listener-supported station. Everybody with the station, and Bill and Kim, the founders included, um, are all volunteer. So there is a place on the website where people who are able to donate a couple of dollars every once in a while, and that's up on the website too. We do not push dollars. We never push dollars here, but if that's something that you think you'd like to do, there is a place for you to do it up on the website, yesterdayusa.com. Walden, are you there?
from our friend Ron from Hawaii. What do you think, Patricia? I think that is one of the prettiest pieces that was ever composed, and Ron did it justice. Thank you, Ron. Ron in Hawaii plays that. Um, he sent us so many songs that he has played over time. He's been quite ill, and we're hoping that gradually he will be able to get back to playing. And, Ron, if you're out there listening, and I hope you are, would you give us a call and say hi? Yeah, I understand that. I understand that volcano is really going to erupt till the next week or so. So it's a little scary time. Oh gosh, yes. You know. Yeah, they're they're braced for an unusual. I guess a phenomenon is unusual. Yeah. That because the the because of the lava there and and the pond. I don't know what else to call it. The level of the lava has dropped back down, and there is a theory. Maybe it's for real, but. They're talking about because it it went back down. It's building up pressure, and there, the rock formations along the sides of the crater were brought down with it. So when it erupts again, it's going to shoot the rocks, and some of them are the size of seven-ton boulders. They're expecting, um, and this is only a possibility. This is not anything that they have predicted will happen. But in this kind of a situation, it's something that can happen. So we are always concerned about our families everywhere, but in Hawaii, it's this week where there's nothing we can do to help except no. tell them that we're thinking of them. I mean, they found cracks in the freeway 12 miles away from the volcano. Oh, so. I know. There are fissures popping up all over. There were, I think it, I read that there were 12 active fissures, meaning cracks in the land and lava is shooting up from the fissures, not only from the volcano itself. So um, that's the Kilauea volcano that yeah. has always been active. It's it's always been an active volcano, but it has not erupted. So, I mean, this is really an education in topography and also all sorts of geology elements. So that's the story for Hawaii. It's the, um, I guess it's the big island that's erupting. Hello there, you're on with Patricia. Um. Hi, Mother Day. Hi, Ron. Oh, I knew you would be listening. Hi, Ron. <laughs> this is Ron in Hawaii. Please tell us you're safe. Oh, yeah. We're far oh, away from it. We're far away from it. I didn't turn the other eye and turn the big eye. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Yes. I knew it was not your island, but, you know, it was something like that. It's, I'm so... Forgive me, I'm so terrible on geography. Um, I, I never know which places are in jeopardy from something that's happening in a particular location. So I'm just glad to hear that you're safe. And we miss you. I'm so glad you called. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Good. Good. Love you. Love <laughs> you and love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. And you, yeah. Patricia, happy Mother's Day, too. Oh. Yes, Gail, that, that's true. That's me. <laughs> so, there uh, you are. Hi, Gail. Happy Mother's Day to you. You are a very experienced mom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so you're having all the family coming? Coming over tomorrow. They're coming tomorrow? That's great. Uh-huh. So what's what, what the what, best... What? What's the best gift for Gail on Mother's Day? Is it not the cook, Gail? What's the best thing... That you could have happen on Mother's Day tomorrow. I love it when my children come. There you go. And I love to cook, so I'm 
I mean, I'm not a good cook, but <laughs> but whatever I have in the freezer, I cook it. So we're having ham tomorrow. Ah, ah okay. And what what are you having with the ham? Ah, uh, <laughs> cream corn, asparagus, mush, um, mashed potatoes, um, salad potato using sweet potato. Wow. Ah, I just got the recipe today. <laughs> and any dessert? Oh, so I love, oh, I I love sweet potatoes and stuff like that. There, really enjoy it. and cream corn. Oh, I'll be over for dinner. What time is dinner for us? <laughs> okay, love to have you. Oh, let's see. We um eleven thirty or your time. There you go. Eleven thirty at night. Your time. Yeah. Your time. My time or Walden's my time? Your well, time. I can eat at 11.30. That would be cool. I would eat. Well, anyway, happy birthday to you. You too, Ron. Thank you, Ron. I'm so glad you called. Aloha. Aloha. And in the morning, we surprised surprise me too by playing that more. Well, I I figured I was I was going I was going through my drive and I said there's one CD and I just love the way you play the music box oh. dancer, Ron. You do you do a great job with that. I know. That's, that was that's a special one. That yeah. is such a special one, and I I'm always thanking you for sending it. I've got it on both computers, and every once in a while I click on it just to make me feel happy. Oh, oh that's so nice. Well, that makes me happy. You know, yeah. oh, I mean, I, I, that makes us happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll keep telling you then. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. All right, Ron and Gail. Aloha, Ron. Aloha. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Aloha. 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 Hey. Um, that was Ron in Hawaii. And Gail. And he, yeah, I'm so glad he called in. Hooray, hooray. <laughs> Seven one four five four five two zero seven one is our number. Seven one four five four five two zero seven one. Hope you enjoyed our live guest last week, Ira Mateski, who we heard about mm -hmm. last night. Kurt was listening. He enjoyed listening to Ira last week. So a lot of oh good. A lot of people enjoyed the discussion on Little Wolf and. And so I'm, we're going to have him back, so that's always good. So with that, hello, you're on with Patricia. Hello, guys. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, Paul. How are you? This is Paul in California. Yeah, hi. I'm sick again with another in California. Action, but you're still in California, right? Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Just teasing. How are you doing? I'm mean, I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. Aww. You know, I mean I'm sick again, but I my spirits are up, and I'm uh, about to uh, send a text to my new son-in-law to ask him to please buy me the flowers to give to Shelley for tomorrow, and don't make your bouquet bigger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're funny. Oh. You're funny. I can hear that you're stuffily. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I am, I'm pretty much completely swollen up the mess that way. I, Ron, I want to tell you, yes, we do love you so much. Yeah. Dean, it, it's not just Walden and Patricia, but the whole family. Yeah. You know, we miss hearing from you regularly, but I can tell from your call there that you are doing good, and I praise the Lord for that. Yeah. We're glad that Ron's doing better, and we're glad Gail's there, and we're glad the whole all all those girls are coming for them to, for tomorrow. So that'll make and a good day. And we have to have dinner tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So his his kids are all girls. Uh huh. He's got I yes. think five girls. Oh wow! <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> five girls, and boy, girls are for a father. They're um, very special. I mean, sons are special, too, but uh, a daughter is just so sweet. In a different way. Special in a different way. You're right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so I, I am thankful for that. Pardon me, Patricia? We're wonderful. You are. Yes, you are. You are. I'll accept it. I'll accept it. You know, I just... I have three timers set uh, throughout the day to remind me to pray for uh, my daughter, Rebecca, mm -hmm. and my daughter-in-law, Danielle, because they're both pregnant. Oh. oh, my goodness, you're going to be a grandpa again? Again, yeah. Wow. Oh, my goodness. It, it, it's growing and and for my daughter Danielle, my daughter-in-law Danielle this is her first time and uh -huh. she has a she has a very ex extreme disease i don't remember what it's called but it's really pretty rare mm -hmm. that uh like she injured her ankle and then all of a sudden that became this focal point f f uh for extreme pain and then her her legs just shoot off like machine guns of uh, uh, these big spasmatic motions. It's, it's wow. crazy. And, uh, oh gosh, I'm so sorry to hear. I'm pregnant on top of it. When well, right. Well, we don't know if uh, so far so good because sometimes it could cause the disease to be at bay, you know, yeah. uh, and other times it could uh, exacerbate it. But she's doing good. That's great news. So, uh, I'm glad. And when is she due and when is your daughter due? Oh, gosh. Probably a month and a half, maybe, has gone by since we got the news. She'll be next year, probably. Okay. All right. So it's a, you've got a while to prepare for this. Yes. Good. Yeah, sometime after Christmas. Sometime right. after Christmas. And I think, I think part of that disease that she has... That the bones are more brittle, too. So I know that they're going to have to. Her doctor's going to have to decide whether or not to do a C-section or, yeah, or to let her try and have it naturally. Because that's yeah. that's the one of the biggest concerns is that right there. Yes. You know, yes, if it's a be... bone brittle problem, sure, because you get uh, the pelvic pressure and separation. Exactly. So, gosh, oh, my goodness, extra consideration there. Wow. It, and you know, that's wow. another awesome thing about girls. The, 
childbirth and how your bones become more flexible, you know, if uh-huh. if healthy and don't have anything strange going on. That is just amazing. Yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah. You, you gal have something over us guy. You guys can do it. What can I say? You know, we can. <laughs> <laughs> but Dad has to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, too. That's true. So got sh- to true. share the wealth of feeding the baby. That's true. Yeah, that would be an honor. That's sort of, that, see, when, when I was born, I had such a small mouth. It took like two and a half hours for me to do a baby feeding. And so my dad was always the one in charge. So my mom remember coming coming down the hall to see my dad sound asleep in the rocker. I would be lying on his chest, and there was a feeding bottle right next to us. So he, that's where many times that's what mom remembers. You know, when yeah. I was yeah, born, wow, you know, two hours, two and a half hours to try to get a feeding bottle. That's down. an extreme duty job. Yeah, well, you know, with as often as babies need to eat. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But you know, well, that. Pardon me? I, I, I started to ask, did you ever find your old-time radio that you wanted to buy? Um, no, I, I have been kind of like on the back burner. I have looked at them. Uh, I've done searches, and, uh, you know, I actually find some that are in great condition. Okay. You know, and mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to think of taking something like that and, and trying to put something modern in it, but but that's what I'd have to do to, to really play out of it, or just make it a speaker, you know, that I could connect my phone uh-huh. to while I'm listening. Yeah, yeah. So that would actually be be fine, too. So... You may have really great bargains. I was up on eBay the other day. I needed uh, a new version or a new program. I don't think it's a new version, but a new program. Yeah, I guess it is. Uh, for Microsoft Word, for uh, Microsoft Office. Mm-hmm. And gosh, you know, the cheapest that you can buy is about $60. That's a lot of money. And I found one. Somebody was um, selling copies to download for $30. So I was really happy about that. Wow. So there really are still some bargains up on eBay that might have something that tickles your imagination. That's true. You know, I I like the cathedral type of radios. The, the, those mm-hmm. look special to me. I do, uh-huh. too. Talking about? Yes, I do, too. And there's the one I remember as a kid. You know, you see pictures of. And the cathedral yes. always so impressive. The, you know, yes, and I love those. I love those photos that we can come across mm-hmm. that shows the family listening together intently. Absolutely. To, to what we now listen to, you know, when when they were hearing it live, and I I picture myself as as and others as little kids that that have those special programs that mom and dad allowed them to listen to, and mm-hmm. how they would pay attention to time and. And how mom would use it to lord over them if they didn't do the work they were supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Paul, I'm so happy that you gave us a call. I hope you um, have a better week and get unstuffed. I can tell that you're you're not particularly comfortable. Stuffy noses are rotten. I've had one all week. Yeah. So I can sympathize as well as empathize. Yes, yeah, so thank you. Uh, you actually got pneumonia. 
chest x-ray on monday and i um i'm i'm positive it's gone now i've still got this horrid cough but um after the amount of time i've been on antibiotics i can't re i can't believe that any self-respecting bacterium would possibly want to stay home with me <laughs> maybe not yeah yeah if it's not a virus is uh is pneumonia considered a virus yeah yeah this is um this is bacteria when you get a, a pneumonia it's uh, not not typically viral um it's usually bacterial so there's a secondary infection is that what you're trying to kill with the antibiotics yeah 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 essentially that's it yeah so so i'm doing fine well you sound great yeah you know, Thank you. shirts are good and everything. Are we still guessing what's yeah. in your fridge? Yeah, sure. What yes, you, we are. Yes, and I was about are. to say I got a note from John uh, in Florida, mm -hmm. and Pickles is now on the list, so he's got Pickles. All right. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, do you like hot things? Like jalapenos? I like Hot, hot jalapeno, hot peppers. Hot. Oh, no, no, I'm too delicate for the jalapenos. No, no, but that one's the pepper, off the list. or something like that, the ones that are mild that you would get in a sandwich at Subway or Togo's mm. or something no. like those? There's something, oh, there's something about jalapenos, even the really super mild one in Colby, uh, not Colby, uh, pepper jack cheese. I can eat that, but... The taste and the power of it is just overwhelming for me, and I don't know why. I used to love hot, hot stuff, and I still like hot mustard, but it's the jalapenos. Boy, just just don't have a good tolerance for them. And they taste good. I really like the taste of them. Yes, I understand. I have to decide whether or not I'm up for it myself because of how it really gets a uh, GI system cranking up. Yeah, I wonder, mm -hmm. I wonder if that's a company with A, because I really like to go out like hot hot stuff now i gone more the mild i just wonder the older yeah. we get it's just something huh. I, I don't know just just a thought i, I don't know if this yeah makes yeah. sense they, you know more sensitive uh-huh I, I remember as a child going up to uh one of my friends on our street and uh he he uh, always had those peppers yeah and they had whole milk and so we would like you know Take a bunch of those and, and eat them, and then take a big tall glass of uh, whole milk and uh, use that to to help with the heat. <laughs> It'll yeah, work. Well, Patricia okay. told me we're, we're not supposed to drink water or something. We're supposed to eat saltine crackers. That's correct. Um, saltine crackers or bread? Yes. Absolutely, and I don't know why. Uh, apparently, the water is igniting the, 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 yeah, you still got to guard yourself. So, yeah. I guess um, no. I'm going to say salad dressing. Salad dressing, Patricia. Yes. All right, Paul. Okay, because if you don't salad eat those salads, you're going to have salad dressing. Italian and Asian. 
You got yeah, me. I like Sesame. Yeah, Sesame stuff. So, yeah, got it. Very, good for you. It's good for you, too, if you have it. Okay. Yeah, I'm so okay. happy for you that way. Thank you, Paul. Hey, tell, tell your roommate mm-hmm. that uh, your friends from the radio send their love and say hello. We will do that. Okay. We'll nope. do that. Your, your older roommate there? Yeah. Okay. Hey, Thank you, Paul. What was that question? Oh, I know. I was saying, tell your roommate. The, the yes, that part I got, but there was a question after that that I missed. It's not a question. Just tell tell them, tell her that your friends from Old Time Radio said hello <laughs> and said their love. Okay. We will do I that. will do that. She'll be thrilled. Well, that's good. I, I was hoping that was okay. the case. Okay, love right. you guys. You too, Paul. Love Take you. care. Love you too, Paul. Bye Thanks bye. for calling. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. 714-545-2071. We got about 50 minutes before Patricia. We are continuing our look back on VE Day. So that's what we're going to be looking through. Uh, news and radio shows covered on May 8th. And uh, so those are some of the things we'll play once Patricia decides to run off to bed. At seven one four five four five two zero seven one. If you have a question about Charlie Brown, you might want to email that to Patricia. This the next couple of days, we're going to be interviewing via recording Karen Johnson, the director of the Charles Schultz Museum. So if you have a question, you might want to drop that to Patricia here the next forty eight hours before we enjoy our conversation with Karen. And we'll play that the coming Saturday. I have, a pre- mm-hmm. I have a president question for you. All right. Mother's Day. Who was the president who made the recognition official? My guess would be Franklin Delano Roosevelt. No. Give you two more guesses. Hmm. William McKinley. That's, guess. That's something. Yeah. William, no. William McKinley. No. Nope. FDR would be a good guess because I think Eleanor would be an excellent promoter of that. Uh-huh. One uh, more. One more guess. Stand by, Carl. I'm working on this one. Uh, Grover Cleveland. It was Woodrow Wilson. Ah, I thought about Woodrow. Mother's Day. Yeah, there was someone, uh, Julia Ward Howe, uh, and by others including Anna Jarvis in 2007, uh, 1907, <laughs> excuse me, um, suggested the holiday and really were, Anna Jarvis really I, worked for years toward that. I think and I remember Woodrow Paul, Wilson made mm-hmm. it, hmm? Go ahead, I'm excuse sorry. Excuse me? Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Woodrow Wilson made it, made it officially the second Sunday every May, and he made that in, or, or lobbied Congress to do that in 1914. So since 1914, we've had an official Mother's Day. I seem to remember Paul Harvey doing, this is a story, you know, where he does little things like that. And I think the gal who uh-huh. promoted was not a mother. So, so That's a, correct. She was a daughter, daughter, and she wanted, yeah. yep, she wanted to honor her mother. I guess she had an exceptional relationship with her mother because she went after this for years. Hello and there. finally we got one. Hello there, you're on with Patricia. Hello, John and John and Marilyn, who used to be in Texas. 
Hi, John. Um, John, we're, we're, I think we're having trouble with your phone. I think we lost John. We'll, we'll yeah. give it a second here. It, it sounded, yeah, it sounded like he broke up. Um, cell phones sometimes give us a fuss like that yeah. because they just don't transmit very well sometimes and gets broken up. So, John, try again. Give us a call back. 714-545-2071. And I still have at least half a dozen items in my fridge. Um, people need to guess. All right. See if it might be John. Hello there. Is that you? Walden. There you go. I, I haven't lost you. <laughs> but I got you now. How's everything? This is John in Maryland. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I want... How are you doing? Are you all recovered from your trip to Texas? Yes, I am. Good. You're pretty good. I'm going to go to church tomorrow. Good. Uh-huh. Uh, sounds like you had a wonderful time with your son. Yes, we did. And I, and I loved going, going to the cemetery to give my respect to poor Barbara Bush. Ah, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was... You know, just having your son is such a gift because of what he went through, and it wasn't all that long ago, and he made such a staggering recovery. So his his presence here with you is an absolute gift. Yes, I do. And I, I pray every for the video family. I pray every night. And so far, it's worked pretty good. Yeah. Got, good. Yeah. We had Ryan. to have all you guys, all of us still together. I mean, we all have had interesting health challenge, this little family the last couple of years. You, Patricia, Jim, Ron, but we're all still here, so we're great. Yeah. Yeah, we, we fooled everybody, <laughs> didn't we? You know, when I, Surprise, we're back. <laughs> you know, when I was in the, the rehab set, mm-hmm. I spent three, three and a half months there, Yeah, and they were always worried about pneumonia and I was wondering uh, yes. they're always you know they was always you're always checking that we don't get pneumonia you know out here yeah. I don't know if it's done everywhere but anytime my dad or somebody in my family has a surgery in California they'll give a pneumonia shot so that would be part of the procedure whoa John I think you're pushing on your buttons Okay, I'm, I'm clear now. There you go. Okay, there you go. But no, they. I think they out here in they give them a, an ammonia shot just before yeah, surgery. Yeah, five years you're know. supposed to get one. Yes. Yeah, they they were they were very careful. I did catch a terrible cough while I was in there. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you about the story about that? I'm landing at it about. And ten and I hear a voice. I hear. Well, he's breaking up on me. Yeah, I know. John, can you move your phone like about two inches? Maybe we get a better connection. Better? That's better. Yeah, move it a little bit further away from your mouth, maybe. Just a little bit. Is that all right? 
Yeah, that's yes, better. Yes, much better. Very Thank good. You. All right. Did I tell you I was laying in the bed in the hospital, and yeah. I heard about 10, 1030, a voice. It said, John, 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 <laughs> and then it would stop. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, what the heck is that? So I rang the little buzzer, and the nurses came in, and I told her, she said, oh, there's a woman that we moved in next door, and she he just lost her husband. Oh. Yeah. Can you imagine 30 at night, dead quiet, and you hear somebody calling your name? Yeah. Oh, yes, you're being called home, John. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That, that's spooky. Yeah. yeah. It was at the time. Oh, no. my goodness. I'll never forget that. I felt yeah. sorry. Wow. sorry for her, but what could I do? Wow. True. Oh, the poor lady. But, Walden, I enjoyed your broadcast of the VE Day. You did. We're going to have some more, so you'll hear the replays of it. Well, I hope so. On the blue. we got plenty more to go through. We, uh, we're, we're covering well, that, brings, that brings back a lot of memories. I bet it more. does. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're working on some special for D-Day. And yeah. we're, we're going to start early. We're going to start June 1st and cover the couple days up to June, get the D-Day. It's hard to believe that next year is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. 75 years. I know. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember very well. Yeah. I think the whole country was on pins and needles throughout th- those yeah. that time to see if, if we were going to be successful or not. Yeah, we were very interested in what was going on. Yeah. In our own source with video and or movie t- Movie Tone News, uh-huh. that was our only source, besides the newspapers. I think but I really liked what the newspapers was, they show you maps. I love looking at old maps. Yeah. I, I enjoy that. And uh, you can see the progress, you know. Well, my dad remembers his grandfather always having a map out while he was listening to the radio and put pins in, that way you could follow... What yeah. the battle for different things. And That's very true. I didn't do that, but I I was always interested in where our positions were. Yeah. And, it, but I, I love Lowell Thomas, who we told you. Yeah. He made it very interesting. But, uh, I'm getting ready to have transferred. Frank Proceed did uh, an interview with Lowell Thomas on video. Um, the week that Lowell Thomas announced he was retiring from radio. And so I'm interested in getting that out. We're going to play that sometime to hear what I wish you would. Yeah. I wish you would. So we, we just found that. So, uh, so one of the legendary newscasters. I imagine Frank has a lot of programs. Yep. Man, I would love to hear them. You bet. That's a goal. I, I would too. Well, I'd like to wish all the mothers out in the United States a happy Mother's Day. Well, I hope I hope all your kids call your mo- your wife tomorrow to wish them Mother's Day too. Yeah, they'll all call, <laughs> and my youngest son he'll he'll drive up. It's about an hour's drive for. So you guys know what you're gonna have for dinner for Mother's Day tomorrow or, or lunch? No, uh, they they always surprise us. Okay. Ah, uh, that's cute. Okay. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate it. And um, for the moms in the country, thank you for your good wishes. Okay, thank you very much. All right, John. Take care. Good night, John. Good night. This is the, the day before Mother's Day. And uh, someone went pulled? all through the house. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Seven one four five four five two zero seven one. I'm Walton Hughes. I'm based in Costa Mesa, California. Over there is Patricia from Florida. Yeah, Patricia from Florida is not based in Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee, or New Hampshire, but she's in Florida. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the station is broadcast through Texas. Texas, yeah. And we talked with Ron in Hawaii. Yep. And John is in Maryland, and Paul is in California. Right. And we've got people all over the place, and we have so many we haven't heard from. Where is Bob from Wisconsin, for goodness sake? That's sakes? true. Is he still out there? Well, she's chasing back. I, I sent him an email a couple of weeks ago, and, and no reply. So, Bob, please give us a call. Maybe he's chasing badgers or something. You never know. <laughs> right. He had, he had a, a badger that loved his property and was mm. digging holes in the property. I looked up do you recall i looked up information about badgers yes and discovered that they are so strong and their claws are so lethal that they can actually crack concrete with yes. their claws yes I, uh, un- I just unbelievable unbelievable i just cannot imagine a creature having that amount of power and they're not huge no. I, I guess they're well, it's the size of a good sized dog maybe not even that big they're they're heavy you know, they're pudgy and powerful. They've got a lot of muscle, but my goodness, that much. Yikes. You don't want to cross a badger. <laughs> Amen. So what have you been doing this week? Oh, I've been, uh, what have I been doing? I, I, don't, I, know. I don't know. I don't know. I've been emailing with Patricia. <laughs> I've been corresponding. Uh-huh. I've been corresponding with different people, trying to get them on the show. Um, uh-huh. I got the historian from... Edgar Rice Burrow to be on the show in June, so... Oh, great! Yeah, wow, so we're gonna that'll talk, be fun. We'll talk to Tarzan. I was in touch with the uh, the people who run the Sherlock Home property in uh, in the United States to see if I can get a whole mm-hmm. of a, another Sherlock Home expert. And they get sent me to a, a an author who basically writing cri- crime to detective stories. He's sort of the official mm-hmm. Sherlock Home. And... Wow. Then I just been uh, taking care of that, and then been uh, booking a lot of guests for the show. I sort of been, uh, and then as as as, as Patricia knows, we're into a major scrabble scrabble tournament, and I am <laughs> I am not I I spell everything phonetically, and I spelling is not my suit, but I know how to score, and my mom's a good speller. I'm afraid when I play Patricia, she's gonna blow me out with her capability of spelling and scoring. So, but, but so far we're up five games to four, and just before the show, I have a strong lead in game ten. So it might be six four going into Mother's Day tomorrow. So, that is a big thing around the house. I'm gonna cream you. <laughs> Yeah, I Cause you, I know what to do with a cue. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, and I shared all of my information. I know. Yeah. Oh I, no, what what was it? 
Z? Z. You worked no, on Z. You haven't, on... you haven't given me Q. Q is going to be the next it one. It was Z, you... right, because we had fuzzy in yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think when you and I play, you're going to do 300 points. What can I say? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. So when's the last time you played Scrabble, my dear? With Barbara. Oh, Christmas. okay, okay. Yeah, and that that was that was the time we were making up our own rules as we went. <laughs> <laughs> we get to the end of the game and look and see what, what tiles. Say, what the heck is Blizzvik? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Oh, dear me. I remember dear as a me. kid, my mom and one of our neighbors across the street, Ruth, when I walked into the kitchen and tried to dining room, tried to, it was Scrabble Clyde, and there was dead silence in the room, and I walk in, and, mm. you know, you know you don't, you weren't going to be speaking anything, because you had the, the Scrabble players working on the combinations in there, so, one, some of my earliest memories as a kid. Good memories. Yeah. Seven one four. Okay. Five four five two zero seven one. My mom just finished the book on George Washington, and some really fun facts she learned. He said part of the problem, George pretty much had money trouble for the rest of his life because he had to entertain all these visitors that came to see him after he passed the United States. And so he had to put, he had to build quarters and things on his property to host them. So he, they were supposed to have a couple, oh my goodness. Best a couple hundred people show up. These, these are people who would just show you up. Just show up. They wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> they couldn't call ahead. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we're in town. Can you have dinner with us? I don't think so. Oh my goodness. What a way to, oh gosh, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, so that was part of that was part of I mean, money. You can't run around in your bunny slippers when the general is coming, you know. <laughs> wow. And I, another thing I found out that Lafayette wound up in prison in France. During, in France, in, what, what he, happened? He went back a couple of times. He went back during the American Revolution mm-hmm. and came back, and then he decided to go back after we won the war. And he got caught up in the French Revolution, so he spent, I think, five ah. years, five years in prison. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Oh, I had no idea I, that. I know. By me for my entire lifetime. I know, I know. I mean, who ever thought? And then. Wow. And then, of course, George Washington's cabinet never got along. He had such strong personalities from John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and all those guys just didn't get along. You know, yeah. there was just subdivisions in there. So he had a handful. <laughs> oh, George. Nice to know that we've got a historic base to all of this. <laughs> uh, we're not the only ones. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. Let's see. Major holidays. Got to get major holidays. May, May, May. Uh, 714. May. Five four five two zero seven one. Happy Mother's Day to all your mothers out there. And it's gonna Just be like that there. It's gonna be Memorial Day before you know it. And Father's Day and Friday and Fourth of July Day and Christmas Day all coming up. All sorts of days. Mm-hmm. All sorts of days. Well, that's the start pointing okay, on Christmas we- in July. So work on that, everybody. If you have any recommendations this year for? Christmas and July, let us know. Uh-huh. 
in May. We've got a whole bunch of stuff here for May. (laughs) It is Date Your Mate Month. So folks out there who are married or have partners, um, make sure you schedule a date. This is the month to do that. And we have uh, National Barbecue Month. Uh, That's right up your alley, right? Uh, yeah. National Hamburger Month. Oh, I National love that. National Salad Month. Yep. <laughs> National Salad Month. We can live with that one, right? We had a salad dressing tonight. I'm not too fond. It's too sweet. Spinach. Spinach salad dressing. Spinach salad dressing? Yes. I never heard of that. I know. My dad. Is, my, it, is there a brand? I don't know. I have to ask dad. My dad saw it and bought it in the store. And really sweet and tangy. It's almost too overwhelming. You, you, we thought, wow. We thought it would be a lighter flavor. but Yeah, or, or countered with some extra vinegar. Mm-hmm. Huh, isn't that interesting? Okay, let's see here. Oh, last night was Twilight Zone night. Oh. And let's see, we've got uh, International Migratory Bird Day today. Okay. And Oak International Nurses Day was today. Mm. Oh, hooray for nurses. Limerick Day, um, National Train Day, Bill Bragg and his trains. He loves trains. Have you talked with him about his train collection recently? I have not. We'll have to do that one day. We have day. to do that someday. I was just thinking, I wonder if, yeah. we should, I, I wonder if there's a nurse museum out there. We could go contact the museum and talk about nurses, what good things they've done. For a nursing museum? Yeah. What an interesting concept. Huh. Just okay. an idea. You keep talking, I'll look. Okay, I mean, I mean, I, that's part of the thing. I'm, you know, I try to be creative what we do talk to. So that's why we're talking to the Charles Schultz Museum, and I reach out to the Norman Rockwell Museum. I know uh, Patricia loved Patrick Henry. We, uh, Patrick Henry Homestead, that's all my goal for yeah, Patricia. Yeah, we tried to, to get him, and we just, didn't, you know, they just didn't follow through for us. So we were supposed we to can, hear back from somebody. We can reach out again to, to that, get that going. We'll try again. Yeah. I mean, it well, took guess us a, what? Yeah. We have Museum of Nursing History, Museum of Medical History, Muse, Medical History Museum at Edison State College. That's here. <laughs> huh. Edison State College is in Fort Myers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to look, look a little closer to that one. Um, American Museum of Nursing. And there is a whole category. Wikipedia has nursing museums. Let's see. You are so cool. I never would have guessed that. So you want to see... museums in the United States. You want to see which one we should sh- try for? And we'll have... So, we'll, we'll contact one of them. Well, it looks like the American Museum of Nursing would probably be the one. I would Arizona think so. State University College of Nursing. How about that? It was it was located in Tempe, Arizona. It featured, this is past tense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're in present tense here. Let's see. Oh, the collections are now part of the International Nursing Museum in Scottsdale, Arizona. So, we should give it a try, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, they've got out their own website. You know, I so I think that'd be fun. Something something that maybe Patricia can handle all by herself because she knows the nursing field backwards and forwards. Well, maybe upside. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about backwards and forwards. We've had we've had a couple of brain drains <laughs> over the last few years, so there might be things that are just not willing to 
come up and out. Oh, no, no. But I'll try. Yeah. I'll try. Okay, Temp- there's a, it's still in Tempe, Arizona, according to this. But uh looks like from Wikipedia, the International Nursing Museum. We won't give that one a try. Let's see. Okay. Yeah. I have my homework assignment again. Well, well you know what? If we have to, if we strike out, we can have our, our friend... And you haven't talked to her yet, but I think you would love to talk to her, is um, W.C. Field's granddaughter, who has her Ph.D. in nursing. She runs sort of one of the big nursing deals in Washington, D.C. Huh. So we can always talk do to her about Do you have to like W.C. Fields to do that? No. No. But I mean, that's an Ethel Merman category. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> Do you think I need to pass on it? <laughs> well, you know, I guess not. You, no, that's okay. You, I can no, no. I think we'll try for the we'll try for one of these museums first, you know. But okay, because I'm working. Uh, Harriet will come back on with Sunday, which I uh, here she work on a couple of projects. So, uh huh. You know, it's nice to find. Well, it's nice to find family member who are enthusiastic about the the. Their history and their family lineage and things like that. You know. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. We'll find somebody at the International Nursing Museum. <laughs> it's interesting that it went from American, uh, the American Museum of Nursing, to being incorporated into the International Nursing Museum. So, uh, you know, what I would particularly like to talk with them about is World War Two mm-hmm. era. That's what I was thinking. That, yeah. Um, and see whether or not we could get some unknown insights into what went on with the nursing corps in all of the armies. Absolutely. International. So that would be fun to do. Okay, I'll see what I can dig up. Okay, on this day, May 12th, 1970, Ernie Banks with the Chicago Cubs did something special. What was it? He played in both games of a doubleheader. He said, let's play two. <laughs> no. <laughs> but go ahead. Take a shot. Uh, he hit home runs in two games uh, on on the doubleheader today. He All right. He hit his, you're close. It's oh, did he hit five? Home run. 500 home runs. Uh-huh. Wow. 500 on May 12, 1970. And he had a nickname. What was his nickname? Hmm. West Point 2, Ernie. I have no idea. What what do you got? Mr. Cub. Mr. Cub, yeah. Mr. Cub, yeah. How cool is that? Okay, it's also Catherine Hepburn's birthday. Ah, Kate would have been, Uh, what, 100 and... 111. Wow. I I tried to go for the show. Yeah, I tried to go on the show. She was about ninety six. Got a letter from a lawyer saying she wasn't well able to do it. And I ended mm. bring her book book after her passing. I can see why she was not really capable of doing too much at the end. Yeah. But uh. Yeah. What a, I did read her book. What a spunky um, lady. Yeah. Yeah, very spunky. This was years ago. I read her autobiography, mm-hmm. and it was pretty cool. It was really interesting. I read, you know, so, I, so I, frequently. yeah, I, I, I got a bridge version of her reading it, of an autobiography. I read some others. And then, then somebody that she knew wrote a book. It was a writer. 
and mm-hmm. the, the, his opening chapter. Here's an interesting. You know, um, Catherine Hepburn's dad, I think, was a urologist, and he had a, he had a theory, and she and she believed in it. And what do you think he had every guest do do when they came to her house? Piddle. Yes. She won. Really? <laughs> <laughs> her dad said, her Welcome da- to my house. Here's the bathroom. Yeah. Welcome to my uh-huh. bathroom. <laughs> her dad believed no matter what, go to the bathroom, empty whatever you have in your bladder, no matter what. So that's what she made sure all her guests piddle. That was, that was, she was big on that. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh. It's not something you walk into cold. You have to have a heads up on that one. <laughs> You're going to have to take off your shoes, don't walk on the white carpet, and go directly to the bathroom. <laughs> oh, gee whiz. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. I would Who was think, the president? I would think, no, no, go ahead. I would think knowing Catherine Hepburn would have been a hoot. You know, her personality thing, you it, would... Yeah, you know. she had a, a very. I read in actually just today in an article about her that she was a sometimes difficult person to work with on yeah. the set. I'm not surprised. Gave people of yeah, yeah, she had a very strong personality. But it's interesting. I told you I read her autobiography. I did it for somebody who belonged to a book club. Mm-hmm. I guess really had her heart into it. And she would farm out her books. Mm. I read her books and did the reports for her book club. <laughs> so all she had to show up with was the synopsis and, and critique um, and didn't even have to do the work in it. So wow. that was fun. That was fun. Getting paid to read a book is a very fine way to go. Wow. Yeah. So did he, get, yeah. did he, did he try it by the page? No, by the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, it was a, it was a, a flat fee, okay. one time deal. <laughs> so, uh, and and she did not have an opportunity to approve or return for editing. It was a one shot. <laughs> I read the book, this, and I mean, how how could she know the difference? She never read the book. I was doing the reading for her. So, I mean, you talk about lazy people. I say lazy people. Why would you bother to join a book club if you were farming out the books? Yeah, I thought I. Uh, it very... defeats the purpose. Hmm. I wonder if we could find other work like that for us. What do you think? Uh, people, if you... I would love it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. If it, anybody sure. out there who, who's a member of the book club don't want to read, we'll negotiate Patricia. <laughs> we'll negotiate Patricia's reading prices for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, if if I'm really pushed against the wall, I'll pay you. <laughs> This is good. I'm reading an interesting mystery. It's a Travis McGee mystery. Love Travis McGee. Mm. And John D. McDonald was the author of the Travis McGee series, and there was always a color in the title. Mm-hmm. Always had a color. Like Sue, Sue Grafton did from A to Z. Um, a is for alibi, B is for burglary, that type of thing in her mysteries. And he always had a color. So this one has Scarlet in the title. I can't recall the specific title, but this one has Scarlet. And there was uh, something like the green room and uh, the red sunset and those kinds of things. So it's kind of fun. Mm. Kind of fun. Interesting characters. Uh, 
not a hundred percent. Not not like an Agatha Christie where you want to hit every single page, but there are there are some pages in there that you kind of skim over and then get to the really good stuff, like the murder. But um, fun book. I I'm re- doing mysteries this week. This week, I re- I reached out to an Agatha Christie historian. Really? Uh, yeah, but that, the email I didn't have back back, so I guess I'm gonna keep looking. I thought, oh, this would be this would be one for Patricia, so I was trying to. Oh. Boy, would it ever. I have read every Hercule Poirot mystery and then some, and I still have a couple of Miss Marple, I guess, but, you know, and they're really sneaky. The, the, I'll call it the estate. I think it's the family who, who is doing this. The books are being republished in different, in a second or third edition, Mm -hmm. and they're changing the titles on them. And it's making people buy the books Sneaky. because they think they have, yeah, they think they have discovered an Agatha Christie that they haven't read before. And they buy it and they get into it, and it's one that went out by a different, different title. Uh, Not good. No. Not good. There's one, I think it's called Murder on the Blue Train, that is Murder on the Orient Express repackaged. Mm. Mm. Not nice. Not nice. So I learned very quickly to read the first couple of pages before I bought an, an Agatha Christie book. But actually, they're good enough that they're fun to read again. And you know how I feel about reading books again. There are 28 billion books, and I'm not about to spend my time rereading something that I've already gone through, unless, of course, it's something like a, a, a really rich yeah. history. Yeah, and if, yeah, that too. Mm. But you, you get so much history in some of the books that... Mm-hmm. It's over, it's just gone, and you find it on the second time through that you've missed so much. Who's there? Hello there, you're with Patricia. That's sneaky. That's not fair. That's not fair? That's, that's not fair, re- retitling books like that. But no, it, keeps it, bar- it keeps our variants employed. This is Dan yeah, in but... Indiana. How are you? And as long as you're in a position of authority in the literary system, would you please let the publishers know that that's a dirty trick? That is a dirty trick. That's taking up, uh, it's taking up shelf room. <laughs> yes, it is, and it's a duplicate, and it's not fair. That's right. Sneaky. Who wants another, yeah, another book on the shelf like that? So, how are you people doing? Well, we're doing pretty well. We, we are, well, I am. I'm doing fine. Yeah, I took a nap. Patricia's taking several naps today, and it sounds like you're about ready to take a nap. <laughs> I got up for, bre- for lunch, and I got up breakfast, and I got, well, I was up awake because they wake me up early for meditations, but um, after breakfast, I fell asleep, and I woke up for lunch, and had my insulin, and went to sleep, and woke up for dinner, and went, <laughs> I did not go back to sleep after dinner, though. So, I'm all bright-eyed and bitchy-tailed. You're all wound up, sounds like. Well, not quite wound up, but I'm not wound down, that's for sure. <laughs> that's right. You'll be partying all night. Yeah. be coming in, giving you a pill oh, to yeah. sleep. That's right. Well, that's good. How are you doing? Well, we... Oh, it's been real busy. We Today was graduation, and that's an interesting situation. Oh. Oh, my Is the library being heavily used during graduation week because people are trying to make sure they can meet deadlines and... Well, you know, by by this time, you know, well, we do have summer students coming in, but 
you know, today is what I call the nostalgia tour, you know, students coming through with their parents, you know, saying, well, this is where I spent many, many hours, you know, in the library <laughs> and enjoying, you know, uh, library <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, we're just kind of winding down. Are you part of the show and tell when the students come through with their parents? Exactly. They come through and they say, here's the elusive librarians saying here, you know, just waiting for questions. Do they Huh? I said, I'm really serious. Do they really introduce you to their parents or their parents to you? Some, some do, some do, you know, they'll come and or the, you know, some will just come by talking to the parents and, and uh, speaking to the parents and, you know, I'll just uh, wave or nod or whatever, so, you know, but, yeah. yeah, you know, but, you know, it was, it's been, it's been pretty busy here the last few weeks and, you know, of course we had Derby last week and, yep. And, uh, yes, and, that was, and you had Justify win, uh, and boy, that was uh, an outsider. For my sure. dad had the my dad had the winners, so we're all, we're all happy about that here. Did did he pick oh, Justify? Boy. Yeah, yeah, he had the, he had the exacto, so he had first and second. Mm. So wow, we're good. that's wonderful. I don't, you know, I oh. I know zero about horses and horse racing, but I knew that they're usually two year olds racing, and this mm-hmm. was a three year old who had never, or which had never. Participated race. in a race, As a, a two-year two race. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was really a long shot. Um, did he did it pay very well? It, he he was f- he was favorite five to two. So he was. Yeah, he was favorite, but he was the f- first one to win since 1882. Mm-hmm. And so my dad had one place show money, and he had this after, so he was happy. It it rained three inches last Saturday. Oh, gosh, I saw some pictures of the horses in that. It's amazing that some of them didn't go down. It was the wettest derby ever. The most it had ever rained was uh, in 1918. It had rained uh, like 2.18 inches of rain in 1918, I believe. Mm. Well, we had flood warnings that came out. They, They kept saying, you know, that, well, there would be scattered showers and, it just started raining, and it just kept raining, getting harder. Um, you know, some of the streets were flooded. It was just wow. a mess. So. Okay, you're my horse expert. How do you train a horse to be a mutter? I don't think you really train them to be yeah, mutters. I think it's, yes. You know, uh, yeah. they just they look, do my, well. My dad, my dad looks at the breeding. There are some. Horses that like running in mud, like like running in the mud. So, uh-huh. um, and the, the the horse that won the Derby ran won a race a few weeks ago in the mud. So my dad figured also they were in the mud. Uh huh. Yeah. One of the uh, so-called uh, horse experts, when when it was known that it was going to be a a wet track, he just said, "Pick a number." <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the way my yeah. dad said this, it's an easy way to handicap a horse in the mud. If they have speed, bet the horse they're going to break first because they generally throw mud in front of in front of the horses behind them. And a lot of horses don't like having mud tossed in their face. Oh, I never thought of that. Right. And so... Mm-hmm. so they are very interested in getting up front. Yeah. And so justify 
went to the lead with another horse, but the other horse, I guess, took it and ran. And that's, yeah. so speed in the mud is a big deal. Um, yeah, I think the furthest back, Justify, I think Justify may have been second at one point and then right. basically got in the lead and led all the way. Right. It was a slow derby. It was two two minutes, four seconds, I believe. I think so. But the first half, it was what's average? The, uh, two or one is the record. I think it's, um, hmm. you know, uh, Secretariat has the record. I think it's 201 or, yeah. or 159. I've forgotten what it is now. I think it's 150. 150, yeah. 159. There, there was, I remember reading that. I think, yeah, I think there was, uh, I think only two horses have won a, a sub two minute derby and it was, uh, um, it was Secretariat, and the horse that came in after Secretariat, mm. you know, back in during that race. Right. Yeah. So, but, oh, we've had crazy weather here. Would you believe we went from snow to 90 degrees in about uh, 24 days? Oh, great. Yes. We had snow. I do believe Yeah, that. we had snow it's... here on uh, th- three weeks ago Monday. Mm-hmm. And we've... We've hit ninety twice this week already. Probably going for uh, probably going for about three days of ninety degree weather. It's been cold here. I I had a little sweatshirt this week, so it's been a little cold. Mm-hmm. Did you have an earthquake out there in California? If it did, I did not know about it. But, but it was in your neighborhood. Earthquakes all day long. We have it was. We have uh, California every year has a thousand earthquakes. Um, uh huh. But, you know, most of them are under three. You don't see all three, and most, and some of the, um, it, but if we did, I didn't feel it, so I don't, I don't, yeah. it didn't make the rest just, just the hip enough, parade. Just enough to lose your balance or make you feel dizzy, not, not lose yeah. your balance, but, yeah. you know, kind of like, whoa, the floor <laughs> moves. <laughs> I'll never forget, I think, oh. I never forget about 13 years ago, Patricia was up in her apartment. And she fell in an earthquake up there. I think you, what your chair moved. I think or something. If I remember right. That is right. correct. I yeah. was up on the uh, on, I was on the second floor, but it's a high second floor, mm-hmm. and the the building swayed enough that my chair rolled away from my desk, <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool. You know? I mean, I, I, and it was a pretty good sized one. It was out in the Gulf. It was six point eight. So that's a pretty good sized. Size rumble. Absolutely. And it moved my chair. My earth moved. <laughs> so, Dan, have you ever gone I, through an earthquake in Indiana? Uh, it's been a number of years ago. Uh, we had an earthquake, and I was at work, and it felt like someone was right behind me jumping up and down. I wow. turned around. There was only one other person, person in the room, and I said, did you feel that and they said yes and I said I think we had an earthquake and sure enough it was wow I, I think we're going to have to move to Alabama stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. when I lived in New York near West Point the, we were on a fault a fault line there very, quite a few throughout the country and we had a pretty significant one they built a fuel station a, a fuel repository on top of a fault. Can you imagine? And no. we did have an earthquake one time. <laughs> I mean, um, that is not a place I wanted to live. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a 
lovely place to put, uh, I guess it was propane fuel. It, it was a big fuel depot mm. on mm-hmm. the fault. I don't want to be there. Yeah. You know, of course, up here with the New Madrid fault, we're overdue for a, a really severe earthquake. Yeah. So, oh, well. you know, we're, we're just ready plant, for... Is it time to plant a garden up there? Well, if it would... I mean, it's warmed up, but, you know, things are... We're about seven weeks behind with the uh, with where we should be. I've got peonies that still have not bloomed. Of course, they may have frozen out. It's been so cold. But I've got buds on my peonies, and they have not... Bloomed out yet? So. Oh, they're so fr- and they smell so wonderful. They've got such a pretty scent. Yeah, these these are white peonies. We've had them in the family for about fifty years. Yeah, and they're so faithful. They're so faithful. Oh, they are. A cluster. They are pink, magenta, and white. All three colors, and it was just magnificent to look at them out on the lawn. Oh, I loved it. Hmm. Yeah, we. That's a sure sign of spring, and usually they're bloomed out by derby. And I don't know; it just may have gotten too cold. I, I mean, you know, it's. I tried to protect them and cover them up, but it, you know, it's like, yes. You know, yes. how do you protect something that's bloomed out like or, or that's big and yeah. you know? Um, well, something that's a springtime bloomer is usually hardier than a summer bloom because it's, they're accustomed or they, they're built to withstand rapid changes in the weather and especially cold snaps. So I'll bet they'll mm-hmm. be fine. Uh, they, they may bloom out still. I noticed that some are, you know, still, some, are, some plants are blooming out, you know, just in and around the neighborhood. And some still are, you know, have their buds that haven't yeah. bloomed out yet. So, but oh. I don't know. It's just a real... I realize that you would, <laughs> the other way around, that you would have been early because of so much climate warming. And there's a big problem with bears, the poor bears. They're starving um, because mm-hmm. they, the, the climate warmth, the climate change, has kept them from hibernating properly. But the food sources aren't growing as rapidly as their appetites. So, you know, it's, it's just such a screwy situation. Wow. And your poor mm-hmm. flower is seven weeks behind. Mm-hmm. Yes. Overdue. That's yeah. a very long pregnancy. Yeah, quite a bit. I think they'll still bloom out, though. Yeah. Walton, I got your email. I just haven't had a chance to, no uh, problem. to sit down and work on it there. No problem. Just thought if it might come in handy for you, too, Dan. So, it, I mean, first of all, I am shocked what we're talking about, everybody. Uh, a family foundation filed 990 income tax, uh, 990 form with the IRS. Uh-huh. The IRS doesn't keep the forms. Amazon is in charge of the da- database, the digital database for these, for the government. Uh-huh. Amazon. What, what does the digital database include? It basically is all public records for, for charities to file their paperwork. And so... And it, the IRS does not, does not keep them. No, they, they, they let Amazon does it for them. <laughs> I knew. Amazon does it for them. They have a site called AWS 
So I sent that to Dan, yeah. and I said, can we figure a way I can get access to this database or something? Because this is, this yeah. is, you know, but I was shocked when I went and read, read the government website. Oh, we don't keep it. Amazon keep this for us. Now, I knew that, I knew that the government was printing uh, hard drive space from Google. I, did, I have not heard anything about Amazon I in know. the past. That's incredible. You know, I'm not caught speechless very often, but that one did it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, I, anyway. I want to remind people, speaking yeah. of Amazon, Nero Wolf, we had the Nero Wolf interview with Ira Metetsky last mm -hmm. week and learned that if you are going to buy through Amazon anything, please go to NeroWolf.org. It's NeroWolfe.org. They've got a link to Amazon, and if you buy anything from Amazon, having gone through that link, they get a couple of pennies per purchase. So it helps support the, uh, the, the website and the functions that they do. So I'm going to pass that on periodically. The end for Amazon. Um, and, and were you able to catch the Nero Wolf interview? No, I, I, I did. fell asleep. I did. It, it was a good interview. Just good? It wasn't superb? It wasn't terrific? It put me right to sleep, I'll oh. tell you that much. <laughs> I, knew it. I knew it. I just knew it. I don't know. I'm going to have to come up with something that, that just gets you so worked up some night you're not going to sleep for a week. Oh, don't do that to me. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, poor Dan. He's, he has such a rough week. Really, I mean, you, you are just, you go all the time. Yeah, I mean, so Dan, do, you, do, you ever sweep, do you ever sweep in the library unofficially? I mean, I don't know how No, you do no, it. no, but, you know, that, that's trouble. I, I, you know, when you, when you work, you know, uh, 11 hours, you know, some days, it's like, okay, you know, just let's, let's squeak through on this, you know, time and, and, you know, get on toward home so you can, like, sleep, but, uh, yeah, yeah you know, when, when we're open for our 24 hours a day, five days a week, you know, that's a long, long day. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. but, uh. How many librarians? How many librarians? Staff? How many? How many librarians are there in in that particular facility? We ha now we have circulation clerks, and then we have mm -hmm. reference librarians. Okay. And I'm I'm one of four reference librarians. Okay. We usually staff. The reference desk, oh, from 8 a.m. to at least 10 p.m. Uh -huh. during, during the week. And then, you know, also, you know, I'm there on the weekends. So that's, that's a lot of uh, hours to fill in for, uh, that's a lot of hours to man, you know, a, uh, a place. Now, we also have relation mm -hmm. clerks that come in and... Pretty much the reference desk is manned 24 hours a day, at least five days a week. So, wow, wow, wow. Uh, we do a lot with. I hope they are. You know, I hope they are grateful for the services that they have. Oh yeah, yeah. We we uh yeah. we do surveys and we we get. Uh, I think our last survey, 92% of people were pleased with the service. Oh, 
So what happened to uh, humbug on the other eight? Yeah, what happened to the other eight? You guys shoot? <laughs> you guys shoot them or what? You know. Well, they want to steal. Probably said no to someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to bring their. They want to steal. The... <laughs> they want to open more hours, you know. But you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, we have a limited budget well, too, so. Yeah. Well, yeah. We are at the end of. Hour, hour and a half already. Yeah. So we're going to try to go to bed. Time to go to bed. Yeah. And wish your family for us. Happy Mother's Day to all who qualify. Absolutely. All you exactly. mothers out there, we love you all. So thank you from Dan and Patricia and I. For Good to hear from Ron. Yeah, wasn't that so much yes. fun? Yes, it was. In fact, before I, before calling. I play the radio show, I'm going to play the music box dance. I just love the way Ron played that. Yes, so we'll play that, the, that is just, and he did such a wonderful job with yeah. it. There's something so special about the way he plays. So, Well, Dan, you have yourself a wonderful week and behave yourself, for heaven's sakes. Would you please? Oh, I'll try. Now tell Barbara I said hello. Okay, I will do that. <laughs> All right, Walton, tell your mother, happy Mother's Day. I'm going to go and beat her in Scrabble, so that's how I'm going to celebrate Mother's Day. (laughs) 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 Thank you, Dan. Good night, and thanks for calling. Take care, Dan. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 That's how I celebrate Mother's Day, beating Mom on Scrabble. Well, she just might surprise you. You never know with moms, you know? (laughs) That is true. I'm All right, my dear. I'm going to cream you. I'm going to cream you. I know. I know. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't look for I can't. I know what we're going to be doing. We're going to be playing Scrabble and chess. I just know at the night time we get together. Yeah. I'm going to have to whip up some information about chess. It has been years since well, I have played. I, I have too. So. We'll, we'll be on equal ground. But, uh. Okay. You better get you better get All right, you, I feel better. you better get your chessboard out. We'll start working on this strategy, you know. We'll have yes, <laughs> okay. we'll have we'll have yesterday USA family member, you know, um, under, tournament underwrite the tournament. Yeah, there we go. Yes, there we yes. go. Send M and M's. That will work. <laughs> I am finished. All Good right, night, dear. everybody. Thank you for being with us again, and just loved that so many of you called in. Good yeah. night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. We love you all out there. Okay. And let's go, Patricia. Let's say our prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being here. Bless this wonderful country. Bless all the mothers out there. Look after the needy, the poor, and the hungry. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let's play Ron, Music Box Dancer, one more time, and then we'll get to VE Day, May 8th, 1945.
JAWS Professional Documents Document MGF Music V V E Data Enter Items 2 Page Down 20 Page Down 39 40 450508 More Coverage Later in the Day 41 CBS VE Day May 8th 19 Enter CBS World News Headquarters in New York Continuing Columbia's VE Day programs, we present now the second in a series of broadcasts in which we're to hear from the men who led our armies to victory in Europe. During the next 25 minutes, the commanding generals of six United States armies in Western Europe and the commander of Canadian troops will speak to those of us observing VE Day here in the United States and to the men and women of the armed forces. We take you now to Supreme Allied Headquarters in Paris. This is the European Theater of Operations. You're about to hear personal messages from the commanding generals of the Allied armies which have fought their way to final victory on the Western Front. First, General George S. Patton, who commanded the 2nd Armored Corps in Africa and the 7th Army in Sicily before assuming the leadership of the United States 3rd Army in its historic advances across France and Germany. General Patton. Now that victory in Europe has been achieved, let us review the Third Army's part in this epic struggle. From Avalanche to Brest, thence across France, Germany, and into Austria, the Third Army and its equally victorious comrades of the 19th Tactical Air Command have fought their way. The Seine, the Loire, the Moselle, the Saar, the Rhine, and the Danube, not to mention 20 other lesser rivers have been successfully stormed. The Siegfried Line has been penetrated at will. Metz, Trier, Koblenz, and Frankfurt, and countless other cities and towns have been cleared of the enemy. More than 80,000 square miles of country have been liberated or conquered. You have demonstrated your irresistible prowess in France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Austria. You have captured more than three quarters of a million Nazi soldiers and have killed or wounded at least half a million others. But in thinking of the heritage of glory you have achieved, do not be unmindful of the price you have paid. Throughout your victorious advances, your line of march is marked with the graves of your heroic dead, while the hospitals are crowded with your wounded. Nor should we forget the efforts of those at home who have invariably provided us with the sinews of war, the means to victory. To those at home, we promise that with their unremitting assistance, we shall continue so that with the help of Almighty God and through the inspired leadership of our President and the High Command, we shall con conquer not only Germany, but also Japan until the last danger to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness shall perish from the earth. Thank you, General Patton. From the time of the St. Lowe breakthrough to the capture of Leipzig and its link up with the Russians on the Elbe, the United States First Army has been commanded by General Courtney H. Hodges. General Hodges. With victory in Europe an accomplished fact, it is fitting that we of the first United States Army should pause to review our accomplishments and to pay tribute 
to those who gave their lives and to those who lie wounded that our army might move relentlessly forward. I wish they all could know we haven't forgotten that they too are part of this great first United States Army and a part of this hard-won victory. From the beaches of Normandy to the heart of Germany has been a long, difficult struggle, but we can rest secure in the knowledge of a job well done. Speaking now to the men of the First Army, America will long remember D-Day in Normandy and the bitter fighting that followed as you expanded your bridgeheads and liberated the Cherbourg Peninsula. And then the long summer days of hedgerow fighting as you moved into position for the breakthrough at Saint-Lô. Sweeping through France and Belgium, you paused only to annihilate the German counterattack at Mortain. Encircle large numbers of the enemy at Argentan and Elbeuf, and again at Mons. In your 450-mile dash from Saint-Lô to the secret line, you liberated vast areas of northern France and Belgium. You were the first to crack the secret line, and during the Ardennes campaign, you held the best troops the Germans could concentrate. You recoiled from the blow to drive the Nazis back across the banks of the Rhine. It was First Army that seized the first bridgehead at Remagen. With skill and audacity, you breached the last Nazi obstacle on the road to Berlin. Your drive toward Berlin is history now, with its total of nearly 900,000 prisoners captured since D-Day. After crossing the Rhine at Remagen, you drove relentlessly east and north, exploiting your breakthrough and linking up with the Ninth Army to close the Ruhr pocket on over 324,000 Germans. <clears throat> From Kassel, you fought on two fronts separated by over 200 miles. On the west, you mopped up the pocket, and to the east, you advanced swiftly to the Elbe. It was you who first contacted our gallant Soviet allies at Torgau a fitting climax to a long line of firsts for the first U.S. Army. On this day of victory in Europe, you should feel proud. Proud of the fight you have made. Proud of the tremendous work on the home front. Proud of our allies and proud of our cause. Millions of mothers and fathers in America have contributed courage, sacrifice, and superb fighting men to this victory. However, our fight is not yet over. We still have one more of the aggressor nations to defeat. I have every confidence in the final victory. Hard work, hard fighting, and a great sacrifices are still ahead on the home and the fighting fronts. And not until victory day in the Pacific, can we lay aside our weapons and resume life in a free world? Thank you, General Hodges.
Lieutenant General Lewis H. Brereton has commanded the first Allied Airborne Army from the time of its formation prior to the airborne invasion of Holland. Since then, he has directed the airborne crossing of the Rhine and all the supply and evacuation operations of the Troop Carrier Command. General Brereton. For the soldiers of the first Allied Airborne Army, this is a long-awaited day. Germany is a ruined and hopeless country. The German soldier is stripped and stands defeated in his own ruins. Our airborne soldiers have used the fullest power and speed of modern war. They have never failed to gain their objectives. We give them our deepest thanks now and forever. Our airborne army is an allied fighting force. It represents millions of British, American, Polish, and French families. You may all have the greatest personal pride in your sons and brothers and fathers. They have served you well and faithfully. In Africa, Sicily, and Normandy, in southern France and Holland, in the raw days of the battle in the Ardennes salient, and finally in the epic crossing of the Rhine. I thank and congratulate the British and American airmen who have made possible our successful operations. We owe the same gratitude to the magnificent ground troops. General Frederick Browning and General Richard Gale, as successive deputy commanders of this Allied Airborne Army and as commanders of the British First Corps Airborne, have given unsparingly. I am deeply thankful to the outstanding British officers and men of my headquarters. I cannot adequately express my admiration for the gallant leadership of General Roy Urquhart, commanding the British First Airborne Division, and General E.L. Both of the British Sixth Airborne Division. I take pride in the achievements of the 17th Airborne Division under Major General William Miley, the 82nd Airborne Division under Major General James Gavin, and the 101st Airborne Division under Major General Maxwell Taylor. These divisions, comprising the 18th Corps Airborne under Major General Matt Ridgway, have formed one of the world's finest fighting teams. This was not an easy reputation to win. The German was a dangerous and determined ground fighter. Troop carrier units of 38 and 46 groups, Royal Air Force, under the command of Air Vice Marshal Scarlett Stratfield, and the United States 9th Troop Carrier Command under Major General Paul L. Williams, made a glorious battle record for themselves. Besides their hazardous combat role, these vulnerable carrier planes became flying gas lines and ammunition carriers for our swiftly advancing armored forces. They furnished our columns with as much as a million gallons of gasoline a day on the front lines. Since the invasion, the Troop Carrier Command has evacuated more than 300,000 wounded soldiers. We have ahead of us a hard and bitter campaign against the Japanese. The same invincible fighting spirit displayed in Europe will be carried to the Pacific and will hasten the day of victory in the Pacific War. Thank you, General Brereton. Lieutenant General William H. Simpson has commanded the United States 9th Army from Brittany through Belgium across the Ruhr and the Rhine during the Battle of the Ruhr and on into Germany. General Simpson. Today, on this day of worldwide celebration and of thanksgiving to the Almighty God, who has blessed us with victory over Germany, I'm happy and proud to render to the American people the accounting of their ninth United States Army. It has been a great pleasure and a greater honor to command the Ninth Army, for it has a distinguished record, thought about by the outstanding characteristics of leadership, resourcefulness, daring, enthusiasm, and courage of the American soldier. 
From the days of our first action in the British Brittany Peninsula of France to the final defeat of the German Wehrmacht, all our operations have been characterized by intelligent planning and preparation, brilliant and daring execution, and inevitable victory. The 9th U.S. Army first took its place alongside of the other great American and allied armies on September 5, 1944, when it was given the mission of reducing the fortress press in western France. That mission was accomplished in 14 days. The 9th U.S. Army then moved east and joined the other armies facing Germany on October 2nd, 1944, when we took up positions between the 1st and 3rd Armies along the Siegfried Line from Luxembourg City to St. Fifth, Belgium. Here we remained on an active defensive role, roping the enemy lines for weak spots and building up supplies to carry us on deeper into Germany. The period from November 28, 1944 to February 23, 1945 found the 9th Army resting on the banks of the swollen and potentially dangerous Ruhr River. It was during this period that the ill-fated German counteroffensive in the Ardennes Forest was met and defeated. Many troops had to be dispatched from the 9th Army front to the Ardennes, and in a large measure they contributed to the crushing German defeat. It was also during this period that the 9th Army came under the command of Field Marshal Montgomery's 21st Army Group. During the time that we served under this able commander, it again became evident that nothing but the closest cooperation and deepest admiration existed between American and British forces. The final drive to victory was begun on February 23, 1945, when the powerful 9th Army crashed out of its Ruhr River positions, won its bridgehead, and turned northeast toward the Rhine River and the industrial area of the Ruhr Valley. In just eight days, the 9th Army moved from the Ruhr to the Rhine, covering 75 miles and capturing nearly 30,000 prisoners, pausing only long enough to regroup forces and build up supplies. The 9th Army again struck at the German armies when on March 24th, we crossed the Rhine River. In 19 days, we had advanced 225 miles and secured a bridgehead over the Elbe River, 65 miles short of Berlin. The end you know. Germany has been defeated, and the Ninth Army has played an important role in contributing to that defeat. To the men of the Ninth Army, I again extend my sincerest congratulations and thanks for a job that has been well done and which, in truth, was in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service. To the American people, I say that even though victory has been won in Europe, we will not rest until Japan has been defeated, and should the Ninth Army be ordered into action in the Pacific Theater, that we are ready to carry on and help bring a final and lasting peace to the world. Thank you, General Simpson. On the far northern flank of all Allied operations in France, in Belgium, in Holland, and in Germany, the 1st Canadian Army has driven to its objectives in spite of heavy opposition and difficult terrain. Here is its commander, General H.D.G. Creerar, with his VE Day message to the United States and to our Canadian allies across the border. General Creerar. Victory Day, at long last, has arrived. 
The business we Canadians came over here to do is virtually finished. There will yet be quite a lot of tidying up to complete. But the military might of Hitler's Germany is a horror of the past. The world, definitely, has been delivered from domination by Hitler and his pack of gangsters. And in this prolonged and bitter struggle, now crowned with victory, the Army of Canada has played a sterling part. Canadians are entitled to be very proud of their soldiers. I am certainly proud beyond words to count myself one of them. It has been a great inspiration and a great challenge to one's own capacities to be a commander of such men. I have never met a Canadian commanding officer who has regarded his responsibilities otherwise. The very best that one has been able to give them has never been as complete as one would have wished. Yet, that compelling urge to be fully worthy of those responsibilities has shown itself during all our operations in the outstanding conduct of Canadian commanders, senior and junior, brigadier and lieutenant colonel, sergeant and corporal. They have led their men in battle they have never spared themselves. Also, they have paid the full price, knowing beforehand that whatever it might be, it would be worth the payment. We have reached the time when the great and gallant company, which has formed the first Canadian army, is about dissolve by groups and by units with anticipation and joy in their hearts tempered by the memories of the friends they have lost the Canadians who have survived will be returning home to Canada I believe that the future of Canada rests in their hands it will be a grand future should they be given the opportunity in peace to prove and practice the admirable characteristics they have demonstrated in war. Thank you, General Crerar. Lieutenant General Alexander M. Patch, a veteran of operations on Guadalcanal and in New Caledonia, assumed command of the United States 7th Army in Italy and led his troops during the invasion of southern France and on into Germany. General Patch. As we rejoice together over the accomplished fact of victory in Europe, it is fitting that we pause a moment to consider the fallen thousands who have laid down their lives to bring about this triumphant day. They gave all they had. Let us hope that the peace to come will justify their sacrifice. For the survivors, 
what spoken message could express the deep sense of thanksgiving and satisfaction which all of us must feel to have had some part, however small, in this titanic campaign now crowned with victory. Few men of the Seventh Army have pursued the Germans through Africa, Sicily, Italy, France, and finally to this inner stronghold. Some of you came over the beaches of Normandy to join your brothers in arms from the south. The sun has not always shone upon you. Indeed, there have been bitter moments, but you have bravely persevered, and you have won. The courage and the ability of the American citizen under arms needed no proof. You have been true to his most glorious tradition. Challenged by the Nazi braggart, you dropped your peaceful pursuits and beat him magnificently at his own bloody game. You have met him with the weapons of his own choosing, and you have laid him low, finally and completely. I congratulate you and commend you to the American people as worthy of their highest gratitude. Our triumph would be complete were it not for our realization at this moment of well-earned rejoicing that the world struggle is not yet won. In the Pacific, Americans and their allies are still locked in combat with Japan. It may be a long time before the evil aggressor of Pearl Harbor has been forced back to his dragon's lair and slain for good. Until that day, real peace for Americans will not be possible. The struggle in the Far East permits no relaxation of our nation's effort, military, naval, or civilian. In this regard, the men of the 7th Army, and I say this with the utmost confidence, will know their duty. Thank you, General Pack. Lieutenant General Leonard T. Giroux commanded the 29th Division before D-Day, the 5th Corps of the 1st Army during the invasion and the Battle of Normandy, and afterwards became the commanding general of the United States 15th Army. General Giroux. In 1942, the decision was made to forge a steel ring of Allied bayonets around the boundaries of the Nazi slave empire, and then to contract that ring until the military might of Germany was strangled. With the landing of the Allied forces in Normandy, the segments of the ring were complete. Now only remained the task of tightening the band to complete the first phase of the obliteration of Nazism, the destruction of the German military machine. Today we thank God that this first phase has been accomplished and that the German Army, Navy, and Air Force are no longer a menace to the world. We are justly proud of this victory, made possible by the skill, heroism, and unselfishness of the American soldier, both men and women, and their comrades in the armies of our allies. In our day of triumph, we pause and pay tribute to those who gave their lives that liberty might live. The 15th Army, which I have the honor to command, is a new army. It assumed an operational role too late to play a major part in the destruction of the German armies. It is made up, however, of men who fought gallantly with other armies early in the war. Serving with me are veterans of Africa, Italy, the Normandy, Be Normandy beaches, and the battlefields of France, Belgium, and Luxembourg. They knew the bloody battle of Hecken Forest the bleak winter in the Siegfried Line, and a desperate Ardennes struggle when Hitler made what we now know was Germany's last effort to win. I am proud of their accomplishments, 
to these veterans and to the newest soldiers who were not with us only because they were called up later. I say congratulations on a job well done, but only half finished. There are still uncompleted tasks ahead. German military power has been destroyed, but Nazism remains to be stamped out. For some of us, there's a job of occupation to be done, Nazi criminals to be brought to justice, and enemy population to be retrained for future life in a civilized world. For others, there will be new battlefields in the Pacific area. We are justified in pausing deeply today in recognition of our victory. But we must pause only and not stop. Japan, the arch criminal of the East, is still oppressing and enslaving peace-loving people, still torturing our prisoners, and still attempting to destroy the freedom for which we stand. Ahead of us lies the grim necessity of completing the overthrow of this remaining enemy, an enemy fully as ruthless and treacherous as the foe we have just conquered. We hope the job will not take long. The qualities of our fighting men, the all-out support of a united home front, and an abiding faith in God have brought us far. We must not stop now. The day of rest will come when Nazism has been stamped out and Japan meets the same fate as Germany. Then, and only then, can we say well done to a finished task and resume our normal lives in a safe and peaceful world. Thank you, General Giroux. From the European Theater of Operations, we return you to the United States. During the past 25 minutes in this broadcast from headquarters, we've heard from Generals Patton, Simpson, Brereton, Hodges, Patch, and Giroux, who command the American armies in Western Europe, and from General Crerar, the commander of the Canadian First Army. In just a moment, CBS correspondents attending the San Francisco conference will report the VE Day reaction there. And our reporters overseas will be heard from the fighting fronts where the war against Japan goes on with utmost determination despite the end of hostilities in Europe. At 12.15 Eastern Wartime, CBS World News will take its microphones into large cities and small towns from coast to coast to hear how the average citizen here at home is reacting to VE Day. And at 1 o'clock... Eastern Wartime, in a special five-star program, we will hear from Generals Marshall, Eisenhower, MacArthur, and Arnold, and from Admirals King, Leahy, and Nimitz. This broadcast has come to you from CBS World News. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. We've had a break in the weather. Today is a sleepy, warm spring day, the first we've seen in several weeks. And weather to the men who have gone through a cold winter and a cold, rainy spring is the biggest boon to their personal lives. Today is a day of relaxation. Besides that, this all comes as some kind of an anticlimax. The news of the big surrender started leaking out, being whispered around early yesterday. Then the radio news programs brought a certain amount of confirmation. So VE Day has come to this headquarters in easy stages. General Bradley was awakened in the early dawn of yesterday by a telephone call from his chief, General Eisenhower. Brad, the chief asked. Yes, Bradley answered. Well, I've put it over, Ike went on. The surrender will be effective one minute after midnight on Tuesday night. They talked a few minutes longer, then General Bradley started his calls to his four army commanders. Because Patton's third army was advancing in an attack through Austria and Czechoslovakia, he was the first to be notified. Get word to all your units, he was told, and stop them in place. No sense in taking casualties, 
now that it's over. And so it went on through the early morning. The news spread through this command. It was all over. By the time of our morning briefing, General Bradley was beaming, waiting to tell us correspondence the good news. At first, we understood ZE Day would be celebrated tomorrow, Wednesday. The calendar over General Bradley's war maps was marked ahead to that date. It read, today is May 9, D plus 336. That's the way time has been reckoned over here ever since the historic D-Day, June 6, Normandy landing. May 9 carried special significance for General Bradley, for it was on that day, 1943, just two years ago, that he accepted his first big wholesale surrender from the Germans. It was in North Africa. The general then commanded the Second Corps, consisting of five American divisions. The surrender then was from the crack German troops making up the Africa Corps in northern Tunisia. The surrender this time was to his former army. Probably the nearest thing to a celebration is the assembly we have here in our press camp. Officers and men representing these four armies. Men who have had some special part in the successful operations of the past. We'll hear from some of them in a later program. But right here with me is Sergeant Joseph A. Delisio of 1097 Longwood Avenue, Bronx, New York. He's from A Company, 27th Armored Infantry of the 9th Armored Division. One of the first men to seize and cross the Remagen Bridge across the Rhine. Sergeant, we're certainly glad to have you with us here to help celebrate this great day. I suppose you realize you were called in here because you're part in one of the great events that helped hurry up this DE Day. Supposing you tell us about your part in it. Well, I'm proudest of capturing the German lieutenant who was supposed to blow up the bridge. We had killed two of his men when I called for the rest of the surrender. He came out saying, me engineer, bridge, boom. I also think I started that crossing by accident, or luck, or something. When Sergeant David, the first one across, was asking for me, and I was busy cleaning out two machine gunners from the protecting tower, my men said I had gone across. Sergeant Dravik shouted, if Delicio's over there, he's by himself. Let's go over and help him out. He found himself the first one over, and it turned out then I had to go over and help him out. Well, Sergeant, that was one of the big stars of the war, as you know. Now, how do you feel about this VE day? Well, I haven't much I haven't had much time to think about it, but I'm certainly glad it's over. I can hardly believe it. It's like hearing of someone very close to you that has gotten it, has been killed. You can't believe it, and yet you have to realize that it's true. After seven months of living in, in, in foxholes, in rain, mud, snow, and cold, and waiting for someone to come along and tell you we're going to attack again, we're jumping off, and wondering if this is going to be your last time. Well, I just can't explain my feelings. Well, I can easily believe that, Sergeant Delicio. But it is all over, and now I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay here at this headquarters with us. It's V.E. Day, I'll remind you again. This is Bill Siddell at General Bradley's headquarters, and now back to CBS in New York. From General Bradley's headquarters, we switch now to the American Ninth Army front, Bill Slocum, Jr., reporting. With tired and heroic men of the Ninth United States Army took the end of this portion of their war firmly and soberly. Many a quart of cognac and many a gallon of wine went struggling down the throats of the Ninth Army Corps, the three boys who became men overnight were drinking toast. Toast to the long line of graves, 
stretch from our real areas to dress on the French coast. I had the privilege of telling dozens of soldiers that the war was over. All of them grinned wryly at me and informed me that they'd heard that junk before. When I convinced them, they just laughed, shook hands among themselves, and one of them said to me, Mister, I wish you'd told us that a year ago. Another outfit heard the news, and one of the boys hit the note that drew immediate agreement from all the rest. He said, gee, that's great. The folks back home will be pleased. Last night, they sat around their tents and dark and talked it over. They talked of many things, of you at home, of those days around Bastonia. And every so often, somebody say, flatly and without much emotion, too bad Joe ain't here. He'd have got a big kick out of it. A large house of yours would answer, and then we'll be back in the small Bastonia, or with that gal in Brooklyn or Kenosha, or drinking that whole quart of milk they all want so much. I've tried to give you a picture of the American Ninth Army in this moment of triumph. It's not an easy job, because there's an awful lot of Ninth Army. But if it were to be sitting in that class, it would be something like this. The Ninth helped lift the jury. It did a great job, and it's proud of itself. It hopes the folks back home appreciate the job, and it hopes they're happy today. The Ninth also hopes pain and death and lonesomeness has been worthwhile. This is Bill Slocum, Jr. with the Ninth Army in Germany. I return you now to CBS in New York. That was the Ninth Army. Next to Third Army headquarters, Larry Lasser reporting. When the ceasefire came, there was little sign of jubilation among the frontline combat troops or officers. Just a general relaxation and a change from the grim tension learned in months of time-up to easy American smiles and wisecracks. They really haven't changed very much, these American soldiers. They're proving very adaptable to peace. And besides, they're a lucky one in what they call Frater Slovakia. I have just returned from Czechoslovakia, where the American army pushed farthest to the east before the ceasefire reached them. The 4th Armored Division comes into the land Hitler first conquered through the mile-high mountain ring of Bohemia. And the 90th Division Doughboys and the 4th Armored Spearheads yesterday met stubborn resistance from a German officer's training camp fighting in the clouds that draped the Bohemian hills. But we knew when we crossed the German city into Bohemia, not from maps, but by the cheers of the Czech people. It was the greatest liberation greeting since we left France. They're not as volatile as the French, these dark, square-chinned Czechs with their wide-set, intelligent eyes. But they are people of great enthusiasm. They greeted us with victory arches constructed of laurel and evergreen, with signs that said, Victory to the Americans. And the girls in native costume waited for our trunks with large trays of cakes and sandwiches. They didn't ask the Americans for cigarettes or chocolate. These proud and hospitable Czechs gave us gifts. It wasn't much. Just a piece of But they symbolized an appreciative, generous people. The liberated Czechs were busy wiping out the last traces of German occupation, painting over the German names given to their villages and they were bringing in prisoners by the score. When the news of the ceasefire came, the Third Army was marching towards the besieged city of Prague. But as I said, all forward movement stopped. Stopped while the Prague radio was still imploring the Allies for aid. The Czechs ordered a mass rising of their army, and Czech soldiers took their uniforms out of mothballs and began to march on Prague themselves to relieve their capital from the surrounding SS troops. 
But it's all concerning the movements of the Czech Patriot stuff. They learned that the SS troops had ceased fire against Prague, too. And this is Larry Lasso returning you now to New York. We've heard now from the Third Army, and next we switch to Paris, Charles Collingwood reporting. Paris victory celebrations are in full swing. They aren't yet, and they may not be very riotous and hysterical, but they're going on. They're not, for instance, as fervent and automatic as the scenes which followed the liberation of Paris. But for the first time since the liberation, there's a real sense of happiness and well-being abroad in the city. The people of Paris are physically too tired and emotionally too exhausted to throw themselves into the wild and uproarious celebration one might have expected. Only the young people right now are really taking advantage of the situation. They're marching up and down the boulevards, singing and dancing and waving flags. They're the only ones, with the soldiers here, the American soldiers, with enough energy left to do justice to the occasion. And they make a fine and happy sight as they parade through the city making their holiday. What it'll be like tonight is hard to say, because Paris is a nighttime town. She gives her best performances by night. And when this evening the city is lit up for the first time in years, Paris may go wild. But today, most people are content just to stroll in the sunshine and feel good. There is nothing glum or unhappy about Paris today. On the contrary, it never looked more beautiful and felt more glamorous. It's just that people are so tired and so glad they want to enjoy their peace in peace. For them, as for us, the war is over. This war in Europe, anyway. And looking back on it, you think of many things. Like the first time you were seized with the awful certainty that you were going to die. And then the way you felt when you discovered that you were not, which is very much like the way one feels now. You think of London under the Blitz, when the sky itself seemed to burn, and the noise of the German bombers, and the sound of people's footsteps running. The day we hit the beaches of Normandy with the 88s coming in and the pieces of things floating in the water offshore. The way Algiers Harbor looked when we sailed in on the blue water with the city rising up white on the hills around. You remember, too, the long, cold, muddy days when nothing went right and men were killed all around and nobody got anywhere. Then there were the days of liberation with the sun shining and people crying and throwing flowers and reaching out to touch you. And sooner or later, you think of the beginning of the war and the way it was then, September 1939. Or maybe it didn't begin then, maybe it began in Spain or in China. But for this correspondent, it began in London in September 1939. We didn't know what war was then. You could buy anything you wanted in the stores. Your job wasn't any different than what it was before. Except for those who went into the army, it was just that someone had said there was a war. Everyone thought they could imagine then what it would be like. When the first false air raid sounded in London, everyone crowded into the shelters and had hysterical wardens shouting in their ears to put that cigarette out. Do you want us all to get killed? And then now, there's that final scene in the map room of the school building Supreme Headquarters in Reims. I stood in the back and watched the German plenipotentiary, Colonel General Yodel, sign the paper that meant it was all over. There they sat around the battered old table that you wouldn't have in your kitchen. And what they were doing was ending it all. In itself, it wasn't a very impressive scene. No fanfares, no production. Everyone did their best to act in a matter-of-fact way. It wasn't the scene itself that made you hold your breath. It was the occasion. It was what it meant. 
It was the sense that this was the end which sent your mind racing back across all those years that seemed like months and those months that seemed like years, back to when it began and then through again all the things that had happened. We've come a long way since then. We've learned what war is. We've learned what it takes and how to fight it. We Americans had more to learn and learned it faster than anyone else. When we came to North Africa, our first overseas campaign in the West, we were an army of rank amateurs. We didn't know the first thing about war. It almost seemed as though we didn't want to learn. We learned, though, and in learning, we changed the whole character of modern war. It was a completely different kind of war when it ended than it was when it began. And it was American ideas and techniques as much as anything that changed it. But the war taught us other things as well as the soldier's trade, things that it would be well to remember. It taught us, first of all, that we couldn't do it alone, that we couldn't separate our effort from the rest. It taught us, too, that an alliance, a partnership of nations can work. Nations can work together as long as both sides want to enough. And perhaps, most of all, the war taught us, or should have taught us, that you can't buy out of unpleasant things with money or production or inventions or anything. The only response to the basic problems which confront our nation can be faith and sacrifice and cooperation. We have to meet our problems honestly and do what must be done. If the war has taught us that, it has not been in vain. We've had a break in the weather. Today is a sleepy, warm spring day, the first we've seen in several weeks. And weather to the men who have gone through a cold winter and a cold rainy spring is the biggest boon to their personal lives. Today is a day of relaxation. Besides that, this all comes as some kind of an anticlimax. The news of the big surrender started leaking out, being whispered around early yesterday. Then the radio news programs brought a certain amount of confirmation. So VE Day has come to this headquarters in easy stages. General Bradley was awakened in the early dawn of yesterday by a telephone call from his chief, General Eisenhower. Brad, the chief asked. Yes, Bradley answered. Well, I've put it over, Ike went on. The surrender will be effective one minute after midnight on Tuesday night. They talked a few minutes longer. Then General Bradley started his calls to his four army commanders. Because Patton's Third Army was advancing in an attack through Austria and Czechoslovakia, he was the first to be notified. Get word to all your units, he was told, and stop them in place. No sense in taking casualties now that it's over. And so it went on through the early morning. The news spread through this command. It was all over. By the time of our morning briefing, General Bradley was beaming, waiting to tell us correspondence the good news. At first, we understood VE Day would be celebrated tomorrow, Wednesday. The calendar over General Bradley's war maps was marked ahead to that date. It read, today is May 9, D plus 336. That's the way time has been reckoned over here ever since the historic D-Day, June 6, Normandy landing. May 9 carried special significance for General Bradley, for it was on that day, 1943, just two years ago, that he accepted his first big wholesale surrender from the Germans. It was in North Africa. The general then commanded the Second Corps, consisting of five American divisions. The surrender then was from the crack German troops making up the Africa Corps in northern Tunisia. The surrender this time was to his third army. 
Probably the nearest thing to a celebration is the assembly we have here in our Prince camp. Officers and men representing these four armies. Men who have had some special part in the successful operations of the past. We'll hear from some of them in a later program. The right here with me is Sergeant Joseph A. Delicio of 1097 Longwood Avenue, Bronx, New York. He's from A Company, 27th Armored Infantry of the 9th Armored Division. One of the first men to seize and cross the Remagen Bridge across the line. Sergeant, we're certainly glad to have you with us here to help celebrate this great day. I suppose you realize you were called in here because you're part in one of the great events that helped hurry up this DE Day. Supposing you tell us about your part in it. Well, I'm proudest of capturing the German lieutenant who was supposed to blow up the bridge. We had killed two of his men when I called for the rest to surrender. He came out saying, me engineer, bridge, boom. I also think I started that crossing by accident, or luck, or something. For when Sergeant Zavik, the first one across, was asking for me, and I was busy cleaning out two machine gunners from the protecting tower, my men said I had gone across. Sergeant Dravik shouted, if Delicio's over there, he's by himself. Let's go over and help him out. He found himself the first one over, and it turned out then I had to go over and help him out. Well, Sergeant, that was one of the big stars of the war, as you know. Now, how do you feel about this VE day? Well, I haven't, much, I haven't had much time to think about it, but I'm certainly glad it's over. I can hardly believe it. It's like hearing of someone very close to you that has gotten it has been killed. You can't believe it, and yet you have to realize that it's true. After seven months of living in, in, in foxholes, in rain, mud, snow, and cold, and waiting for someone to come along and tell you we're going to attack again, we're jumping off, and wondering if this is going to be your last time. Well, I just can't explain my feelings. Well, I can easily believe that, Sergeant Delicio. But it is all over, and now I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay here at this headquarters with us. It's VE Day, I'll remind you again. This is Bill Siddell at General Bradley's headquarters, and now back to CBS in New York. From General Bradley's headquarters, we switch now to the American Ninth Army front, Bill Slocum, Jr. reporting. The tired and heroic men of the Ninth United States Army took the end of this portion of their war firmly and soberly. Many a quart of cognac and many a gallon of wine went struggling down the throats of the Ninth Army soldiers. The three boys who became men overnight were drinking toast. Toast to the long line of graves which stretched from our rear areas to Brest and the French coast. I had the privilege of telling dozens of soldiers that the war was over. All of them grinned wryly at me and informed me that they'd heard that junk before. When I convinced them, they just laughed, shook hands among themselves, and one of them said to me, Mister, I wish you'd told us that a year ago. Another outfit heard the news, and one of the boys hit the note that drew immediate agreement from all the rest. He said, gee, that's great. The folks back home will be pleased. Last night, they sat around their tents and barracks and talked it over. They talked of many things, of you at home, of those days around Bastonia. And every so often, somebody say, flatly and without much emotion, too bad Joe ain't here. He'd have got a big kick out of it. A large chorus of yards would answer, and then we'll be back in the smell of Bastonia, or with that gal in Brooklyn or Kenosha, or drinking that whole quart of milk they all want so much. 
I tried to give you a picture of the American Ninth Army in this moment of triumph. It's not an easy job, because there's an awful lot of Ninth Army. But if it were to be sitting in that class, it would be something like this. The Ninth outflicted Jerry. It did a great job, and it's proud of itself. It hopes the folks back home appreciate the job, and it hopes they're happy today. The Ninth also hopes and death and lonesomeness has been worthwhile. This is Bill Slocum, Jr. with the Ninth Army in Germany. I return you now to CBS in New York. That was the Ninth Army. Next to Third Army headquarters, Larry Lasser reporting. When the ceasefire came, there was little sign of jubilation among the frontline combat troops or officers. Just a general relaxation and a change from the grim tension learned in months of combat to easy American smiles and wisecracks. They really haven't changed very much, these American soldiers. They're proving very adaptable to peace. And besides, they're a lucky one in what they call Frater Slovakia. I have just returned from Czechoslovakia, where the American army pushed farthest to the east before the ceasefire reached them. The 4th Armored Division plunged into the land Hitler first conquered through the mile-high mountain ring of Bohemia. And the 90th Division Doughboys and the 4th Armored Spearheads yesterday met stubborn resistance from a German officer's training camp fighting in the clouds that draped the Bohemian hills. But we knew when we crossed the German city to Bohemia, not from maps, but by the cheers of the Czech people. It was the greatest liberation greeting since we left France. They're not as volatile as the French, these dark, square-chinned Czechs with their wide-set, intelligent eyes. But they are people of great enthusiasm. They greeted us with victory arches constructed of laurel and evergreen, with signs that said, Victory to the Americans. And the girls in native costume waited for our trunks with large trays of cakes and sandwiches. They didn't ask the Americans for cigarettes or chocolate. These proud and hospitable Czechs gave us gifts. It wasn't much. Just a but they symbolize an appreciative, generous people. The liberated Czechs were busy wiping out the last traces of German occupation, painting over the German names given to their villages, and they were bringing in prisoners by the score. When the news of the ceasefire came, the Third Army was marching towards the besieged city of Prague. But as I said, all forward movement stopped. Stopped while the Prague radio was still imploring the Allies for aid. The Czechs ordered a mass rising of their army, and Czech soldiers took their uniforms out of mothballs and began to march on Prague themselves to relieve their capital from the surrounding SS troops. But at dawn this morning, the movements of the Czech patriots stopped. They learned that the SS troops had ceased fire against Prague, too. And this is Larry Lasseur returning you now to New York. We've heard now from the Third Army, and next we switch to Paris... Charles Collingwood reporting. Paris victory celebrations are in full swing. They aren't yet, and they may not be very riotous and hysterical, but they're going on. They're not, for instance, as fervent and automatic as the scenes which followed the liberation of Paris. But for the first time since the liberation, there's a real sense of happiness and well-being abroad in the city. The people of Paris are physically too tired and emotionally too exhausted to throw themselves into the wild and uproarious celebration one might have expected. Only the young people right now are really taking advantage of the situation. They're marching up and down the boulevards, singing and dancing and waving flags. They're the only ones, with the soldiers here, the American soldiers, with enough energy left to do justice to the occasion. 
and they make a fine and happy sight as they parade through the city making their holiday. What it'll be like tonight is hard to say, because Paris is a nighttime town. She gives her best performances by night. And when this evening the city is lit up for the first time in years, Paris may go wild. But today, most people are content just to stroll in the sunshine and feel good. There is nothing glum or unhappy about Paris today. On the contrary, it never looked more beautiful and felt more glamorous. It's just that people are so tired and so glad they want to enjoy their peace in peace. For them, as for us, the war is over. This war in Europe, anyway. And looking back on it, you think of many things. Like the first time you were seized with the awful certainty that you were going to die. And then the way you felt when you discovered that you were not, which is very much like the way one feels now. You think of London under the Blitz, when the sky itself seemed to burn, and the noise of the German bombers, and the sound of people's footsteps running. The day we hit the beaches of Normandy with the 88s coming in and the pieces of things floating in the water offshore. The way Algiers Harbor looked when we sailed in on the blue water with the city rising up white on the hills around. You remember, too, the long, cold, muddy days when nothing went right and men were killed all around and nobody got anywhere. Then there were the days of liberation with the sun shining and people crying and throwing flowers and reaching out to touch you. And sooner or later, you think of the beginning of the war and the way it was then, September 1939. Or maybe it didn't begin then, maybe it began in Spain or in China. But for this correspondent, it began in London in September 1939. We didn't know what war was then. You could buy anything you wanted in the stores. Your job wasn't any different than what it was before. Except for those who went into the army, it was just that someone had said there was a war. Everyone thought they could imagine then what it would be like. When the first false air raid sounded in London, everyone crowded into the shelters and had hysterical wardens shouting in their ears to put that cigarette out. Do you want us all to get killed? And then now, there's that final scene in the map room of the school building Supreme Headquarters in Reims. I stood in the back and watched the German plenipotentiary, Colonel General Yodel, sign the paper that meant it was all over. There they sat around the battered old table that you wouldn't have in your kitchen. And what they were doing was ending it all. In itself, it wasn't a very impressive scene. No fanfares, no production. Everyone did their best to act in a matter-of-fact way. It wasn't the scene itself that made you hold your breath. It was the occasion. It was what it meant. It was the sense that this was the end which sent your mind racing back across all those years that seemed like months and those months that seemed like years, back to when it began and then through again all the things that had happened. We've come a long way since then. We've learned what war is. We've learned what it takes and how to fight it. We Americans had more to learn and learned it faster than anyone else. When we came to North Africa, our first overseas campaign in the West, we were an army of rank amateurs. We didn't know the first thing about war. It almost seemed as though we didn't want to learn. We learned, though, and in learning, we changed the whole character of modern war. It was a completely different kind of war when it ended than it was when it began. And it was American ideas and techniques as much as anything that changed it. But the war taught us other things as well as the soldiers' trade, things that it would be well to remember. It taught us, first of all, that we couldn't do it alone, that we couldn't separate our effort from the rest. It taught us, too, 
that an alliance, a partnership of nations can work. Nations can work together as long as both sides want to or not. And perhaps, most of all, the war taught us or should have taught us that you can't buy out of unpleasant things with money or production or inventions or anything. The only response to the basic problems which confront our nation can be faith and sacrifice and cooperation. We have to meet our problems honestly and do what must be done. If the war has taught us that, it has not been in vain. And now NBC in line with its full coverage of the momentous VE Day activities throughout the world. And now NBC in line with its full coverage of the momentous VE Day activities throughout the world brings you a special broadcast from Paris, a broadcast including the voices of the military leaders who planned and put into operation the strategy which brought Nazi Germany to its knees. In a moment you will hear Air Chief Sir Arthur Tedder, Field Marshal Montgomery, General Omar Bradley and General Devers. So for their voices, we take you now to Paris. This is the European Theater of Operations. Within the next few moments, you will hear messages from the Deputy Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, the Commanding Generals of the Army Group, and the Admirals commanding the fleets of the United Nations in European waters. First, Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur William Tedder, who has been Deputy Supreme Commander to General of the Army Eisenhower since the formation of the Allied Supreme Command in 1943. Air Chief Marshal Tedder. At this, at this, at this my homage to the great leader under whose guidance and inspiration I have served since February 1943. Genesis, Italy, Italy, Normandy, the liberation of Paris, the crossing of the Rhine, and the final overrunning of Germany, these are battle honors that few captains of history can equal. I know that all men and women of the United Nations are eager to understand the secret of these times. It is simply that General Eisenhower is the embodiment of the Allied team spirit which has given our fighting men that unity of purpose which is their strength. The soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the United Nations have defeated the Germans because they have learned how to fight and work together against the common enemy. And this lesson they learned from the example of their supreme commander. Today, naturally, we're thinking not only of past victories, but of future hopes. I would say only this. In Europe, the Nazi and fascist power has been destroyed. The same evil power under a different name still remains in the Eastern Seas. When that evil is as completely exterminated as Nazi power is today, then our major task begins. May God help us all to maintain the same spirit of unity and cooperation by which alone we can win the peace for which we have been fighting. 
I'd like to end on a more personal note. This has been every man's and every woman's war. Regardless of uniform, rank, or race, the men and women of the United Nations have each made their own contribution in blood and sweat to victory. Today is their day, your day. Well done, every one of you. Thank you, Air Chief Marshal Tedder. General Omar N. Bradley commanded the United States First Army on D-Day and led the American troops through the Battle of Normandy. He then became the commanding general of the 12th Army Group, now comprising the 1st, 3rd, 9th, and 15th Armies, and directed its operations through France and Belgium into the heart of Germany. General Bradley. When American troops forced the Normandy beaches on June the 6th, 1944, all United States ground forces were fighting under the command of the 1st United States Army. Within six weeks, with men and equipment pouring ashore, we had grown to a force twice the size of a normal army. On July 26, this massive 1st Army attacked from behind its hedgerows to tear a gaping hole in the strong side of the enemy. By August the 1st, its 17 divisions had fanned out into the plains of France we're heading to cut off breath and lay the noose for the Argentan Ballet Trap. And so, on August the 1st, we divided this huge American force into two armies, the 1st and the 3rd, with the 12th Army Group in command of both. It was a plan the group had been working on since the fall of 1943. In the nine months that followed, we have amassed two additional armies. Until today, the 12th Army Group comprises the 1st, 3rd, 9th, and 15th American Armies. It is the first wholly American group of armies to take the field in any war. It is the greatest accumulation of power and force in the nation's history. Our armies have speeded the liberation of France, Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg. They have fought 700 miles from the beaches to conquer half of Germany and join forces with the Russians. They have stabbed across the Czechoslovak border and into the hills of Austria. They have destroyed whole groups of German armies in the West, given hope to the peoples of Europe, and speeded the timetable for our war in the Pacific. The achievements of this group of American armies are monuments not only to the vitality and resourcefulness of the American people, but they are living evidence of the courage, the skill, and the bravery of those American soldiers who lie buried near the battlefields we have won. And those troops, tens of thousands of them, recuperating in our hospitals today. We have captured more than two million enemy prisoners, 350,000 in the rear pocket, and a million since we crossed the Rhine. Germany was defeated when her armies were destroyed. Virtually every German faced us in the original armies of the West has been killed, wounded, or taken a prisoner of war. At Argentan, the first army closed its trap to annihilate entire corps of the German army. It blocked enemy strength to the north, while our third army raced around the end and carved the enemy into prisoner pockets. Not until he reached his Siegfried line was the enemy able to recover from the terrifying cost of these battles.
When von Reinstead threw his three thick armies into the Ardennes, we smashed his armor, flung the remnants back, and broke through his great fortifications to overrun the Rhineman. Within a month, we had destroyed the German army destined to defend the Rhine, crowded our cages with another quarter of a million German troops. Without slackening our stride, we crossed the Rhine to encircle the Ruhr and trap the German army that had hoped to save the heartland. Pushing quickly to the east while also attacking to our rear, we bypassed his mountain stronghold and bagged another 50,000. During the month of March, we captured on an average of a German division a day. This was increased during April. Today, I wish to commend every man and officer in this group of American armies I have been privileged to command. No greater armies and no finer troops have fought anywhere under any flag. And I want to express my deep appreciation to General Hodges of the 1st Army, General Patton of the 3rd Army, General Simpson of the 9th Army, and to General Giroux of the 15th Army. We have worked closely together, shifting divisions and corps at will over a 400-mile front, and to give us complete flexibility and the power to concentrate anywhere at any time we chose. Germany is beaten completely and utterly beaten. The myth of her superiority has been buried with the German dead throughout the nations of Europe. But today, we must turn our effort to the same third defeat of Japan. There can be no let up, no slowdown, until the job is done. Only then shall we win the peace that will make this VE Day a day of hope and promise for all generations. Thank you, General Bradley. Field Marshal Sir Bernard Law Montgomery has commanded the 21st Army Group since its formation. British, Canadian, and American troops have served under him and his command has swept across Europe from Normandy to the Baltic on the northern flank of the Allied forces. During the last few years, what I have to say is very simple and quite short. I would ask you all to remember those of our comrades who fell in the struggle. They gave their lives that others might have freedom. And no man can do more than that. I believe that he would say to each one of them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we who remain have seen the thing through to the end. We all have a feeling of great joy and thankfulness that we have been preserved to see this day. We must remember to give the praise and thankfulness where it is due. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the early days of this war, the British Empire stood alone against the combined might of the Axis powers. And during those days, we suffered some great disasters. But we stood firm, on the defensive, but striking blows where we could. Later, we were joined by Russia and America. And from then onward, the end was in no doubt. Let us never forget what we owe to our Russian and American allies. This great allied team has achieved much in war. May it achieve even more in peace. Without doubt, great problems lie ahead. 
the world will not recover quickly from the upheaval that has taken place. There is much work for each one of us. I would say that we must face up to that work with the same fortitude that we faced up to the worst days of this war. It may be that some difficult times lie ahead for our country and for each one of us personally. If it happens thus, then our discipline will pull us through. But we must remember that the best discipline implies the subordination of self for the benefit of the community. It has been a privilege and an honor to command this great British Empire team in Western Europe. Few commanders can have had such loyal service as you have given me. I thank each one of you from the bottom of my heart. And so, let us embark on what lies ahead, full of joy and optimism. We have won the German war. Let us now win the peace. Good luck to you all, wherever you may be. Thank you, Field Marshal Montgomery. The commanding general of the 6th Army Group, General Jacob L. Devers, was chief of the armored force and commanding general of the European Theater of Operations before leading the United States 7th and the 1st French armies in the invasion of southern France last August. Since then, his troops have fought their way through the Vosges Mountains, across the Rhine, and cracked the last strong. Forty one forty two four five zero eight one five King Joe Enter Forty three forty Enter Three months have passed since I asked you to join with me in an act of thanksgiving for the defeat of Germany. We then rejoiced that peace had returned to Europe, but we knew that a strong and relentless enemy still remained to be conquered in Asia. No one could then tell how long or how heavy would prove the struggle that still awaited us. Japan has surrendered. So let us join in thanking Almighty God that war has ended throughout the world. We're back now in Piccadilly Circus, into a Piccadilly Circus which now, although it's after midnight here in London, is crowded as it's never been crowded before. There's literally now not a single place where you can get anybody else in. In fact, the trouble is to get people out because the fireworks are exploding in all directions, bonfires have been lighted, people are dancing on the rooftops, they're climbing up the sky signs opposite me. One sailor climbed the whole way up and down again, the terrific excitement of the crowd. And as for the noise of it, well, listen for yourselves to central London's VJ Raw. And all the time, people are trying vaguely to dance. Fantastic sight of this seething, jamming masses there. Girls wearing fancy dress hats and the men waving flags. People are actually trying to form rings to dance. But what a hope they've got. And now a girl 
got up on one of the roofs and started flag waving and the whole crowd are waving back and 43 VE Day Program 450508 WMPS Enter. This is VE Day. Today is the day of victory in Europe, the end of six years of cruel warfare, warfare which has cost the lives of millions of innocent people, warfare that's thrown the entire world into confusion, a war from which it is the fervent hope of every American will come a lasting peace. But today, although our troops and those of our fighting allies are victorious, the war is far from over. We still have the cruel and inhuman Japanese to deal with, and that's the purpose of this transcribed program, to remind you that we cannot let down. There is still a long way to go before the final day of complete victory all over the world. To impress on every American the fact that there is still a long road ahead of us until we get to that permanent peace, Let's turn back through the past few years of history to see the things that have happened to a world that was thrown into war by reckless, fanatical gangsters. Germany invades Poland September 1st, 1939. Then came a rapid series of conferences, Great Britain and France deciding whether or not they should back their treaties with Poland. And on September 3rd, 1939, Great Britain and France declared war on Germany. Of course, this wasn't the start of the war. This was merely the actual breaking out of hostilities in Europe. But in 1939, there was little thought of the terrible future of the war. That first fall and winter of war was what we call the phony war, remember? The French troops on the Maginot Line were confident that they were behind an impregnable fortress. And the people of France behind them worried little about the hostilities that were theoretically underway. There were little flare-ups now and then and border fighting, but nothing you could call serious. Then... <laughs> Germany invades Denmark April 9th, 1940. Invades Norway on the same day and the famed Blitzkrieg has finally begun to roll. But still the people of France and Britain and the rest of Europe and the people of the United States did not realize what was coming. In the United States, only a few of our far-sighted leaders were brave enough to point to the future and urge provisions for that future. Throughout Europe, everything's a matter of watchful waiting. And then... May 10th, 1940, the Netherlands invaded Belgium, hit by the terrific striking power which had been accumulated in Germany. People began to sit up and take notice, especially the people of France and Britain where the threat was greatest. The Blitzkrieg ground through Belgium and the Netherlands and into northern France. France changed her high command. France shifted her system of defense. There were hundreds of voices crying out on the right way to protect France. Nobody listened to the voice of Charles de Gaulle. As the mighty Wehrmacht ground onward and onward, panic struck at the hearts of the French, and the British and French trapped at Dunkirk made their dramatic escape from the shores of France under the fire of the German army. On June 10th, a vulture named Mussolini stopped circling high above the corpse and pounced down for his share by declaring war on France. And then on June 22nd of 1940... France signed an armistice with Germany in the forest of Compiègne. Yes, I was betrayed by my own children. Betrayed into weakness and vulnerability that cost me my honor and self-respect. But as long as I live, there shall be the hope and fire within me to provide the inspiration to my sons to once again 
makes France free and great. What was to happen next? A few miles from France stood the gallant British Isles, and according to all of the experts... Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, the news is bad tonight, and I believe that we can expect to see England invaded within the next few hours. Germany stands... How do you do? I was talking to my friend Twilliger Bottomley of the New York Flash a moment ago, and he told me that we could expect the invasion of Britain within the next week at the very latest. Now, I know this is bad. And all of the time in our own Congress, the argument was going on against making any provision for the future. <laughs> and I tell you that we cannot afford to violate our neutrality in any such manner. It is obvious to anyone with the smallest amount of education that the United States and the Americas are absolutely safe from any form of aggression by the Axis. There is no... Yes, it looked bad for Britain. The entire power of Europe was concentrated on the other side of the fence. Germany, Italy, Russia, bound by treaty. But Hitler hesitated. No one will ever know why he made the decision he did. After a brief period in which the greedy German war machine stopped to digest some of its spoils, a new branch of German power became dreadfully apparent. The German Air Force went into action. Night after night, huge loads of bombs came tumbling down on London and all of southern England. The pace of the bombing mounted until August of 1940. Here's a late bulletin just received in our newsroom. Observers on the southern coast of Britain report that 4,000 German planes have crossed the coastline since this morning. This is your Blue Network correspondent in London reporting on the latest raid by the Luftwaffe. I had a hard time getting to the studio tonight because of the fact that many of the streets in London are blocked by fires and huge masses of debris. The volunteer fire... The Royal Air Force was doing everything in its power to protect the population of Britain. Just a handful of planes manned by what's perhaps the most gallant group of men in the history of warfare. Men who flew as much as 18 and 20 hours out of the 24. Men of whom Winston Churchill said, Never have so many owed so much to so few. In one day, September 15, 1940, 187 German planes were downed by the Royal Air Force. Perhaps the Battle of Britain caused a change in the attitude of Congress. On September 16th, the Selective Service Act went to the desk of President Roosevelt, and he proclaimed October 16th as the registration date for all American men between 21 and 36. When Hitler realized that he wasn't going to succeed by bombing Britain, he paused while the war machine of Germany lay like a huge snake coiled for action. But our little fat friend, the vulture, decided that he wanted to be a conqueror. And on October 27th, Italian warplanes flew across the Albanian border and Mussolini sent an ultimatum to Greece. When Greece decided to stand up against it, the invasion of that country started. But then on April 6, 1941, Hitler went to the aid of his Italian comrade and invaded Greece. On the 23rd, an armistice was signed between the Axis forces and the Greek armies. On April 27th, the Axis powers seized Athens, and that ancient capital of democracy and liberal government went into an eclipse which was followed by three horrible years of starvation, tyranny, and murder. Here's a bulletin just received in our newsroom. It's dated May 10th, 1941. London has just suffered the worst air raid of the war. Lend-lease had finally gone into effect. And then, on May 21st... The American freighter Robin Moore has just been torpedoed by German submarines in the South Atlantic. June 16, 1941, the United States has ordered all German consulates in this country closed by July 10th. June 22nd. Germany has invaded Russia without a declaration of war or denunciation of the non-aggression pact of 1939. Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt pledged all possible aid to Russia. 
on July 7th, Marines of the United States forces invade Iceland, and President Roosevelt made his famous declaration extended to the Western Hemisphere as far as Iceland. August 14th, 1941, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill met at an undisclosed spot at sea and have promulgated the Atlantic Charter guaranteeing the four freedoms to all peoples of the world. September 22nd, a United States government ship carrying the flag of Panama sunk off Iceland. October 17th, the United States destroyer Kearney torpedoed off Iceland. November 4th, United States Navy tanker Salinas torpedoed off Iceland. On November 17th, President Roosevelt and Secretary of State Hull received the special Japanese envoys Saburo Kurusu and Admiral Nomura, who had made a special trip to the United States to maintain peace in the Far East. Russia was bearing the brunt of the land fighting and the Germans have captured Odessa and are marching closer and closer to Moscow. The avalanche marched on into Russia. In September, strange things began to happen. The German radio began to make statements like this. Today, no important gains are reported by the forces of the Fatherland because of the very bad weather we are encountering. The roads are terrible in heathen Russia. It is impossible. And then on October 3rd, Adolf Hitler came to the microphone and spoke these words. Russia is already broken and will never rise again. Despite the exultant claims of the Germans, the battle was far from finished. A ring of steel tightened around ancient Leningrad, birthplace of the revolution. And on October 7th, the Germans announced the beginning of the drive on Moscow. Like a great flood of green seawater, the hordes of Germans pressed forward. October 10th, the Russians are retreating. October 12th, the drive on Moscow holds the center of the stage. October 15th, the Russians admit a breakthrough west of Moscow. October 16th, the German high command places its forces within 62 miles of the Russian capital. October 19th, Joseph Stalin declares Moscow under siege. November 3rd, 1941, the German armies are 31 miles from Moscow, and then a strange thing happened. The German army stopped. Like a bulky old Model T, it stopped. The engine coughed and sputtered and stopped. Adolf put on a very straight face and said, Because of the winter, we will rest. The Russians counterattacked then and were aided by General Winter in driving the Germans away from Moscow. And on December 7th, 1941, in Washington, Saburo Kurusu and Admiral Nomura of the Imperial Japanese government went to the State Department to have a last-minute talk with Secretary of State Hull. While these envoys of peace were talking, the first bulletin was heard throughout the United States. Japanese warplanes have attacked Pearl Harbor. And all across the United States, there was a moment of dreadful shock and surprise, and then came the first reaction. Well, I'm kind of glad it finally got started. I figure it'll take us about a month to beat those dirty little sons of guns and get back to our peaceful work. Oh, I hope nothing's happened to Johnny. He's in the Philippines. You haven't heard anything of the Japs attacking down there, have you? Oh, shucks. It'll take our fleet just about 15 days to sail to Japan, about a day to fight, and 15 days more to sail back, and then it'll all be over. Secretary Hull said to these Japanese representatives, In all my 50 years of public service, I have never seen a document that was more crowded with infamous falsehoods and distortions. Infamous falsehoods and distortions on a scale so huge that I never imagined to this day but any government on this planet was capable of uttering them. After radio silence was clamped on the Hawaiian Islands, there was little that Americans knew of the real stature of the attack on Pearl Harbor until months later. Japan declared war against the United States and Great Britain on December 7th. When the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor, they killed 3,000 people. For days after that horrible morning, grief-stricken islanders buried their dead. 
On New Year's Day, Honolulu paid its respect in a memorial service. Six Hawaiian girls sang the slow, sweet strains of Aloha Oi as hundreds of people gathered along the sides of the trenches in which the dead were buried. Said Fleet Chaplain McGuire at that burial service, Let no one think that they died in vain. They manned their guns until the decks buckled under them from the heat. Not a whimper, not a moan. It was glorious. Don't say we buried our dead with sorrow. They died manfully. They were buried manfully. And we will avenge their deaths, come what may. On December 8th, the United States declared war on Japan. And on that day, the Japanese landed forces in Malaya and occupied Shanghai. On the 9th of December, they landed on Luzon. And on the 11th of December, Germany and Italy declared war against the United States. Congress, in joint session, declared war on Germany and Italy. And on January 2nd, 1942, Japanese land forces occupied Manila and the Cavite naval base in the bay. And from then, it became a march with time as the Japanese stepped forward in the South Pacific. January 3rd, 1942, Tokyo says Japanese forces have occupied the Malay state. January 31st, the British announced withdrawal from the mainland of Malaya to the island of Singapore. February 9th. Japanese landed at Gasmata on New Britain and in Papua. On the same day, Japanese planes attacked the city of Batavia. February 15th, the island and city of Singapore surrenders to the Japanese. February 23rd, as the president spoke to the nation, a Japanese submarine shells the California coast. March 5th, Tokyo announced that the Japanese forces in Java have occupied Batavia. March 9th, Japanese forces occupied Rangoon in Burma. March 13th, the Japs made landings in Buka and the Solomon Islands. March 27th, the Dutch island of Sumatra surrendered. April 8th, Cebu, capital of Cebu Island in the Philippines, was captured by the Japanese. April 9th, American and Filipino forces on Bataan surrendered to the Japanese. On April 18th, Brigadier General Jimmy Doolittle raided Tokyo in a daring attack that gave the Japanese a taste of what was to come. May 1st, 1942, Mandalay was evacuated by Chinese and British forces. May 6th, after six days of desperate last-minute fighting, Corregidor falls to the Japs. Lieutenant General Jonathan M. Wainwright surrenders his forces to the Japanese, and in Australia, General MacArthur vows that I shall return to the Philippines. The retreat was not yet over, but on May 8th, the United States won a victory in the Battle of the Carl Sea. On June 4th, Midway Island was attacked by the Japanese, and our Navy succeeded in driving them back although we lost the aircraft carrier Yorktown and the destroyer. And on June 7th, six months after Pearl Harbor, Japanese forces landed at Kiska in the Aleutian Islands. But lest we forget the war in the other part of the world, our allies were suffering in the European war. The British surrendered the Libyan port of Tobruk, and General Irwin Rommel was moving ahead to capture Egypt. On July 1st, a special German high command communique announced the fall of Sevastopol, which was considered the most powerful land and sea fortress in the world.
Sevastopol. I stood in the front lines along with the men, digging trenches, carrying food and ammunition. And I have killed many an invader, too. You see, we women of Russia are in the front lines of this war. I used to live in a peaceful little village near Kharkov, in the beautiful Donetsk Valley. I was happy there with my husband and my little boy. When the Germans came last fall, my husband went away to fight them. They killed my little baby. Killed him like he was a soldier. When my child died in my arms, he looked so bewildered. He was just a year old. He couldn't talk. He couldn't understand the pain and agony that he went through. Later, I heard that my husband had been shot. Shot as a spy because he was fighting for the country that he loved. So I am the only one left to fight. I fight on because I love Mother Russia and I want to avenge my man, my baby. I'm fighting so other people can live happily. I am fighting for my Russia. the Russians, the British, and the Americans were fighting on in the middle of 1942, fighting with their backs to the wall. July 1st, 1942, a special communique from the German High Command announced that General Rommel's forces have captured El Alamein, the last British fortification on the way to Alexandria. Japanese forces have landed at Buna on New Guinea. July 27th, Moscow announced the evacuation of Rostov. On August 7th, 1942, our first counterattack began. The United States began the attack at Guadalcanal in the Tulagi area of the Solomons, and on August 8th, Guadalcanal airfield was occupied. August 19th, British, American, Canadian, and French forces made a raid on Dieppe on the Channel Coast. The War Department announced that the United States Army, Navy, and Air Forces had started landing operations at numerous points on the shore of North Africa. General Dwight D. Eisenhower is Commander-in-Chief of the Allied Forces. November 12th to 15th, there was a great sea battle in the Solomons area with the Japanese taking another licking. The United Nations were turning back to march down the road toward victory. The ground fighting moved slowly. In the North African area, as American troops got their first taste of battle. But slowly, they captured the entire North African area. Leningrad was liberated by the Russians on January 18th. And on January 23rd, British troops entered Tripoli. On January 24, 1943, the world was electrified by the announcement from Casablanca in Morocco that President Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Churchill had made plans for a campaign to compel unconditional surrender by Germany, Italy, and Japan. The deepest penetration of Russia was climaxed by the Battle of Stalingrad. And on February 2nd, Marshal Stalin announced the surrender of the German garrison fighting for Stalingrad, and the Russian army started paving the road back to the German frontiers once again. On April 28, 1943, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, in a telegram to the Secretary of the Treasury, revealed that the Japanese had massacred every man, woman, and child in the areas in which Major Doolittle's flyers had had to make forced landings after their raid on Tokyo. While the battle tides were flowing back toward victory for the Allied nations, the people of the home front swung into action to ensure victory. 
I work at the Fisher Mathis Aircraft Plant. I'm building parts for planes, which are used in the battle areas. Of course, it's kind of hard to get used to working, but my husband is in the Pacific, and I feel that I should be doing something. You know, it's not so hard to get used to working in these war plants these days. They teach you everything that you could possibly need to know for building the weapons. I'm one of the volunteer workers for the Red Cross. Here in Memphis, we have two service canteens where we feed servicemen at the new Fort Ferrying Command Field. And we meet trains coming in at the railroad stations. Out here at Cordova, we make ammunition. A lot of folks think it's a dangerous job, but when proper precautions are taken, there's nothing to it. I have a man taking care of The USO canteen at Grand Central Station takes a great part of my time. We're beginning to see boys there who've been in action overseas. They're so glad to get back home that you don't mind working all kinds of odd hours to supply them with whatever their requests may be. We have some time. I'm a Memphis businessman. Memphis has more business and people are spending more money than at any time in the history of the town. Just like it is all over the country. Hard to get a place to live and hard to buy all the things you need. But people are taking it seriously. I'm just an ordinary housewife of Memphis. My son was killed in fighting on Guadalcanal. There's not much that I can do. I have a large house to take care of, and my husband works at the Army Depot. But I found out that I could donate my blood to the local... Yes, everywhere in Memphis and the whole United States, the people were beginning to get in stride. General von Hindenburg of the old German Empire said after World War I that it wasn't American fighting men, but America's productive power that beat the Germans in that war. Once again, the great productive power of the United States was making itself felt throughout the world. Reports started flowing in like this. 2,000 planes completed last month. Ammunition production up 35% for last month. 250 more ships launched by Navy and Merchant Marine during the past month. Ordnance production up 27%. More tanks were produced each last month than in any other month in the history of the United States. Yes, the United States was swinging into action, producing the largest flow of these vital weapons of war that had ever been seen on the face of this earth. Producing these weapons for our own fighting forces and supplying them to the forces of our allies. Victory began to appear on the horizon. Sicily was taken by Allied forces. On September 3rd, a military armistice was signed with Italy by representatives of the Badoglio administration to be effective on September 8th. But the fighting in Italy continued as the Germans dug in to inflict some of the heaviest losses of the war on Allied troops at Anzio. In the Pacific, General MacArthur moved ahead, landing in New Guinea. And on October 1st, British tanks entered Naples to capture that huge Italian seaport. On October 13th, Italy made a complete about-face, declaring war on Germany. The battles continued. Slowly, the Russian armies moved ahead, always facing to the west. And the German radio kept reporting strategic withdrawals by the German forces. Advances were made in the South Pacific area, and the fighting in Italy continued to be costly and slow. December 1st, President Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Churchill, and Soviet Premier Stalin jointly announced that in a conference at Tehran, they had shaped and confirmed our common policy for the destruction of the German forces and the peace which will banish the terror and scourge of war for many generations. And as January of 1944 started, the Allied armies all over the world began moving forward step by step. On the Russian front, the great cities of the Ukraine and the northwestern part of Russia came again into the hands of the Russian armies. In Italy, the battles continued up the midsection of the Italian boot. In the Pacific, short steps were being taken in the Marshall Islands and the Gilbert Islands, each of them marking a, sto- a closer step toward Tokyo. And all of the while, the people of the United Nations were growing more vigorous in their belief that the aggressors of the Axis should be completely stamped out. The tempo of the war mounted and mounted until... 
On January 6, 1944, Allied armies landed shortly after 1 a.m. Memphis time on the coast of Normandy, and the Battle of France was again underway. Under General Dwight Eisenhower, those armies paused, got their breath, then smashed forward, cutting south of Paris, and then swinging to encircle and liberate the capital of France. British armed forces moved up the coast of France to cut off the launching places of V-1, Germany's frightful weapon of retaliation. And on the French Riviera, General Patch landed with the American 7th Army to drive up through the southern part of France and completely liberate the nation, which had once been such a proud symbol of freedom and democracy. In Russia, the armies of Marshal Stalin crossed the pre-war borders of Poland, broke into Romania, marched into Yugoslavia to the aid of Marshal Tito's gallant little band of partisan fighters. The British invaded Greece and liberated that country from its oppressors. And on October 20th, 1944, General Douglas MacArthur stood aboard a cruiser off the shore of Leyte and broadcast to the world his thrilling message. I have returned to liberate the Philippines. Then came the successful reconquest of the Philippines, the bloody but victorious battle for Iwo Jima, the setback of December in the Battle of the Belgian Bulls. Then the tide of victory turned into a raging waterfall. The Russians drove to within 30 miles of Berlin and stood poised, drawing away many of the remaining German armies. And General Eisenhower gave the order for the smashing crossing of the Rhine and advanced to the gates of Berlin. Then came the battle for Okinawa. in the afternoon of April 12th, the entire world was shocked to hear the words, President Roosevelt is dead. Yes, he died just before the great armies which he had built succeeded in conquering the forces of evil in Europe. But as the nation and the entire world mourned the loss of this great leader whose vision had made it possible for this nation to arm itself so quickly, the war went on. And on April 16th, a new president, Harry Truman, stood before the joint houses of Congress and said in these recorded words, Today... The entire world is looking to America for enlightened leadership to peace and progress. Such a leadership requires vision, courage, and tolerance. It can be provided only by a united nation deeply devoted to the highest ideals. With great humility, I call upon all Americans to help me keep our nation united in defense of those ideals which have been so eloquently proclaimed by Franklin Roosevelt. I want in turn to assure my fellow Americans and all of those who love peace and liberty throughout the world that I will support and defend those ideals with all my strength and all my heart. That is my duty, and I shall not shirk it. Then humbly the new president, president said in the words of Solomon, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this by so great people? I ask only to be a good and faithful servant of my Lord and my people. 
today the United Nations stand victorious in the European battlefront, but the war is not over. No, we have a long way to go yet. The Japanese Empire and all its troops in China, Formosa, French Indochina, Manchukuo, and the islands of the South Pacific. These must be crushed, completely annihilated, before the world can have a true and lasting peace, before we can deal with the enemies of freedom. Well, tell me, is there something that we can do here at home? Yes, lady, there is. The same thing that you and all other Americans have been doing throughout the long years of this war. Don't relax your efforts. Try bonds. Keep salvage paper and ten cans. Turn in waste fat. Keep writing to the boys overseas. And above all, remember, America, we didn't want this war, but we had to fight it. Let's not let the deaths of those thousands of American boys be forgotten. Each one of those boys died fighting for an ideal, an ideal that we Americans must never forget. The ideal that might be best expressed by these words spoken in 1933 by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Radio station WMPS has presented this program on VE Day to serve as a reminder to all Americans that the war is not over. We've licked one enemy, but there is still another one that must be defeated. Remember that, America, and don't hesitate until that complete and unconditional surrender is flashed from Tokyo. Radio station WMPS will continue to bring you important programs from all parts of the world and programs expressing local opinion on this VE Day. Keep tuned to this station for complete coverage of the great events now taking place. The actors and actresses you have heard on this program donated their talents for the occasion. This transcribed program was written and produced by Robert Neal and came to you from the studios of WMPS in Memphis at your service. Forty-four. Superman five eight. Enter. Kellogg's Pep, the super delicious cereal, presents the adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman who is today completely mystified by the strange attack that seized Jimmy Olsen and Tony Sloan at the lair of the dragon. We'll take you to the scene in a moment. But right now, here's Dan McCullough with an important V-Day reminder for you. Say, gang, I guess you're just about as excited as I am today at the good news. It is swell, isn't it? Yes, this is the day that we've all been waiting for and working for. And what a day it'll be when the war in the Pacific is over, too. And you know, you fellas and girls can help make that day come sooner. Sure. Keep right on buying war stamps. Lots of them. Keep on collecting every bit of waste paper. Save scrap metal. Keep on doing the splendid work you have been doing right along. Remind your friends and your neighbors that they must continue to save every bit of used fat and turn it in. And you girls could help mother with the mending, too. It's important to make things over and make them last as long as possible. In fact, there are countless ways in which you can help. And believe me, those boys in Europe really appreciate all that you fellows and girls have done, and the boys in the Pacific are counting on you to go on doing the same thing for them, too. So, gang, the harder we all work, 
the sooner all our boys will get back home. And then we can really celebrate. And now, the adventures of Superman. Unaware that Jimmy Olsen had been trapped by the dragon, a mysterious Japanese whom Clark Kent believed was responsible for the disappearance of Tony Sloan, a Daily Planet war correspondent, Kent permitted himself to be captured by a henchman of the dragon. Taken to a house in San Francisco, Kent found Jimmy and Tony in the custody of the hooded Jap, who told the three planet reporters that they were about to die in the same strange way in which the Nips planned to eliminate our armed forces. Left in a locked room with Kent, Tony and Jimmy suddenly declared that the flowers in the wallpaper were leaping out at them. And a moment later, they lost consciousness. As we continue now, Kent, puzzled and alarmed, has resumed his true identity of Superman. Listen. Can't understand it. Something strange in this room, and I don't know what it is. I've got to get Jim and Tony out of here in a hurry. Up with them. There we are. Now, out through that boarded window. Away! Pulses are very low. They're gasping for breath. Down to that park. Down! There we are. Now to get these wire bonds off them. And then some quick artificial respiration. Let's see now. Out goes the bad air. In comes the good. Out goes the bad Snapping the wires from the arms of Jimmy and Tony, the man of steel kneels over them, working their arms and forcing air into their gasping lungs. After several anxious minutes... What? Jim's coming around. Tony's still out, though. What? What happened? You're all right, Jim. I can't seem to bring Tony to. Oh, wait a minute there. Now he's coming around. Another moment or so, and he ought to be okay. The flowers. Kent. Jim. Everything's all right, Tony. I... I... Leaping lizards. Superman. That's right, Jim. Feel all right now? I... I... Sure. Mr. Kent, Tony, look. It's Superman. Superman? Are you really Superman? Yes, I am. Mr. Kent. Where's Mr. Kent? Kent's all right. But... But where is he? He was in that room with us. I know. That's right. Where is Kent? He's all right, I tell you. Now, look. You fellas stay here and rest. I'm going back to that house for the dragon. Up and away! There we are. There's the house. I don't see the dragon, though. Well, I'll just go down there. Great Scott. The whole house blew up. There's not a stick of it left. Shocked by what he has just witnessed, Superman hovers above the great gaping hole in the earth where, but a moment before, the dragon's house had stood. Then, after a quick search of the neighborhood, he drops to earth. A few minutes later, once more in his guise of reporter Clark Kent, he enters the glade in the park where Jimmy Olsen and Tony Sloan have just risen unsteadily to their feet. I wonder what that explosion was. Well, it sounded like a, a bomb or something. It wasn't a bomb, Jim. Well, then what? Mr. Kent. Kent. What happened to you? Well, I was just... Superman all... said you were okay, but when you didn't show up, we got worried. Yeah, we were just going to look, look for you. Well, I, I went to look for the dragon, but I was too late. Too late? Uh-huh. Afraid he got away. I reached his house just as it blew up. That was the explosion you heard. Wow. wow. I don't know how it happened. There's nothing left there now except a huge hole in the ground. Holy mackerel. Do you, do you think the dragon was blown up? No, no, Jim. I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Well, what makes you say that, Kent? If the whole house was blown well, up. I was right above, uh, uh, right outside the house just before the explosion, and 
I'm reasonably certain the dragon wasn't in it. But you couldn't see in the house, Mr. Kent. Maybe he was... Just the same. I'm almost positive he got away, Jim. I... Well, that is, Superman scoured the neighborhood, but couldn't find a trace of him or his gang. The police are searching now. Wish I knew what caused that terrific explosion. Well, maybe the dragon had dynamite planted in the basement. So when he makes a getaway, he can wash out all evidence. Well, that's what I thought at first, but... Enough dynamite to blow the whole house and foundation out of the ground and not leave a single brick or stone standing would have to be planted in more than one place. And that would have caused more than one explosion. Yeah, that's right, Clark. I only heard one, though. Yeah, so did I. There was only one. I can't figure it out. And another thing that bothers me are those, those strange symptoms you fellows had before you lost consciousness. Thinking the, the, the flowers and the wallpaper were jumping out at you and, and, and not being able to breathe. I don't understand that either. Great Jupiter, I forgot about that. What? Why, why, of course. Huh? Of course what, Tony? What happened to us in that room and the house blowing up so mysteriously? That was all done by the dragon's secret weapon. His what? His secret weapon. The one I was tracing all over the South Pacific until I was wounded. Oh. Hey, look, Kent. Don't you remember what the dragon said? That Japan would destroy our troops in the same way that he was knocking us off? Yes, but well, what's don't that? You see? That's how he plans to do it with the secret weapon he used on us today. Unless we find out what that weapon is and learn how to deal with it, well, it'll cause a lot of grief and maybe cost a lot of lives. Jeepers. But oh, Just a minute, help. Jim. Look, Tony, I think you'd better tell us all you know and quick. Okay. Uh, come over to that bench. Sure. Uh, my bum leg won't hold me up anymore. Oh, here, wait a minute. Let me help you. There you are. Hey. If only I hadn't been wounded and nothing had happened to Sing Song, I might have had all the answers by now. For what answers? And what sing song? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. Yeah. Ah, it's better on this bench. I can talk now. Well, start talking, Tony. What about the secret weapon? How'd you disappear from that hospital ship? And what about those air squadron buttons? Easy, Jim, easy. Let him catch his breath. Oh, I'm all right now. You say the police are after the dragon tent? Yes. Let's hope they have better luck finding him than I did. Oh, they've got to find him. He... Oh, but I've got to tell you about this so you can help me. I guess I'd better start from the beginning. Uh-huh. Well, it began when General MacArthur decided we were ready to take back the Philippines. The big bombers started what they called their milk runs then to soften up Luzon. And I went along on a couple of the flights as correspondent. On my second flight, we caught a lot of flack and one of our motors went out. Uh-huh. We were limping back home as best we could when about a dozen Jap Zeros jumped us. Jeepers. Yeah. Our gunners knocked down four of them and the others turned to run. All but one devil who decided to win his way into Jap heaven by coming at us head on. Wow. Yeah. He managed to shear off a wing and, well, some of us were lucky enough to be able to bail out. I was one of them. Boy, what a Golly. Oh, what happened then, Tony? Well, we landed in the sea. When the other Japs saw what had happened, they came back to strafe us. A dirty rat. That's just like them. Yeah, you said it. I didn't inflate my life raft until they were gone, so they missed me. Good. Then I set up the raft, climbed in, and was so exhausted I fell asleep. When I woke up, I was just off the tiniest island you ever saw. What do you mean? Well, it was about the size of a small backyard and had just one stunted tree on it. What? And sitting by the tree with his head bowed was a native. Oh, just him alone on that little island? That's right, Jim. I called to him, but he wouldn't look up. So I paddled ashore and called to him again, but still he wouldn't look up. First, I thought he was dead, but when I walked over to examine him, his... Eyes opened, and he looked up at me. He was a fine-looking native, about 25. But in all my life, I've never seen such suffering etched in a man's face. 
I've seen lots of war. Golly, who was he, Tony? He was the only man in the world, except for Hirohito's war cabinet, who knew of the existence of the dragon's secret weapon. The weapon with which the Japs like to think they'll win the war. Scott. Well, how, how did he know? He was the only man in the world, other than the Japs, who had witnessed a demonstration of the dragon's amazing weapon and lived to tell about it. Jeep. Well, what is it, Tony? Well, I'm coming to it, Clark. Naturally, I asked him who he was and what he was doing all alone in this tiny island that, that didn't even have a hut on it. He had a long native name I couldn't pronounce, but it sounded something like Sing Song, so I call him that. The uh, first thing he told me, I didn't want to believe. But later, when I looked at my maps, I found he was telling the truth. He started his strange story with... Two days ago, this was large island. Trees, flowers, much fruit and vegetable grow. Much fish in sea. Also pretty. 3,000 people live here. All so happy people. 3,000 people? Are you kidding, Sing Song? What do you say, Tony Sloan? I say, you don't expect me to believe that, do you? You must believe. I tell truth. Oh, yeah? Well, if this was a large island with 3,000 people on it, what happened to the land and to the people? I tell. Two days ago, warship come here. Small yellow-skinned men come off boat with guns. Leader say, we Japanese own whole world pretty soon. Where headman? Japs, huh? Yes. Headman, my father, mm-hmm. he say, what you do here with guns? Jap leader say, we come do you great honor. We make experiment here with great new weapon. If works, all of you die for emperor, go to honorable Japanese heaven. Then we kill all Yankee dogs and own whole world. Why, that dirty... What do you mean? My father, he asked that. He say, we happy people here. We not wish to die for your emperor. Then Jap leader say... Insolent dog, shoot him. Then they shoot my father. Many of us try to stop them. They laugh and kill, shoot some, hit some on head with guns. Many people run away and hide. We peaceful people. We no have guns. We no fight back. Yeah. Well, what happened then? Jap leader and six others climb an old dead volcano. Jap leader throw many little pieces colored paper in air. He hollered. Blessing on my noble cousin, son of heaven. Pretty soon, they come down again. Jap leaders say to me and brothers, in one hour, everyone on this island die for noble emperor. Then they all go back to worship, sail away Dirty Jap rat. Yeah, you heard nothing yet. Get this. Yeah, we're listening. You bet we are. Go ahead, Tony. One hour later, the entire island and everyone on it was wiped out. What? The Jap ship bombed them? No, there wasn't a single shell fired at them, Kent. Oh, then planes came over and bombed them. No, not a single plane came over either. Then, then how... Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got it. That volcano. <laughs> the volcano didn't erupt either, if that's what you were going to say, that's Kent. That's what I thought. It had been inactive for centuries. Oh. But one hour after the Japs left, everyone on the island began to see the trees and flowers leaping out of the ground at them. What? Yeah, just like Jimmy and I did in the dragon's place. And almost immediately after that, everyone except Sing Song was dead. Incredulously, Clark, Kent, and Jimmy Olsen stare at Tony Sloan, not knowing whether to believe or disbelieve his shocking story. Don't fail to listen in tomorrow when Tony retells the rest of his amazing experience, which includes more dramatic surprises. So tune in, same time, same station, and follow... The Adventures of 
Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Fellas and girls, be sure to follow the adventures of Superman. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday, same time, same station, by the makers of that super delicious cereal, Kellogg's Pep. Superman is a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications. This is, this is the Mutual Broadcasting System. W-O-R, New York. For the enter. The Tom Mix Ralston's Traitors are on the air. And here comes Tom Mix, America's favorite cowboy, with another thrill-packed Western adventure program. That's <laughs> on me. Come on, boy. Traitors, Ralston, for your breakfast. Start the day all shining bright. Gives you lots of cowboy energy with a flavor that's just right. It's delicious and nutritious, light side and ready to eat. Take a tip from Tom, go and tell your monks, shredded Ralston can't be beat. The Tom Mix Ralston Straight Shooters bring you action, mystery, and mile a minute thrills in radio's biggest Western detective program. Tonight you're about to hear. Another episode in a baffling mystery. Secret Mission. Tom Mix has agreed to undertake a dangerous secret mission from which he may never return. Right now, Tom and Sheriff Mike Shaw find themselves in a strange city after the plane in which they took off from the Twin Rivers Airport near Dobie was grounded because of bad weather. With them is a man who calls himself Mr. Moonlight. A moment ago, another car, driven by a beautiful young woman, ran into the car in which Tom, Sheriff Mike, and Moonlight were riding from the airport into town. The young lady's car was so badly wrecked that they agreed to take her home in their car. In a moment, strange and baffling things are going to happen. But first, here is Tom Mix. Straight shooters... As all of us know, today saw the end of the first part of the war. A war that's been going on almost as long as a lot of you can remember. But the war isn't over yet, and it isn't won yet. We've shown Hitler and his gang that we know how to lick bullies and racketeers. So keep right on buying and saving those war stamps. Keep right on doing your best as a straight shooter and a good home front soldier. Then, on the day when the war is really over... You can stick out your chest and say to the whole world, I helped America win. And now, let's join Tom and Sheriff Mike as they drive along in the rear seat of a car driven by the mysterious white-bearded Mr. Moonlight. Seated between our friends is a tall and extraordinarily beautiful girl named Drusilla Drake. Mike staring open mouthed that Tom says, Tom, did you hear what I heard? I heard, Mike. Do you savvy it? Nope. Well, it's really quite simple, gentlemen. It is, huh? Well, then maybe you'll explain, ma'am. 
We hit your car on Olive Street and you raised all sorts of ruckus. You tell the John Law on the beat that since we busted your car, you want us to take you out to your house. Then, by golly, you gets into this year conveyance and talks to Mr. Moonlight like you'd known him for years. She does, pal. Lucy and me have been sidekicks for years. Yeah, and it's for you, Mr. Moonlight. First time we met you, you're a whistling Danny boy and a talking like somebody out of a fairy story. The sky is a gooseamer veil made of gauze with stars sprinkled over it like pearls on velvet. Now, suddenly, you begin to talk like a tough character. I am tough, mister. Plenty tough, see? All right, all right, all right. I give up. Tom, take over, will you? <laughs> well, I don't mind explaining. You see? There's not much you have to explain, Miss Drake. I reckon I've been through enough of this kind of thing to recognize it. You and Moonlight are trying to throw somebody off our trail. Look back through the rear window. That's nice, Savvy. Savvy what, Tom? That car behind us, Mike. We're being followed. Followed? By who? Enemy agents. Enemy agents? Now, wait a minute, friend. This year's America. Yeah? Anyhow, the boys in that car behind us are members of an enemy espionage ring. They picked us up when we crossed the St. Louis city limits. Well, where are we going? Would somebody mind telling me? My instructions were to keep things secret as long as possible, Mike. But I reckon you can know now. We're headed for Europe. Europe? You mean after VE Day and all that? Yes, that's right, Mike. There's certain things to be done yet, and it seems up to me to do them. Well, there's some pretty dangerous spots there yet, Tom. But uh, don't you even know what your special job is? That information comes later, Mike. Well, now, Miss Drake, I'd like you to explain how all this came about. Well, as I said before, Mr. Mix, it's quite simple. We've all received separate instructions, as you know. Yes. That's the way an operation like this has to be handled. Well, after Moonlight radioed K-12 that he was making a forced landing in St. Louis, K-12 knew that Moonlight would be followed and that those following him would have to be thrown off the scent. My instructions were to cross Olive and 16th Street at exactly 9.01 in my car. I was told I would be hit by Moonlight's car. That's right. You see, Mix, my instructions was to be sure to hit her car at exactly that time. Hey, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to say that all this was done just to throw a couple of enemy agents off on the trail? Just to throw? It's very important to throw them off the trail, Sheriff. Yeah, well, we ain't throw them off. Not if that their car back there means we're still being followed. That's right. Uh, here's Skinker Road. We'll go straight out the Clayton Road, Moonlight. Okay. Well, when do we throw them off? Well, I don't know that. My job is simply to carry out instructions to the letter. That's all any of us are doing, Mike. Oh, I don't savvy this year, mysterious hocus-pocus all. Why don't we just stop this year car, get out, and shoot it out with them, them mavericks? <laughs> Gracious, what an impetuous man your friend is, Mr. Mayor. Mike, that would never do. That's not our job. Our job is to follow instructions, up to a point, leastways. And that's what we're doing. We know those boys back there will be taken care of, but not by us. Well, anyhow, I know something I didn't know before. I know that we're going to Europe. That's right, pal. Knowing that, you know as much as we do. Just one other thing, Mix. Yeah? My instructions are that you're top man in this job. Well, that's right. We're to do anything you say, Mr. Mix, without question. Well, somewhere in this country, K-12 is sitting in the middle of a web, spinning out strands that all of us have got to hold on to and follow. When that web is finished, we may be dead. But there's one thing we've got to remember. We're just tools carrying out the orders of a power a lot greater than ourselves. We've been given this job to do, and we'll do it till we're cut down. Are we all agreed on that? Agreed. You can count on me, Mix. Well, Mike? To the hill, Tom. To the hill. 
in the center of the web of which Tom has spoken sits K-12. K-12 sits behind a large desk in a darkened office high above a city street. The night sky is framed in the window of his office. And against that window, K-12 is a black silhouette. But on the desk before him, colored lights gleam on and off. K-12 watches those lights intently some moments before a buzzer sounds. K-12. The weather has cleared now in St. Louis, ceiling 5,000 feet. He's to start at once. There's a field lined with Lebanon cedars just the other side of Drusilla Drake's house. He will land at the north end of the field and wait. Yes, he can land easily. I've just had a report that the wind at the field is directly south. Very good. K-12. F-17 knows his instructions to the letter. Mike Shaw. Well, then, Mix took him along, did he? Uh, just as well. Shaw's an excellent man, so long as he's not told too much. Well, then tell F-17 to notify the others first. When they're safely in the plane, then notify Shaw. K-12. He's to be at Fisherman's Wharf at precisely 9.15 tomorrow night. He knows what to do. That is all. Slip-ups? <laughs> when I handle an assignment, my friend, there are no slip-ups. Naturally, having a good time. Oh, why not, Mike? Enjoy yourself. Well, I, I don't feel like I ought to talk. After all, Miss Drake told us she was giving this year party for a purpose. So it isn't really on account of VE Day. No, Mike. It's to throw our pursuers off the trail. Well, now, Tom, just how can a party throw them off on the trail? You remember, Mike, when we arrived this morning, we were given a complete change of clothes? Yeah, yeah, and I reckon I sure look kind of outstanding in this year monkey suit. You look all right. Leastways, the suit blends in with the crowd. The object of this whole thing, Mike, is to lose us in the crowd. Huh? I noticed that Miss Drake and Moonlight have already disappeared. Gee, that, that's right, Tom. I've been looking all over for Miss Drake. And I... I oh, well... <laughs> Lost your heart again, eh, Michael? Well, she is mighty... Mighty... Well, she's a nice young lady, Tom. Yes, she sure is. Well, let's go over and get a glass of that punch. Yeah, all right, Tom, all right. Hey, it sure is mighty good punch, too. I never tasted none better in Dobie. But, Tom, what do you reckon that they disappeared to? And what's going to happen to us? I mean, Tom, if and they disappear, then it's dollars to donuts and we'll find... Tom. Hey, Tom. Son, Teresa, I thought he was right here behind me. Now, he's gone. A glass of punch, sir? No, no thanks, no thanks. I, I got troubles at the minute. Glass of punch is excellent for that sort of thing, sir. A glass of punch sometimes solves the most difficult of problems. It does, huh? Yes, sir. For example, to solve the problem of where your friend has gone. What? How do you know? I would suggest you take this glass of punch and saunter through that door right over there. It leads out onto a terrace. Oh? Oh, 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 sure, sure. And when you reach the terrace, just keep walking straight ahead. Thanks. Thanks, powerful. Not at all, sir. Not at all. 
the terrace. The fellow said to go straight on. Well, I reckon that's just what I'd better do. Seems to be a line of trees over there. Look like cedars. Lebanon cedars. Well, I'll just keep straight on and follow instructions like Tom has drilled me to do. It's funny. Sounds to me like I hear a plane motor. It is a plane motor. Sassafras and sourdough. There's a plane up there at the north end of the field. Now, I wonder... Come on, Mike. Hurry. It's Tom. Jim Manetley, Tom. In with you, Mike. Yes, Tom. Yes. Well, thunderation. Miss Gray, Mr. Moonlight, and you, Tom, all in the plane. And you, too, Sheriff. Yeah, yeah, I'm here, too. Well, what do you know? No more than we knew before, Mike, except we're taking the next step on a long and dangerous trail to Europe. No, all right, Tom. Uh, wait till I, uh, I drink this here glass of punch first. under sealed orders from K-12, takes off from the airfield next to Drusilla Drake's house. Something has gone wrong. One look at the face of the pilot of that plane, a face seen in the faint light of the instrument panel, would reveal a cruel-looking man with a hard, vicious smile playing about his lips. Tomorrow, thrilling and unexpected things happen. For action and rip-roaring adventure, don't miss Tom Mix and his Ralston straight shooters tomorrow in the next exciting episode of Secret... Mission. And now, here is Tom Mason. You know, a lot of you straight shooters can hardly remember when there wasn't a war going on. You've grown up with words like commando and ration stamps and V-mail. Now today, something big has happened. Germany, Hitler's Germany, has surrendered. But all of you straight shooters know that this thing called war isn't nearly over. It means that the folks in your family are going to have to keep right on at their war job. And every one of us will have to keep on working and fighting until there isn't any war left anywhere in the world. Someday this old world is going to belong to you boys and girls. But it's up to all of us to pitch in now and make it the kind of a world worth having. makers of Shredded Ralston, Regular Ralston, and Instant Ralston. Tom Mix was played by Curly Bradley. Don Gordon speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. The makers of Briar's Ice Cream now bring you the official weather report for New York City and vicinity. The temperature 57 degrees. Tonight, clear and cool. Tomorrow will be sunny and mild. Everyone talks about how delicious Briar's Raisin Vanilla Ice Cream is. It's creamy smooth, chock full of plump raisins. Have Briar's Raisin Vanilla Ice Cream. W.O.R. New York. Six o'clock by Longine, the world's most honored watch. Product of the Longine Whitnor Watch Company. Enter. And now, Dick Tracy! Stand by for action. Let's go, men. 
Yes, it's Dick Tracy, protector of law and order. Boys and girls, it's time for our first VE Day message. As a reminder, to ask you if you've started saving for that war bond yet. As you know, this month is the big seventh war loan drive. Now, maybe buying bonds isn't exactly a glamorous job, but a few bo- uh, jobs are, especially the kind of jobs that the guys in the infantry have. Take Corporal John Orcutt, for instance. He was on the Siegfried line, and his job was repairing brakes and wire lines to see the communication service was maintained. During seven hard weeks of fighting there, Corporal Orcutt constantly braved enemy fire to fix broken telephone wires. And more than once, he lifted his carbine and picked off a few German snipers before returning to his repair job. Almost every move that he made was in the open, under steady fire. Corporal Orchid did his job and later was awarded the Bronze Star Medal. Are we here at home doing our job, buying war bonds and stamps? Remember that the war in Europe is over, but the war in the Pacific is still going on. It costs plenty of money. Uncle Sam will need just as much this year as he did last year. Money that we lend him with our purchases of war bonds and stamps. And now, Dick Tracy. In yesterday's story, Dick and Pat did their best to learn all about the neighborhood that had been terrorized by a gang of young hoodlums who called themselves the Nighthawks. Finally calling on Dick's old friend, Mike Flanagan, they learned of conditions that were mighty serious and made arrangements through Flanagan to meet a couple of the boys who had been victims of the gang, hoping that this interview might also explain the reason why the boys no longer went to their boys' club, run by Ronald Framer. Today we find Dick, Pat, and Junior in their car. Tracy is explaining to Junior some of the facts of the case. Listen. Hey, you see, Junior, Pat and I went to see Mike last night, and it's through him we'll be able to meet these boys. Uh, apparently, they're friends of his. That's right. He said they'd like to come in and have him tell them stories. Sounds like quite a man. Now, he is, Junior. One of the finest men I've ever met. And he's lived in the same house since long before the days of the automobile. But these Nighthawks that you mentioned, what sort of boys are they? Are they about as old as I am? Well, I'm not sure, Junior. That's one of the things I want to clear up tonight. I thought I'd have you with us so the boys would feel a little more at ease. You want me to ask him any special questions? No, I don't think that'll be necessary. Uh, Dick promised Mike Flanagan that he wouldn't make the boys squeal in any members of the gang. I wouldn't want to do that either. Unless, of course, they'd been doing something serious enough to warrant it. Tell me, Dick, why didn't you treat that robbery just like any other case? Uh, you mean that business at Bickleford's? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm pretty sure, Junior, that the job was done by members of this Nighthawk gang. If so, I'd hesitate to arrest the boys and throw them in jail. Gee, that's a decent way to feel, Dick. Oh, in the eyes of the law, they're regular criminals. Well, it's been my experience that jailing wouldn't cure the situation that exists. Uh, Pat. Yes, Dick? Uh, better pull over here and park the car. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Here we are. I don't want to go to Mike's house the same way we did last night. Uh, neither do I. Not with milk bottles crashing within inches of my head. Must be a tough bunch around here. I'm glad you two are with me. Well, when you take this thing to the back of Mike's house, then cut through the alley. That way nobody will see us. I called Mike during the day and told him to leave the back door open. Down this way. Golly, Dick, I just can't get it through my head why fellas from a neighborhood like this, or any other for that matter, wouldn't be glad to go to a club like the one Mr. Framer's given them. Well, that'll all come out in time. I hope we can clear it up before some of these boys have to go to jail. At least that'd teach them a lesson. Yes, Junior, it would. But not the kind of lesson I want them to have. Now, here we are. These stairs lead up to Mike's back door. Step in, step in. Hello, Mike. Hello, Dick Pat. Hello, Mike. 
I'm not saying anything to the young man till I get him into the light. Oh, so that's it. I wondered if you didn't like my looks or something. Looks have little to do with it where I'm concerned. It's a man's eye I look at and the feel of his handshake. Now, let's step in here. Now, sit down, sit down. My boys will be here any minute now. My bones have started to creak. It's this late spring that does it. Now, Junior, come over here and stand in front of me. Hmm. Good-looking boy. Shake hands. How do you do, Mr. Flanagan? You'll do. You'll do fine. And you're going to grow into a fine man. You can sit down now. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mike, uh, did you have any trouble getting the boys to come here? Not in the least. You see, the name of Dick Tracy is one to conjure with. <laughs> no, they said... Ah, there they be now. Uh, you want me to let them in, Mike? No, Pat, I'll go. I always answer the door myself. All right now, all right. How oh, that bell has stood it all these years, I never knew. Gee, Dick, he seems like a grand old man. He is, Junior. He's done more good for the people in this neighborhood than anyone else. Now, just go on in, the two of you, and make yourselves known. Remember, he may be Dick Tracy to you, but he's just as much a friend of mine. Well, here they are, Dick. Oh, come in, boys. I'm Dick Tracy. This is Pat Patton, and this is Junior. How do you do? Hi, fellas. Well, speak up, speak up. Has the cat got your tongue? Well, there'll be nothing to do but for me to make the introductions. Dick, this little man is Roger Sweeney. Hello, Roger. And this one is Fabian McAllister. Hello, Fabian. Now say, how do you do, or I'll snatch you both bald-headed. How do you do? <laughs> well, sit down, boys, and don't look so scared. Come on over and sit on this couch alongside of me. Plenty of room for the three of us. Gee, thanks. I'll sit in the middle. <laughs> there, how's that? That's okay. Hey, the fellas call you Fabe? Yeah, that's right. It's short for Fabian. I'm kind of glad I do, because I don't like the name Fabian. I don't see anything wrong with it. It's no worse than going through life being called Junior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Roger? Well, I was just thinking of what you'd say if you knew my middle name. What is it? Oh, I don't want to say. Come on, Roger, tell him. Honest, Junior, it's no worse than Fabian. Yeah, go ahead, Roger, tell me. Well, I'll tell you if you promise you won't call me by it. Okay, it's a promise. Runnymede. What? Runnymede. Gosh, that is a name. Runnymede. Yeah, some of the guys found it out and they began to call him Runny Nose. Boy, that was a day. I guess Roger had to lick three guys the same day. Yeah, that's the day Fabe and I became friends. He came to my rescue and wouldn't let the other fellas pile on me. He made them let me take them one at a time. Gee, that must have been something. And by the way, Roger, it looks as though somebody has been calling your names again. Where did you get that black eye? I said, where did you get that eye? Do I have to tell? Oh, I don't think Mike will insist. After all, a man's got the right to have a black eye once in a while. Gee, certainly a beaut. Purple, blue, green, and a little touch of yellow. Say, what does the other guy look like? <laughs> uh, tell me, Roger. Have you been to Mr. Framer's boys' club lately? No, I haven't, Mr. Tracy. Neither have I. Now, what's the reason? I remember you used to tell me how much you enjoyed it. Well, well we had a quid on just had a little trouble. One at a time now, one at a time, so we can get the straight of it. You tell him, Rog. Okay. Well, we wouldn't mind going to the club, but the rest of the gang lie in wait for us and give us the wakes. That's why I got this eye. Sure, that's where he got that eye. He went up there to finish a ship's model he started, and they give it to him on the way home. Yeah, and he busted in last night and wrecked the place. Broke all the airplane models and swiped the tools and just made a mess of the place. And that's why we come here tonight, Mr. Tracy. Roger and I talked it over, and we thought if we told you all about it, you could put those guys where they belong. Yeah, it's been going on for months. And it's just because we won't join their gang on night horse. That's right. I got a note last night. It was shoved under my desk at school. It said, I better join up while I had the chance. 
But I'm not gonna. Neither am I. Well, it was only last night some woman had her purse stolen while she was walking along the street. Now, I'd never do a thing like that. Uh, that case was reported to me. Gee, it was? Yes, and I have a pretty good description of the boys who did it. For once, the woman kept her head. Of course, she was excited when she called me up, but her description was mighty accurate. Accurate enough so we could send men out looking for the boys. Yeah, I bet you don't get them. What makes you so sure of that? Gee, I feel the same way. Why are you both so sure? Because they've been getting away with stuff like that for months. Why, Johnny... Mr. Name, no names. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Flanagan. That's all right, Fabian. Go ahead with your story, but be a little more careful. Yeah, okay, I'll try to be. Well, you know, I've had some experience in matters of this sort. And always the gang has to have a hideout to operate successfully. Do you think these boys have? I'm sure of it. Gee, sounds as if they were a professional gang. They are, Junior, and mighty well organized. Any idea how many in the gang? Oh, I'd say between 15 and 20. Mm -hmm. Now, here's a question I'm sure you won't mind answering. Uh, what are their ages? Oh, they're all about like us, maybe a couple years younger, some a couple years older. And I suppose, like all gangs, they have a leader? Well, all I have to say is that Pat and I are going to put a stop to all this. And we're going to do it right now. Gee, would you want us to spread the weight around that Dick Tracy was after them? No. Not a word of it. No, sir, I forbid it. You boys aren't to say one single word about meeting and talking with the inspector. And I agree with that completely, Mike. Now, I'm going to tell you something about my plans. Maybe you two will be able to help me a little while later. But for the present, mum's the word. You know, Dick, this may not have been such a good idea of yours to prowl this neighborhood. I don't like the idea of getting knocked on the skull with a brick or something. Well, I want to learn a little more about the neighborhood, Pat. And I want an excuse to get out of the house and leave the three boys alone. Uh, they certainly seem to hit it off with Junior. Well, when we left, they were going in one of the back rooms with Mike to look at his collection of pictures of battle flags. Turn this alley, Pat. Now stop right here. Hey, what's up? We're being followed. Stand here in the shadows. No noise now. couple of boys. You think they were trailing us? I'm pretty sure of it. I know how we can find out, though. Follow me. Yeah, what are you going to do? We'll walk around the block a bit. See if the same two boys... Is... Wait a minute. I see them. They just passed under that street light ahead. And they were joined up by two other boys. Now they split up. And the pair that followed us have gone on. The new pair are waiting near the side of that house. And one of the second pair of boys has a brown leather jacket on. Yeah, I saw that. And they're pretty big, too. Well, if I didn't know better, I'd think they were grown men. Come on, Pat. We'll soon see if what I think is right. The minute we turn this corner, duck in the nearest doorway. Here they come. Did you see that, Pat? I sure did. Come on, let's go. In a moment, we return to Dick Tracy. But first, boys and girls, it's second message time on this VE Day. You know, when we buy war bonds, we're lending our government money to buy many things from bombers down to bullets. Yes, and those small bullets are plenty important, too. Just ask anyone in the infantry. They use millions of them. And when they don't have them, well, that's not going to happen. Not as long as we continue to deliver the goods. And that reminds me of a story about something that happened in Italy when the going was toughest. An American machine gun section had been fighting off a determined German assault. They had succeeded so far, but they desperately needed more belts of bullets. Fifty yards away from the group was an American infantryman who sized up their, sized up their, their situation. Grabbing a box of ammunition, he ran courageously toward the machine gunners. 
with rifle bullets hitting inches from him, artillery shells bursting within 15 yards. But he delivered the goods at the risk of his life. Have you been delivering the goods? Those machine gun bullets can't go forward without your war bonds. And your war bonds start them on the trip to the front. Send our fighting infantrymen the ammunition they need. It's up to you and up to me, to all of us, to buy those bullets with war bonds. And now back to Dick Tracy. Robbery. 24 East Boulevard. Cars 9 and 5 proceed there. That is all. Step on it, Pat. Immediately, Tracy's thoughts turn to the gang known as the Nighthawks. Is this another of their crimes? You'll know tomorrow, so tune in again, same time, same station, for the adventures of Dick Tracy, directed by Wiley Adams. And this is George Gunn speaking. Boys and girls, every day, thousands and thousands of new friends join the ranks of fans who faithfully follow the adventures of Dick Tracy and Pat Patton. We don't mean just youngsters, either. No, indeed, there are plenty of grown-ups who are listening in, too. And did you know this? All over America, and in other countries as well, more than 200 newspapers feature the daily adventures of Dick and Pat. And each weekday, another episode of Dick Tracy, one of your favorite radio broadcasts, comes to you at the same time over more than 100 radio stations from coast to coast. So listen to Dick Tracy Monday through Friday. Don't miss tomorrow's chapter. Listen to Dick Tracy on the Trail of the Nighthawks. This is the Blue Network of the American Broadcasting Company. Waker Puff Dry Sparkies brings you Price Sparkies brings you Terry and the Pirates. Do you know that Terry has never been to the United States? The same is true of Elita, the Polish flyer, and of course, Connie. Pat Ryan has been back here for a visit, but Flip Corkin, for example, hasn't been in the good old USA since the war started. Well, what would you say if these friends of yours came back for a furlough? Wouldn't that be surprising? I'll say it would. So pin back your ears, and we'll hear all the news in just a moment. Oh, here comes Quaker with the bang, bang. Bang, bang, Quaker puff rice marquee, the rice that shot from guns. The family's favorite breakfast, the rice that shot from guns. Quaker puff rice marquees have vitamins, do tell. Easy step to extra pep, and boy, the taste is well. Yes, here comes Quaker with the bang, bang. bang, bang. Today, let's all us Terry fans unite in a grateful salute to Generals Marshall and Eisenhower, to our other gallant Army and Navy leaders, and to the millions of G.I. Joes who gave us this glorious V.E. Day. Today, fellas and girls, will be an immortal day in history, a day you'll forever remember, an eternal monument to the gallantry and devotion of those who made the supreme sacrifice to annihilate the Nazi menace. With today's magnificent victory behind us, let us all unite in our jobs on the home front to help our fighting forces to speed the unconditional surrender of Japan. It came about like this. 
Every time Pat Ryan and Terry or anyone else in their little group start out on a vacation, they end up in the doggondest wartime adventure you could imagine. Well, now they're in Manila, in the Philippines. The Admiral has just offered to have them transported to the United States for a leave of absence. But our friends are afraid of the word vacation. It means the same as trouble does to other people. So the Admiral put his proposition another way. This is your opportunity to do a good job. Help prepare a war film that the public will find interesting. And at the same time, you'll be out of the war zone and have a period of rest. Now, why don't you four just sit here and talk it over? And I'll be back in a few moments. If you decide to accept the offer, you'll be on your way very, very soon. And so Burma, Elida, Pat, and Terry were left to decide. Should they go to the United States or not? They had all been through hardships and were restless and tired, though they said little to each other about it. Well, kiddies, little Burma wouldn't know how to act back there in Uncle Sam's country. It's been so long since I had a finger wave or a new lipstick, I'd probably scream at the sight of a beauty parlor. How about you, Elida? I would like to go to your country. I should like to go to Poland also. But there's nothing there for me now. Not even the town where I used to live. And my friends, you can imagine what the Germans did to them. No. I will go to America. It is going to be my country also. Yeah, golly, you'll like it, Alayda. Hey, what do you mean, Alayda will like it? I'm thinking you'll be plenty surprised at it yourself, Terry. Why, you were a baby when you left the USA. Been over on this side of the Pacific ever since. Yeah, I know. Well, let's not get sentimental all of a sudden. The point is, are we going or not? Let's take a boat. Alayda? Yes, I would like it. I would like to see that crazy place they call Hollywood. <laughs> where most of the pictures show everybody doing something but never working. <laughs> I would, yes. Burma? Honey, I'm strictly neutral. Sure, I'm a twig off a tree that grew in that part of Brooklyn known as New York City, but, uh, I don't know anybody back there now. Don't you ever get a yen to go back? Homesick? Well, it's like this, Patsy. I... You bet your sweet life I do. Well, that's two votes in favor, Pat. How about you? I like, uh, everything except that Hollywood stuff. Now, I'd rather go fishing. <laughs> yeah, but what about Duncan? Wouldn't you like to drop in on the great correspondent and world traveler and ask him how he did so many things single-handed? I sure would. But is it worth all that trouble? Well, what do you want, Mr. Rant? I know Terry wants to go. So do you two gals. So, in the interest of peace and harmony, I'll throw in. Well, that makes it unanimous. You sure you want to make that flight back there, Terry? Well, golly, I guess I got a homesick feeling like anybody else. I suppose no matter where you are, the old hometown is tops. Of course, I haven't any hometown, so I can call the 48 states my home. But I sure wish I had one little spot on the map, some little village that I could remember and want to go back to. Gee, that's what all the other guys are fighting for. Just so they can go back home when this mess is over and find that place like they left it. No bomb-wrecked buildings. The same familiar sights. Gee, must be wonderful to have a home. Oh, pipe down on that talk, Terry. You'll have me bawling in a minute. But you know what I mean, Burma. Sure I do, kid. And so do I, Terry. Well, then we have four votes, which makes it 100%. We'll tell Admiral Jones we're ready to go. Okay, huh? the sooner the better. Well... 
judging from your expressions, you've uh, come to a decision. I rather imagine it, yes. That's right, sir. <laughs> we'll be ready to leave for the United States whenever you say. Well, now, that's fine. I've already arranged for your passage, a transport plane. There'll be other passengers, of course. And, oh, uh, by the way, if there's anyone else you'd like to have along with you, there'll uh, be plenty of room for him or Harry, her. Uh, you know uh, who I would like to come with us? Sure, I know. You mean... Connie? Sure thing. That'd be wonderful. Boy, he'd have the time of his life. In Hollywood? <laughs> Brother, so will we. Uh, would it be difficult to arrange for Connie to go with us, sir? Well, now, let's see. That's the little Chinese fellow, huh? Yes, sir. Yeah. The one who scrambles up the English language. <laughs> I'll personally be responsible for it, sir. Yes, and now, let's see. I, I have his record here, too. Oh, he's done some good work for you people. Yes, I think it can be arranged, Mr. Ryan... So suppose you all go and get some rest now. You'll be notified about plane passage and other details. At the airfield near Manila, recently captured from the Japs, a huge gray-green transport plane is being refueled and made ready for the long hop to the Hawaiian Islands. First leg on the flight to the Pacific shores of the USA. Mail and packages are being put aboard. One of the pilots, a short, stocky chap in wrinkled uniform, squints at the sun and then turns to another of the crew members. Brother, you're the navigator on this hop. And be sure you get us where we're going, because we've got a valuable cargo. Yeah, of course, Colonel Clarkin. You're a valuable cargo yourself. I didn't refer to present company, Jimmy. I referred to the passengers who should be here any minute. They don't know I'm flying this crate, but I know they're riding in it, so let's give them a pleasant journey. They haven't had a decent vacation since they were babies in cradles. Friends of yours, Colonel? A finest collection of wacky wonder boys and gals in the Pacific. You don't mean Mr. Pat Ryan, Terry Lee... And... That's hitting the spot, Jimmy. Hope you do as well on the flight to Hawaii. Hey, here they come now. I'll bet a hat. Isn't that car heading across the field to this point? Yeah, guess it is. Too bad I didn't get my suit pressed and a haircut. I might even have baked the cake. But they don't expect old Uncle Zippo to be part of this homeward trek. Where you been? What's the big idea? Uh, are you going with us? America, here we come, and we've got the snappiest dressed officer in all. Quiet, quiet. Let's be surprised in a more solemn way. Nurse Burma, it is almost a pleasure to see you. <laughs> likewise. Jerry, Elena, Patsy, likewise. Golly, this is sure a surprise, Flip. Are you getting a fill of Mr. Flip? Yeah, somewhat. When we get to California, I'm going to personally show you the sights, Elena. Hey, oh. what about me? You will be one of the sights. Oh. The people in the USA will find you something new and different, Nurse Burma. You haven't changed a bit. You're still a jerk. But a nice one, if that's possible. All right, you two. Save that to cool your soup. Hey, where's Connie? Oh, he's coming along. Oh, he's crazy to go to America. Is Connie going with us? Oh, yes. Connie and I have never seen Hollywood. Hollywood? Yeah. Didn't you know, Corkin? Well, I knew you folks would be passengers, but I didn't yeah, know... Yeah, we're going there to help a film company get out of war pictures deals with China. Don't tell me you've turned actors. Oh, hardly. But, as I understand it, there's a cargo of special films aboard this plane. That's right. Well, we're supposed to take it to Hollywood. I've got the address and all. Then we can sit around in the California sunshine and loaf. Also act as technical advisors. <laughs> Thought, huh? Well, who can tell? You may end up making love to some Hollywood star. Not me, Cork. Oh. <laughs> Don't be too sure, handsome. You could end up in Greece paint yet, but I'll be around. I'll keep an eye on you. 
Well, if you gals and boys are all set, why don't you climb in and find a nice spot to bump your shins against? Glad to see you, and we'll dig up the gossip as soon as we get a few spare minutes. The word Twister Connie showed up and was hauled aboard. Then the plane took off and soon was flying the secret course to Hawaii. The passengers settled down after a lot of gay chatter, and Pat Ryan found a spot away from the others and began to read the orders which had been given to him. What goes, Pat? Huh? Oh, just going over these papers. We're supposed to be personally responsible for those cans of exposed film. That is, until we reach Hawaii. What then? Then we pick up a new passenger. A fellow with the name of Wilmer Ding. Wilmer Ding? Yep. He's the head of the Wilmer Ding World Picture Company. He's the fellow who'll look after the films from there on in. Oh. It's his outfit we're going to be with in Hollywood. Ah, oh, looks like we're really getting a vacation at last, huh? Yeah, at long last. But you better knock wood, Terry. Every time I hear the word vacation, I get a shiver up and down my spine. It's always a signal that trouble is not far away. Yes, Pat Ryan's hunch is right. There's trouble ahead, but it's different from anything our friends have ever run into. So stand by for a tip-off on adventure. Quaker Puff Rice Party is the rice that's hot from guns. Here comes Quaker with a bang, bang. Bang, bang. Well, by tomorrow morning, boys and girls, the excitement and happiness of V-Day will be a thing of the past and history. You'll be able to look back later on when you study this period of our history in high school and college and say to yourself, I was there. Some of this happened to me. But you'll have to ask yourselves a question as well. What did I do to help make the war with Japan come to a quick end, as complete a victory as the defeat of Hitler? One answer you can make is, I saved paper, and I helped collect paper salvage so that the fighting men in Japan never had to worry about containers for anything from three-inch shells to blood plasma. Yes, that's just part of the job for every Terry fan and everyone else on the home front until final, complete victory comes on the day we make Japan surrender unconditionally. Terry and the Pirates is dramatized for radio by Albert Barker, who says, tomorrow you'll meet the screwball movie magnet, Mr. Wilmerding. And you'll find out something about the trouble and mystery that lies ahead. It's going to be fun and adventure aplenty. So get on the beam. Same time, same station. Gabriel Heater and his up-to-the-minute news of the world, presented by Forehands Toothpaste. Good evening, everyone. The last communique of World War II is in. Russia proclaims tomorrow as VE Day. The Russian people were told tonight for the first time of Germany's unconditional surrender. Moscow Radio reports all terms laid down by General Eisenhower were ratified tonight in Berlin. Field Marshal Keitel and Admiral Friedborg signing for Germany in the presence of Lieutenant General Karl Spatz, 
Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Tedder, Field Marshal Zukov, and General de Tassigny. There was some anxiety in many quarters today when ten hours went by without any proclamation in Moscow. Russia evidently waited for the official hour, one minute past six tonight, Eastern wartime. And Russia evidently waited for the ratification in Berlin for the crowning hour of German humiliation, unconditional surrender in the capital where the war was planned. And they evidently waited for the final death rattle in Dresden and Prague, where the fighting came to an end but a few hours ago and surrender became official one hour ago. And now the guns are quiet everywhere in Europe and the lights are on and the hearts of men and women are lifted in thanksgiving as millions say tonight. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Peace in Europe. Peace in Europe. Hitler's war produced one photograph which belongs with those words, peace in Europe. A house in London had just been hit by a flying bomb. People were killed. Rescue work was going on. The picture shows a woman warden carrying out a child. The child crying, pressing its cheek on the woman's helmet, clasping her neck. There's fresh blood on the woman's hand. And the London newspaper which published that picture wrote these words. This picture tells us much. It tells us children were on the front line. It tells us it must never happen again. The guns are silent and the lights are on. And the people know the miracle has come to pass. Here's a forecast. My first after VE Day. Full victory over the Jap before President Truman is 62 years of age. He's 61 today. For the power now released for the grand assault on the Jap is staggering in weight beyond all human imagination. Hardly a man alive is able to compute all that crushing might. Never has any one nation ever had to face so great an avalanche in men, planes, ships, tanks, and guns. And all the weapons of war. And the wrath of an outraged people. One more year for the Jap may prove to be a long time. Am I over-optimistic? Only 16 weeks ago, the Nazi had seven or eight million men, well-fed, well-armed, and well-entrenched. Von Rundstedt counterattacked in Belgium. And you and I heard people say we've lost a year, a year in supplies, a year of war. That was 16 weeks ago, and unconditional surrender was ratified tonight in Berlin. There will be dramatic surprise in Japan as well. And reunion, reunion here at home before many people believe possible now. Here's a headline for which I've been campaigning, I and others. No more Nazi prisoners are to be brought here except any who are now en route. Good. Use every possible inch of shipping space to furlough or discharge every man we can spare. Here's an item for the Jap. Hitler's contribution to the defeat of Japan. 300 U-boats, all said to be in good shape. Nazi U-boats. Said to be equipped with the latest device for long journeys. They're being turned over tonight to the Allies in good shape. Here's an echo of a long, long nightmare. Benito Mussolini's widow is a prisoner in Allied hands tonight. 
Well, the brownout is lifted here at home. The lights show in the Capitol building on the dome. And Mr. Vincent may have news tomorrow on the curfew, on the ban on horse racing, on gas and other matters. Meanwhile, Hitler's nose is rubbed good and hard in the mud of humiliation. Germany bans all Heil Hitler greetings, all Nazi salutes. And the number of German prisoners in American and British hands runs into so many millions. It may be more than the combined total of all American and British troops on all European battlefronts. If any army has ever suffered greater humiliation, I'm unable to recall it. Peace in Europe. There'll be hundreds of headlines now, all rich in human interest. Things have come to pass which few living men thought probable. General de Gaulle with a price on his head. Shoot this man on sight, said the French Quisling. Shoot this man on sight, said the Nazis. One man standing alone, calling to his countrymen to realize France had only lost the battle. Who would have said on that dark day when Hitler danced at Compiègne that de Gaulle would stand today in Notre Dame offering thanksgiving for the victory? That this one man standing alone would be the leader of his people in the great hour of victory. And the men who put a price on his head, fugitives or prisoners. Yes, headlines rich in human interest. Do you remember these words? 60,000 planes, 45,000 tanks, 8 million tons of shipping in a year, in our first year of war. Here are the results. 1942, 47,000 planes, 43, 85,000 planes, 44, 96,000 planes. In ships and tanks and guns, a free people made good its goal fulfilled its promise to become the arsenal of democracy. A day may come when some men will say we need a strong man in America, as some men thought we did a few years ago. Remember those figures when it comes. This dedication of free men and women and free labor to the great task. Peace in Europe. Two million men will come home within a year and a shorter time, perhaps. More than a million have come back now, men who bled for this great day. Even now, before the war is over, one hears of veterans who can't find jobs. Even now, one hears of employers who say this, may, this man may prove to be a liability in time. I had better drop him now. We gave our pledge. All that we are, we said, all that we can ever hope to be for these men. It was a pledge sanctified with the youth and flower of a great people. It was a pledge we gave in the darkest hour our people have ever known. Let us honor it. Thereby honor ourselves and prove we were worthy of it. In that same pledge we gave, we said there will be no discrimination because of race, creed, or color. We said we fight for this. We fight to prove we can live without prejudice and discrimination. Every man who fails to honor that pledge is fighting Hitler's war even now. News generally travels by wireless, printing press, and radio, but it, and it moves lightning fast, and its impact is powerful and violent. But an older medium carried today's news. There was no impact of violence. It was a church bell, 
and the news it brought reached into human hearts. I've heard people say we've always had war and we shall always have more war, and there just isn't anything we can do about it. And today one saw the long lines of men and women filing into houses of worship for prayer and thanksgiving, and one realized again, nothing, nothing will ever lift human hearts as high as a bell tolling its message in one word, peace. One had to be there to see it all and feel it. One had to be near the mother who fell to her knees and raised the careworn face to God and loud enough for all who were near to hear every word. Heard her say, oh God, I've lost one boy. Bring my second back to me. Oh God, I need him so. Always have war because we've always had war. Because people just naturally drift from war to peace and back to war again. No, I'll never believe it. Yes, say the people have never found a way to conquer war. Say the people blunder into war. Say the people are betrayed into war. Say the people want peace so much when it comes. We give ourselves up to it so completely we forget all the vigilance we need not to be robbed of it in time. But don't say we've always had war because people want war. I've seen people in every kind of human circumstance and experience. I've seen people rescued from fire and flood and death itself. I've seen a nation come out of all the desperation of hard times and feel the exaltation of a job and security and the dignity it brought. But nothing in all human experience has ever moved men and women as a bell tolling that one word, peace, as it did today even when peace had come only on one battlefield. Even when millions knew it was peace only in Europe. Even as millions knew all the peril and grief waiting on other fields of battle. Even as millions knew peace in Europe was only a brief flash of light in a long night. For people knew millions in Europe were homeless. And faced famine and disease and all the plagues left by the horsemen of war. People knew the price it would take and toil and sweat before peace could mean anything even in Europe. But the harvest of death was over on one battlefield and human hearts were on fire. How can anybody say the people have always had war and would always have it? If all the nations now in conference at San Francisco could feel the great upsurge which came out of human hearts today, this would be the war to conquer war. Wherever people met, someone would say, you know, it isn't like 1918 at all. People are quiet. They're solemn. They feel it all just as deeply, but there isn't any celebrating, no exaltation. And you'd hear somebody reply, it's good to know the dying in, over, in Europe is over at least. But how are you going to celebrate when you know at this minute boys are dying on Okinawa? When you know the scourge of war will claim a frightful price before Japan is crushed? When you know how many who marched away to Europe are not coming back again? Our casualties, three quarters of a million... If all the men at San Francisco could hear the people speak, they would know they carry a mandate as solemn as any delivered to men who ever came together. A mandate born in the hearts of millions who are trying to say, this pearl of great price, it was almost ours a generation ago. This miracle called peace with the people fighting for it, praying for it. And willful men fought along party lines and fought each other over words, over words, little realizing... They were winning empty victories to be paid for with the lives of our sons one generation later. 
In a tiny church in England, a man and his wife waited all night for the dawn today. There were many other nights when they were in that same church, when the whole world waited for the Nazis to land in Britain. And the church bells were to warn everybody the Nazis had come. Night after night, this man and his wife came, prepared to sound their alarm. And by the grace of God, the Nazi never came. But now the bell was to peal joyous news, tidings of victory and peace. And the man turned to his wife and he said, I'll ring as I never rang before. With all my heart and all my strength until even our boy will hear it. Their boy would hear it in the cemetery hilltop, which was now his home. Here where his youth and dreams and his love were all sacrificed. I'll ring, said his father, as I never rang before. You and I, we'll fight for the peace as we've never fought before. Until every man whose responsibility it is will know this is our mandate. This is keeping faith with those who kept faith with us. Good night. Thank you, Gabriel Heater. Gabriel Heater with up-to-the-minute news of the world was presented this evening by Forehands Toothpaste. And he is heard Monday through Friday evenings at this same time and Sunday evenings over most of these stations 15 minutes earlier. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. 14 From Hollywood, California, the Mutual Broadcasting System, in cooperation with the United States Treasury and the Hollywood Victory Committee, brings you a special broadcast starring Miss Ingrid Bergman and written and directed by Arch Obler. The special musical score is by Gordon Jenkins. The program will be concluded from Washington with an important message to you from your Secretary of the Treasury, the Honorable Henry Morgenthau, Jr. This program is dedicated to you who know that any future sacrifice you make for the rest of your life, be it every worldly possession you own, can never equal the price paid by the man who died to bring you victory in Europe, who will die to bring you victory in Japan. This is a story of victory. It was born in the air battle of Britain. It grew through Stalingrad, Tunisia, Casino, the beachheads of Normandy, up the Rhone Valley across France through the Siegfried Line. This is the story of victory. Oh, no, 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 no,
noisy the rest of the hospital. How about a V-Day date, Scotty? What the heck with a date? Let's get married. <laughs> all right, all right. Hey, here comes the doctor. Or oh, he's a jolly good fellow. For he's a jolly good fellow. That is, man. That is. Oh, you're not going to think I'm such a jolly good fellow when I tell you you've got to quiet down. After all, this is a hospital and all this excitement, you know. Well, Doc, uh, how soon can I get out of here? My squadron will be moving to the Pacific. How about me, Oh, now, wait a minute, Doc. Look, 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 man. Man. Now, supposing you have one more song, and then all of you, back to your own wards. Oh, but Doc, Germany out of the war. Okay, fellas, he's the doctor. One more song, he says. How about... Happy days are here again. Very exciting, isn't it, Doctor? Yes, Miss Stewart. <laughs> I'd hate to take their temperatures now. They waited a long time for this. They... Oh, Doctor, did I say something wrong? Mm. No, no. Uh, I was just thinking that no one has told them. Them? I don't know how. To go into their rooms and announce that it's over? I don't know how. Should I? These men... They know that soon they'll be with their own outfits or going home. Those others. Doctor, I said, may may I tell them? You? Yes, please. All right. All right. Thank you, Miss Stewart. Stewart, Freddie. How are you? I, I'm all right. May I sit and talk to you? I'd like that. <laughs> Thank you. Sleep well last night? Hmm? Yes. I was hoping you'd come in. I'm sorry I couldn't come in sooner. There's, there's been all sorts of excitement. Excitement? Mm-hmm. You see, Freddie, it's finally happened. Germany's out of the war. Freddie, did you hear me? Yes. Yes, I, I thought you'd like to know. Yes, thank you. Did it rain last night? Y- yeah. Yes, it did. I thought I heard rain. I guess they're underwater. What? Forty acres down by the creek. My father tried to drain that land ever since I was a pup. It's full of cattails and frogs. One bullfrog, he must have been a foot across. I called him Sitting Bull. We could hear him all the way up to the house. Mother said he was better than the church organ. (laughs) You know something? We drained a swamp at Saipan. In three days, the forts were landing there. Three days. And my dad's been trying for 20 years. So I was good on Saipan. You planted a seed and overnight it was up. We had almost five acres. Even tomatoes and corn. I was in charge. It's so funny. 
What, Freddy? Lying here. All I think about are things like that. Green things and black dirt. That's very funny. Back home, I never paid much attention to it. I did my chores. That's all. But now I only seem to want to remember what was growing. I don't know why I think about it. I just do. Maybe... Maybe it's because now that it's so dark all the time, I've got to think about things growing in the sun. Maybe it's because that was the most wonderful thing I ever saw. That the earth was good even on an island in the middle of the ocean. Did you say it was victory? Yes. If I get home, I can help my father. I can show him how to drain the land. I know how to do it now. Forty acres. There'll be so many more to feed now. something to tell you. I know. You do? Yes, ma'am. Oh, but how? Through the window. I can hear them oh. singing. It can only mean one thing, or am I wrong again? No. The word just came. That's great. Yes. The doctor told me not to turn my head. Are you sitting down? You want me to? If you have time. Of course. Because it's today, will you tell me something? Whatever you want to know. How long will I be here? I don't know. Honestly? Yes, Sam, honestly. I, I didn't ask for the reason the others do. I asked because I want to know how much longer I can stay here. Stay? Here? Yes, ma'am. Oh, you want to go home? No, ma'am. Oh, but why? By the time you're released, you'll be all right. New healthy tissue, heart, how do you scar? Yes, ma'am. Tell me, Sam. What good would that be? Do me some good, perhaps. Of all the boys on this floor, I've known you the least. Is it your family? No. I'd like to be with them. Oh, Sam. Because it's today. Please tell me. When I was born, I had all the world. Yeah. Little black baby only in the world. I lost it fast. Get out of the way, nigga. No black boys wanted. You know the story. Soon I wasn't even in the world. Then the army. Well, maybe a crazy hour. I thought it was part of things again, but... Oh, do I have to tell you? And then that nausea floating around up there saw me in my oil truck riding the Red Ball Express. He went into a dive and got me in his sights and pressed the trigger and... and then... there was nothing. But all at once there was... I was in a bed. Others all around me. And nobody said, get out, black boy, one side nigger. Somebody said, nice going, fella. And the guy next to me stuck a cigarette in my lips and somebody else lit it. And, and I was back in the world again. I've been there ever since. On the hospital ship and the train and here. They, they talked to me. 
Sam, what's your opinion of this? Sam, how about that? Sam, talk to us. Sam, tell us. Me, Sam. So hooray for the day, but I want to stay here. I... I... I want to stay here. Tom? Tom? Do, do you mind if I sit here and talk to you? Huh? Who? Miss Stewart. Dorothy? No. No, it's Miss Stewart, Tom. Where have you been? Tom, I have some wonderful news for you. I'll tell you something. I was going to be angry with you. I'm not at all. Angry? Dorothy, don't ever keep me waiting again. Please. Oh. Did you get all the stuff? Why, yes. It's going to be a wonderful day. I've looked forward to it. Have you? Now, stop worrying about Mary Ann. She'll be all right. Yes, of course. After all, my mother knows how to take care of babies. Look at me. Oh, let's look at the timetable. There it is. Eleven ten, about three or four minutes, and we're off. Dodd, why don't you say something? Uh, I'm glad we're going. No, you didn't say that. You didn't say that. You said something else. Dodd, say what you said then. Say it. I don't remember. I see you. I know you're here. But your voice is so far away. I'm here. Is the train coming? Not yet. Oh, Dot, I love you so much. All right, let him put a bronze tablet here on this spot on June 6, 1940. A man made love to his wife, end quote. Why do I have to make a joke about it? Is there something wrong with my loving you more than two years ago? Stand close to me, Don. No, there's no one around. Oh, darling, every day is better for us, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, Tom. Lift your face. Yes. If you weren't here, I couldn't stand it. Been terrible, Dot. My face. I keep thinking. Aren't we a handsome couple? Aren't we a handsome couple? Why do I keep thinking that? What's wrong with my no. face? I try to sleep, Tom. I can hardly hear you. But you're here. Your face so close. I can feel you warm. Sleep, sleep, Tom. Such a handsome couple. Such a handsome couple. Such a Dot. Don't. Don't come too close to my face. Not too close, Dot. It's all right. Is it? Is it? Yes. The handsomest couple? Yes. (sighs) 
your lips. Kiss? Yes, Tom. Scotty, come on in. Good morning, Larry. Larry Darling, Scotty. Always Larry Darling. Oh, you need an ice pack. No, I need to talk to you. Please, will you? That's, that's why I came here. I knew it was my lucky day the minute I opened my eyes. Why, I bet even the custard will taste good today. Yes, Larry, yes. Something has happened today. Happened what? Germany's out of the war. Absolutely? Absolutely. Well, what do you know? It's wonderful, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Hey, are the fellas tearing up the place? <laughs> yes, just about. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I can just see them back home. What a time they must be having. Running around. Tonight they'll be dancing. Larry, don't. Oh, don't. no, no, you don't understand. I'm okay. fact of the matter is, I'm better than that. I, I got it all laid out like a blueprint. A right arm. That's all I got, and that's all I'll need. Sure. A right arm to hold a girl, to write a check. Oh, no, no, Scotty. No, don't look like that. I, I tell you, I'm fine. With the money that's coming to me when I get out of here, all those GI checks I never got a chance to spend, I'm going in business for myself. Oh, no, you didn't tell me. That, that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm wonderful. Have a card. Larry Edmonds, General <laughs> Sherman's and Jeep's repaired while you wait. Amphibious tanks especially. Oh, auto repair? <laughs> and filling stations. Oh. Um, notice I said stations. Mm-hmm. Look, the way I got it doped out, the minute they take gasoline off ration, and the whole United States is going to get into the automobile and start going. And they're going to keep going until they wear out all the ants in their pants. They, I, I mean... Well, I understand. <laughs> well, well, what I mean is, well, everybody's built up a want to go places. Well, like me, every day lying here. I've been walking every street I ever walked and visiting every place I've ever gone to. You know. Yes. I know. So I've located just the corner where I'm going to put that first super service station. And I know just the guys that used to be in my outfit to turn the pumps and pull the wrenches. One station, and if it goes okay, as it will, I'll start another one. Then then another one. Then, well, gosh, the fact of the matter is, I'm going to be one of them tycoons. Well, of course you will. And I'd like to get in on the ground floor. No kidding. No kidding. I, uh, I have got a chance, haven't I? To get places to... Oh, sure, sure I have. I'll, I'll sit behind a desk and use the brains I got instead of worrying about the legs I haven't got. And I'll figure out new ways and shortcuts to keep automobiles going the way I used to do with the tanks. And I'll build up a big business and keep spreading out and... I can't, miss. I can't. Can I, Miss Stewart? Hello, Captain. 
Go away. Oh, but I want... I, I told want... them no one was to come in here but the doctor. Yes, I yes. told them. Please, Captain, For I... God's sake, can't I be left alone? I... Haven't I earned that at least? Haven't I? Oh, well, I... Haven't I... I? Why don't you leave me alone? <laughs> What's the matter? Tell me. I want to know. It's been a strange morning. Why? The reason I came here. I have news for you. News? Germany. It's over. When? We, We got... Word just a little while ago. You've been going around on this floor? Telling us? Yes. I'm sorry for what I said. Oh, it's all right. Are they tearing up telephone books and parading up and down the streets? I, I haven't been out. So it's really here? Yes. Doug. This would have been a day for Doug. He'd have buzzed under Den Linden itself. Doug's day. Not mine. Oh, of course it is. No, to Doug it was a game that ended at the goalposts of Berlin. Maybe if I got my throat cut outside Aachen the way he did, it would have been my day too. Oh. But I lasted a little longer than that. Long enough to see a mountain of shoes, hundreds of thousands. Every pair meant a human being that had been shoved into an incinerator for the crime of daring to live. I lived long enough to see row and row of quiet children with a flamethrowers had left them. I lived long enough to see Doug with his hands tied behind his back and his throat cut. I hate this day. Because now we'll stop killing them. The sentimentalists will begin. They'll stand on righteousness and wave the words of charity, pity, and compassion. And the grass will grow over the murdered. And the cities will be rebuilt. And the torn throats and the whipped backs and the screams. And the bloody marks on the walls will be forgotten. Yes, forgotten. Because only a few of us saw those things with our own eyes. Forgotten because our people never had hatred poured into their veins with the death of their wives and their children. I hate this day. For now the forgetting begins. Stuart, I've been looking for you. I wanted to... Uh... Yes. You've seen them. Yes. I should have gone myself. No, I... I wanted to go. I wanted to... When the... When the news came, it was hard to believe what we had waited for. 
But it was true. And suddenly everything became wonderful in a way it hadn't been for a very long time. We'd beaten the Huns. We'd finally beaten the Huns. The rest was up to the peace commissions and the governmental experts and the statesmen. Freddy, Sam Jones, Tom, Larry Edmonds, the captain. I wanted to bring them the news because they paid with their bodies for this day in terrible ways. And so, the happiness belonged to them. I thought that. But, Doctor, they don't need today. We need it. This day is for us. Those of us in America who lived through a war and knew no pain. I was crying before, yes. Yes. For that soldier lying up there in the dark and telling me that he hated today. Hated it. Because now we would listen again to the self-seekers and the sentimentalists and begin to forget. Doctor, that can't be true. We've got to start remembering. First... The enemy to the east. The enemy that dreams that in this day of happiness we here will forget them and their tortures and murders. Yes, we've got to remember them. The enemy in the east yet to be beaten. The one in the west that twice in our lifetime tried to destroy our civilization. We've got to remember them, every face, every name, so that there will be no place on earth left for them to hide to cry out for a mercy that would make the dead rise up in protest. We've got to remember our responsibilities in a world that has grown as small as the house we live in. And the people in that house We've got to remember we we can only live together with them in fairness and mutual decency. I think we've got enough remembering to do for the rest of our lives and the lives of our children. Yes, this day is for us. short talk by the Secretary of the Treasury, the Honorable Henry Morgenthau, Jr., we take you now to Washington. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. 
the greatest challenge to American democracy still lies before us. That challenge is to our self-restraint, our self-discipline, our self-control. These are the qualities upon which a democratic society must depend upon for its strength. We've shown that we possess them in the attainment of one great victory. We have proved in Europe that the free devotion of a free people is mightier than any that can be dragooned by an all-powerful state. Now that our devotion faces its supreme test, our victory, President Truman put it, is but half won. The West is free, but the East is still in bondage. And in addition to this, the vast responsibility of reconstruction in Europe is upon us. We cannot shirk it without endangering all that we've already won in combat. We cannot fail, and we cannot falter. What is demanded of us is this, that we accept triumph without relaxation. The fruits of peace are not yet ripe for us to pluck. For a while longer, for whatever length of time may be required, we must continue to do without things we want but do not need. That kind of self-restraint is the only way to keep our economy on an even keel, to keep America a land of opportunity for the men who have fought to keep it free. There is no truce in this war for the men in Okinawa. The war is not over for the men who already are beginning to move from Europe to the Pacific. They look to all of us at home for the same unstinting support that helped them to victory over Hitler's Germany. Tomorrow, millions of your fellow Americans, volunteer workers, will begin the tremendous task of enrolling you in the seventh war loan drive. They will appeal to you to do your share voluntarily as free people in finishing the greatest war in the history of the world. Let us demonstrate to the world again that free men of their own volition possess the self-discipline to shoulder their responsibilities. The buying of bonds is an act of simple faith, faith in ourselves, faith in the men who fight for us, faith in the future of democracy. The Mutual Network, in cooperation with the United States Treasury and the Hollywood Victory Committee, has brought you a special program starring Miss Ingrid Bergman and written and directed by Arch Obler. The bonds that you will buy tomorrow will help win the war in Japan and free the rest of the world of fascist hate forever. We wish to thank the makers of Barbersol, sponsors of Gabriel Heater, who have relinquished their time tonight for the special broadcast just concluded. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Enter. The following transcribed program is rebroadcast by the Armed Forces Radio Service to our fighting men overseas. Goodyear presents the Roy Rogers Show. 
Friends, tonight as usual, Goodyear brings you Roy Rogers. But because of the great news we've all been hearing, we want you to know that we will interrupt this program instantly for any late news flashes. Meanwhile, you'll hear Bob Nolan and the Sons of the Pioneers, Pat Friday, the Farr Brothers, Perry Botkin's Orchestra, Goodyear's guest tonight, motion picture villain Porter Hall. And now the greatest name in rubber, Goodyear, invite you to meet America's greatest Western star, Roy Rogers. I've got a locket in my pocket, a plain golden locket. Got a locket in my pocket, right next to my heart. I've got a picture in this locket, the locket in my pocket. Got a picture in this locket, with which I'll never part. The face in the picture is beautiful to see. And the girl that the face belongs to, she belongs to me. I've got a locket in my pocket. My sweetheart's in that locket, got my sweetheart in my pocket, right next to my heart. in the picture is beautiful to see and the girl that the face belongs to she belongs to me i've got a locket in my pocket my sweetheart's in that locket got my sweetheart in my pocket right next to my heart right next to my heart folks, and welcome for me and the gang to tonight's Goodyear get-together. We've rounded up a few new and some old songs for the occasion, and one of the West's most uh, amazing legendary stories, but right now it's time for you to meet our guest for this evening, one of the swellest actors who ever foreclosed a mortgage on poor little nail, Mr. Porter Hall. Hi, Porter. <laughs> That's a nice welcome after you asked me to come over to your get-together. <laughs> well, shucks, don't mind the folks, Porter. They've seen you as a villain in so many pictures that they just can't keep from booing at you. Well, I'm so misunderstood, Roy. To everyone who's ever seen me in pictures, I'm a no-good, low-down, unprincipled crook. No, honest, Roy, you know I'm not that way at all. Much. <laughs> <laughs> Porter, I'm surprised at you. Why, I think I'd much rather play your part than my own. The heavy in the picture, oh, well, he always gets his own way, and... And you get most of the close-ups, you know, where you sneer and twirl your mustache and make everyone in the audience hiss at you? Well, that's a real trouble, Roy. I never know if they're hissing the character or the actor playing the part. Well, when Porter Hall is playing the part uh, as a villain, it isn't the actor they're hissing, you can believe me. But just to give you a break, Porter, we've got a sketch for you to play in tonight about one of the West's most amazing characters. And just to prove that you're the star and the hero, I'm not even going to play in it. How's that? Well, that's what I call really being a hero. Giving a whole story to a screen bad man. Uh, uh, but what are you going to do, Roy? Well, first of all, Porter, I'm going to keep an eye on you and make sure you don't forget yourself and steal the ranch. <laughs> then I'm going to just sort of keep the get-together moving. Like now, when I call on the sons of the pioneers to dedicate a song to you. He always sings. Dragging music to the cattle as he swings Back and forward in the saddle on a horse That is syncopated gator There's such a funny meter to the roar of his repeater How to run when they hear the fellas gun Because the western folks all know He's a highfalutin' scootin' shootin' Son of a gun from Arizona Ragtime Cowboy Joe 
Out in Arizona where the bad men are The only thing to guide you is an evening star The roughest, toughest man by far Was Ragtime Porter Hall He always sings Ragged music to the cattle at the swing Back and forward in the saddle on a horse That'll sink a painted gated And there's such a funny meter To the roar of his repeater How they run When they hear the fellas come To call the western folks all know He's a highfalutin' shootin' shootin' Son of a gun from Arizona Ragtime Porter Ride em, Porter Ragtime Porter Today, when congratulations are being offered all over the world to the millions who worked and fought for victory in Europe, Goodyear would also like to propose a toast. A toast of its own and to its own. A toast to the 24,783 of its men and women in the armed forces. It's well done to those in Europe. It's good luck to those in the Pacific. And here's a toast to to the 100,000 Goodyear employees at home who, with their war work, have contributed and are continuing to contribute to final victory. To them, good work, and let's keep punching hard till the Japs get theirs. It's the Farr Brothers' curious fiddle and galloping guitar in Cajun Stone. I missed much. Well, hello there, Pat Friday. You have missed a couple of good songs, but you're in plenty of time for the story Porter Hall and I are going to tell tonight. Porter Hall? Do I know him? Are you my Uncle Every? Yes, every Friday. <laughs> I, uh, I am now fabulously wealthy, and uh, I intend to buy you the finest ranch in the West. Oh, but, but I already have a ranch. Oh, you have? As if I didn't know. But uh, you deserve a much bigger one. Now, uh, 
If you will just give me that piece of paper you're holding, which I assume to be the deed to your present property... Here you are, sir. Aha. Ah, <laughs> uh, my proud beauty. Now I have you in my power. Doggone you, Porter <laughs> Hall. Unhand that girl and give her back that deed. Aw, <laughs> oh, shucks, Roy. That isn't the deed to my ranch. It's just a song I'm going to sing tonight. Curses foiled again. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly, Porter, because if Pat will forgive you and sing the song right now... You'll get the treat of your life. Folks, Miss Pat Friday singing close as pages in a book. We'll be close as pages in a book, my love and I. Share a single look, share every thought. So close that before I hear your laugh, my laugh breaks through. When a tear starts to appear, my eyes grow misty Come tumbling to the ground We'll hold them fast Darling As the strongest book is bound about a cowman's pony, but there's another little animal. I guess the West would never have been made without him. You find him packing loads twice their own weight, where grubby prospectors work tirelessly in the desert sands. You'll find him high up in the mountains where a less sure-footed animal will plunge his rider 5,000 feet down a sheer drop. Oh, maybe their voices aren't as musical as a cowhand's song as he sings and quiets his herd, but I've yet to see the true Westerner who didn't cuss them and love them. The gentle, sure-footed, little braying burrow.
to be. A highfalutin' shootin' son of a gun up in Wyoming. I loved a girl. She loved my pal. So I packed my bag and saddled my nag and then I took a long Now we're only a lonely trio Without a friend We trail along the king of the cowboys in a new western ballad, Don't Blame It All on Me. If our love should fade like a cold winter's day, don't blame it all on me. The true love has flown, might have known friends will say, don't blame it all on me. There was a time, dear, when we were so gay, I heard you say, I love only you Someday with the dawn All our love may be gone But don't blame it all on me For after all, dear I too have a heart You have it now Don't break it apart Someday our romance May break up just by chance But don't blame it all on me Say, Roy, you've got both Pat and me busting with curiosity about the yarn you and Porter Hall are going to tell. What's so different about it? Come on, Roy, don't just stand there with that twinkle in your eye. Well, kids, tonight's story is about the greatest cowboy who ever rode a bronc, shot a six-gun, or roped a steer. As a matter of fact, he's the man who taught broncos to buck, who invented the six-shooter and considered the lariat one of his unimportant inventions. Oh, no. <laughs> wait a minute, Roy. Now, you wait a minute, miss. Don't accuse Roy here of exaggerating. But, Roy, anybody knows the six-gun was invented by Samuel Colt. That, Vern, is just a rumor. The six-gun was definitely invented by Pecos Bill. Pecos Bill? Never heard of him. Female tenderfoot. Bah. But who was Pecos Bill, Roy? He sounds as fantastic as this Hall character here. He's much more so, Vern. Pecos Bill is the most fantastic character the imaginations of thousands of cowboys ever dreamed up. And if you'll all just make yourselves comfortable... Porter Hall and I will tell you plenty about him. Now, I'm not saying that Pecos Bill is dead even today. To be honest, I don't know if Bill was ever born. They say he was born in Texas, and he was quite a baby. Weighed 73 pounds <laughs> and stood more than four feet tall. 
he got lost out on the prairie one day and, and didn't have anybody to play with, so Bill wound up living and playing with the coyotes. Well, just about Bill's ninth birthday, a cowboy who'd wandered off the trail came upon Bill just as the big kid was having a morning exercise. Hey there, son. What you doing? Playing, Tarnation, don't you use your eyes. Can't you see them wrestling? Now, hold on. That ain't fair. One younger like you get only two bears. Let up on them critters. Uh, well, uh, well, I don't like to be picking on somebody who ain't my own size, but shucks, there ain't more than two bears left around these parts. Guess a blade too rough. Most of them die of a busted neck. Well, what in top place you doing out here in these hills anyhow? Running around shameless like that with no, no stitch of clothes on your body. Clothes? Don't you know us coyotes don't wear no clothes? You been chewing loco weed, youngster? You ain't no coyote. You're a human being. I ain't no human being. I'm a regular natural-born coyote. Don't I live with them varmints? Don't I talk to them? Don't I howl like them? <coughs> ain't I got fleas? Now, looky here, Button. That ain't no proof you're a varmint. Why, sakes alive. Ain't a human being in these parts that don't howl and ain't got fleas. Well, don't you call me no human being. Well, well, that's what you are. Look, ain't every varmint you ever see got a tail? <laughs> now, ain't they? Why, sure. All varmints got tails. That's natural. Uh, darn tootin' it is. Then if you're, you're a varmint, where, where's your tail? <laughs> well? I, uh, well, God bless it to lighten. You're right. I ain't got no tail. Of course you ain't. So you see, son, you're not a varmint at all. You're a human being. <laughs> I don't want to be no human being. <laughs> I don't want to be no human being. Now, look here, fella. You is a human being. And it's my duty as another human being to take you back to civilization. <laughs> well, that's just about the time that Texas started to make its place in the world. Just when Pecosville was dragged back to civilization. What with eating regular, Bill started to grow. And inside of a year, Bill was more than eight feet tall and weighed better than a half a ton. But Bill was lazy and hated to work. But, Roy, what, what kind of work did Pecos Bill do? Almost any kind of ranching, Pat. Roping, branding, and, well, you know, when he'd do the branding, he'd do it with his bare hands. He'd just grab a yearling, tuck it under his arm, and stuff his ears up so he wouldn't hear the calf's bawling. You know, Bill was kind of a soft-hearted cuss. You mean he wasn't tough, Roy? He wasn't a bad man? A bad man? Pat Pecos Bill was so bad that he killed off everybody in his part of Texas that had enough spunk to stand up to him. Then he got so tired of the peace and quiet that he, he finally started heading west. Well, he finally run out into the run into an old fella and stopped his horse. Howdy, stranger! <clears throat> Say, can you direct me to some place where I might find myself a real man? You know, the kind what takes a real joy in a killing. Well, just keep heading up this canyon about 200 miles and you'll find them right enough. Yes, sir, you sure will. Oh, thanks, old-timer. Pecosville is much obliged to you. Did you say Pecosville? Yes, sir, you did. Pecosville's my name. Up and daisies, I gotta get out of here. Get up there. If he was really in a hurry, I wonder what took the old goat so long. 
goodness sakes, don't stop there. What did Pecosville do? Did he go... Did he go the 200 miles up the canyon? <laughs> well, yes and no, Pat. You see, old Bill turned his horse and started, but after riding only about 20 miles, a doggone horse stubbed his toe on a cottonwood tree and busted his leg. Well, all Bill could do was follow the coat of the west. He covered his eyes with one hand and pulled out his rifle, which he used as a pistol, aimed it at the poor horse's head, and with tears running down his cheeks. <laughs> Goodbye, old page. <laughs> Someday we'll meet again, you and me, over on the other side of the great horizon. Before Bill could squeeze the trigger, the horse looked up, and with tears streaming from his big brown eyes, he said, Now, wait a minute, Bill. You ain't gonna shoot me just cause three of my four legs is busted, are you? Well, I reckon I was, but if you got any last words... Uh... Well, you ain't... You know I ain't one of them regular, undersized, scrawny little horses. Just leave me alone for a bit, and I'll get well. Well, doggone if I don't believe you. Well, I'm going to take the saddle off you and leave you here. Then I'll leg it up to where that bunch of tough hombres are. And when you feel well enough in about 20 or 30 minutes, just trot up and jine me. Well, I hadn't gone two miles further, saddle over one arm, when I spot a little rattlesnake no more than 18 feet long. So I uh, put down the saddle, and I reached out, and I grabbed the sneaking sidewinder, and after cuffing him good fashion a few times, the snake told me he'd give up. So I coiled the little fellow like a lariat, stuck him on my saddle horn, and I started on up the canyon. Hello, boy, Bill. Tell him the rest of the story. Sky and stop me, you movie cowboy, you. <laughs> well, a little piece further up the road, a catamount jumped me. A what? A catamount, a mountain lion. Don't you know nothing? Anyway, he knocked me to the ground, and that made me sore. Gun in your bed, what a big gun. Take me up like that. Take that. Take that. No, no. Quit, Bill. Quit. Can't you take a joke? Oh, so it was a joke, was it? Yeah, but it didn't turn out so well, Bill. Honest, I'm the sorriest catamount out of captivity. Well, at least you're the dumbest catamount I ever seen. Oh. Just for that, I'm throwing this saddle on your stupid back and riding you up the canyon. No. Yeah, using this rattlesnake for a whip. Now, get over there, go on. Now, well, let's get started. Else will now break you in two and only eat the best piece. Ah. Well, as soon as Bill got the saddle... Hey, he... just a minute, Roy. That's a fib. How come the horse and the catamount actually talked to Pecosville and Bill answered them? Well, heavens to Betsy, Pat. Wasn't the lad brought up with coyotes? Why, shucks, he had more trouble talking straight Texan than he did chewing a rag with them varmints. Uh, what happened then, Bill? Well, I read into the camp where all them hard-bitten owl hoots were sitting around eating chow. So I hauled up my catamount and I walked over to the cook pots and I looked in. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, what's this? Bean. Ah. Nothing but six quarts left. Well, I'll start on those. Hmm. Hmm. Ah. Well, ain't so bad. But they make me thirsty. Uh, give me that coffee pot. Look out, stranger. That pot is a boiling. Shut up. Ah. Ah. Yeah. Now, someone hand me that porcupine to wipe my mouth on and we get down to business. 
What is your business, partner? Who's boss of this gang? That's what I want to know. Who's boss around here? Stranger I was, but you be. And did anyone ever hear of Pecosville after that, Roy? Well, sure, Pat. A few years later... Someone bet him he couldn't ride a cyclone. Well, Pecos Bill was the kind of a fellow no one could dare, so he went back to Kansas, waited for a twister, and, and when one came along, why, he climbed aboard. And was he killed, Roy? I mean, did the cyclone throw him? Throw a legendary character like that? Why, not at all, Vern. By the time that twister crossed Colorado, he had it as tame as a lamb. But then he got a little bit overconfident, you know. He rolled himself a cigarette, and when he, when he couldn't find any matches... He reached up and grabbed a piece of forked lightning. Oh, I see, Roy. And the lightning electrocuted him? Huh? Shucks, no, Pat. But it tickled him and got, got him to laughing so much that he didn't look where he was going. So he slipped off the cyclone and dropped 97 miles to Earth. Oh, Roy, that doesn't seem possible. But it happened, Vern. And where Bill landed, he weighed so much and fell so far that he knocked the Earth 150 feet below sea level. Folks called the place where he landed Death Valley. Because they figured he'd never survive such a bump. Fact is, I was surprised as you were when Pecos Bill walked in here tonight. It's the whole Goodyear gang led by Roy Rogers, the king of the cowboys, in Skies Are Bluer. Skies are bluer in Oklahoma, Oklahoma, where my heart lies. Songs are newer in Oklahoma, Oklahoma, as the crow flies. That's where the yellow corn is brighter and cotton's whiter than snow. Just listen to the wheat a swaying. It sounds like it's saying hello. Are ringing and voices singing, oil is gushing and the folks are rushing now to Oklahoma, USA. Yellow corn is brighter and cotton's whiter than snow. Just listen to the wheat a swaying. It sounds like it's saying hello. Bells are ringing and boys are singing. Oil is gushing and the folks are rushing out to Oklahoma, USA. Well, it looks as if our time for tonight is like the water in a stream in the middle of the summer. It's all run out. But we've got more time again next week, and we'd like you all to be back sitting with us at our Goodyear get-together. We have some songs and music and a little chatter, Western style, and a rip-roaring story about the old days that should please everybody. So till next Tuesday, this is Roy Rogers thanking Porter Hall for appearing with us tonight and saying for the whole gang, goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you. Don't forget, smiles are made out of the sunshine. 
And the frown from a rainy Now this is Vern Smith saying goodnight for Goodyear, the greatest name in rubber. If you like the songs and stories of the West, don't miss tuning in next Tuesday. Same station you're tuned to now, same time of the day on your clock, when Goodyear will bring you another get-together with Bob Nolan and the Sons of the Pioneers, Pat Friday, the Farr Brothers, Harry Botkin and his orchestra, and starring the king of the cowboys, Roy Rogers. Rogers' program was transcribed. This is VE Day. Don't forget to buy another bond. A war half won is a job half done. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. And we'll talk to you later tonight with Perry Hunter. Alt tab. VE day run from Alt tab. VE Alt tab. Sound Alt tab. Ken Lane Alt tab. 1. 50. Alt F4. Alt tab. VE day run from Alt tab. 1. 50. Alt F4. 1. 50. VE day run from Alt tab. VE Alt tab. Sound Forge Pro 11.0. Escape. Escape. Enter. Enter. Menu. File A. Leaving menus. Sound 1 star. Save as dialogue. File name. Sound 1. Edit. S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y-N-I-G-H-T-W-I-T-H-P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-S-E-C-O-N-D P-C-5-12-18 Save as type. Save button. Enter. Edit. JAWS Professional Apple Software Update Dialog List the Alt F4 Alt Tab Skype Trademark 35 Wall Alt Page Down Alt Tab Replay Alt Tab Sound Forge Pro 11.0